A History of Money and Banking in the United States, The Colonial Era to World War II, by Murray N. Rothbard. Part 1. A History of Money and Banking in the United States Before the 20th Century. As an outpost of Great Britain, Colonial America, of course, used British pounds, pence, and shillings as its money. Great Britain was officially on a silver standard, with the shilling defined as equal to 86 pure troy grains of silver, and with silver as so defined legal tender for all debts. That is, creditors were compelled to accept silver at that rate. However, Britain also coined gold and maintained a bimetallic standard by fixing the gold guinea, weighing 129.4 grains of gold, as equal in value to a certain weight of silver. In that way, gold became, in effect, legal tender as well. Unfortunately, by establishing bimetallism, Britain became perpetually subject to the evil known as Gresham's Law, which states that when government compulsorily overvalues one money and undervalues another, the undervalued money will leave the country or disappear into hordes, while the overvalued money will flood into circulation. Hence, the popular catchphrase of Gresham's Law, bad money drives out good. But the important point to note is that the triumph of, quote, bad money is the result, not of perverse free market competition, but of government, using the compulsory legal tender power to privilege one money above another. In 17th and 18th century Britain, the government maintained a mint ratio between gold and silver that consistently overvalued gold and undervalued silver in relation to world market prices, with the resultant disappearance and outflow of full-bodied silver coins and an influx of gold and the maintenance and circulation of only eroded and, quote, lightweight silver coins. Attempts to rectify the fixed bimetallic ratios were always too little and too late. In the sparsely settled American colonies, money, as it always does, arose in the market as a useful and scarce commodity and began to serve as a general medium of exchange. Thus, beaver fur and wampum were used as money in the north for exchanges with the Indians, and fish and corn also served as money. Rice was used as money in South Carolina, and the most widespread use of commodity money was tobacco which served as money in Virginia. The pound of tobacco was the currency unit in Virginia, with warehouse receipts and tobacco circulating as money, backed 100% by the tobacco in the warehouse. While commodity money continued to serve satisfactorily in rural areas, as the colonial economy grew, Americans imported gold and silver coins to serve as monetary media in urban centers and in foreign trade. English coins were imported, but so too were gold and silver coins from other European countries. Among the gold coins circulating in America were the French guinea, the Portuguese joe, the Spanish doubloon, and Brazilian coins, while silver coins included French crowns and livres. It is important to realize that gold and silver are international commodities, and that therefore, when not prohibited by government decree, Foreign coins are perfectly capable of serving as standard monies. 
There is no need to have a national government monopolize the coinage. And indeed, foreign gold and silver coins constituted much of the coinage in the United States until Congress outlawed the use of foreign coins in 1857. Thus, if a free market is allowed to prevail in a country, foreign coins will circulate naturally. Silver and gold coins will tend to be valued in proportion to their respective weights, and the ratio between silver and gold will be set by the market. In accordance with their relative supply and demand. Shilling and dollar manipulations. By far the leading specie coin circulating in America was the Spanish silver dollar, defined as consisting of 387 grains of pure silver. The dollar was divided into pieces of eight, or bits, each consisting of one eighth of a dollar. Spanish dollars came into the North American colonies through lucrative trade with the West Indies. The Spanish silver dollar had been the world's outstanding coin since the early 16th century, and was spread partially by dint of the vast silver output of the Spanish colonies in Latin America. More important, however, was that the Spanish dollar, from the 16th to the 19th century, was relatively the most stable and least debased coin in the Western world. Since the Spanish silver dollar consisted of 387 grains, and the English shilling consisted of 86 grains of silver, This meant the natural free market ratio between the two coins would be four shillings, six pence per dollar. Constant complaints, both by contemporaries and by some later historians, arose about an alleged scarcity of money, especially of specie, in the colonies, allegedly justifying numerous colonial paper money schemes to remedy that shortage. In reality, there was no shortage. It is true that England, in a mercantilist attempt to hoard specie, Kept minting for its own prerogative and outlawed minting in the colonies. It also prohibited the export of English coin to America. But this did not keep specie from America, for, as we have seen, Americans were able to import Spanish and other foreign coin, including English, from other countries. Indeed, as we shall see, it was precisely paper money issues that led, by Gresham's law, to outflows and disappearance of specie from the colonies. In their own mercantilism, The colonial governments early tried to hoard their own specie by debasing their shilling standards in terms of Spanish dollars. Whereas their natural weights dictated a ratio of four shillings six pence to the dollar, Massachusetts, in 1642, began a general colonial process of competitive debasement of shillings. Massachusetts arbitrarily decreed that the Spanish dollar be valued at five shillings. The idea was to attract an inflow of Spanish silver dollars into that colony. And to subsidize Massachusetts exports by making their prices cheaper in terms of dollars. Soon, Connecticut and other colonies followed suit, each persistently upping the ante of debasement. The result was to increase the supply of nominal units of account by debasing the shilling, inflating domestic prices, and thereby bringing the temporary export stimulus to a rapid end. Finally, The English government brought a halt to this feudal and inflationary practice in 1707. But the colonial governments had already found another and far more inflationary arrow for their bow the invention of government fiat paper money. Government paper money. Apart from medieval China, which invented both paper and printing centuries before the West, the world had never seen government paper money until the colonial government of Massachusetts emitted a fiat paper issue in 1690. Massachusetts was accustomed to launching plunder expeditions against the prosperous French colony in Quebec. 
Generally, the expeditions were successful and would return to Boston, sell their booty, and pay off the soldiers with the proceeds. This time, however, the expedition was beaten back decisively, and the soldiers returned to Boston in ill humor, grumbling for their pay. Discontented soldiers are ripe for mutiny, so the Massachusetts government looked around in concern for a way to pay the soldiers. It tried to borrow 3,000 to 4,000 pounds from Boston merchants, but evidently the Massachusetts credit rating was not the best. Finally, Massachusetts decided in December 1690 to print 7,000 pounds in paper notes and to use them to pay the soldiers. Suspecting that the public would not accept irredeemable paper, the government made a twofold pledge when it issued the notes that it would redeem them in gold or silver out of tax revenue in a few years, and that absolutely no further paper notes would be issued. Characteristically, however, both parts of the pledge went quickly by the board. The issue limit disappeared in a few months, and all the bills continued unredeemed for nearly 40 years. As early as February 1691, the Massachusetts government proclaimed that its issue had fallen far short and so it proceeded to emit 40,000 pounds of new money to repay all of its outstanding debt, again pledging falsely that this would be the absolute final note issue. But Massachusetts found that the increase in the supply of money, coupled with a fall in the demand for paper because of growing lack of confidence in future redemption in specie, led to a rapid depreciation of new money in relation to specie. Indeed, within a year after the initial issue, the new paper pound had depreciated on the market by 40% against specie. By 1692, the government moved against this market evaluation by use of force, making the paper money compulsory legal tender for all debts at par with specie, and by granting a premium of 5% on all payment of debts to the government made in paper notes. This legal tender law had the unwanted effect of Gresham's Law, the disappearance of specie circulation in the colony. In addition, the expanding paper issues drove up prices and hampered exports from the colony. In this way, the specie shortage became a creature rather than the cause of fiat paper issues. Thus, in 1690, before the orgy of paper issues began, 200,000 pounds of silver money was available in New England. By 1711, however, with Connecticut and Rhode Island having followed suit in paper money issue, 240,000 pounds of paper money had been issued in New England, but the silver had almost disappeared from circulation. Ironically, then, Massachusetts and her sister colony's issue of paper money created, rather than solved, any scarcity of money. The new paper drove out the old specie. The consequent driving up of prices and depreciation of paper scarcely relieved any alleged money scarcity among the public. But since the paper was issued to finance government expenditures and pay public debts, the government, not the public, benefited from the fiat issue. After Massachusetts had emitted another huge issue of 500,000 pounds in 1711 to pay for another failed expedition against Quebec, not only was the remainder of the silver driven from circulation, but despite the legal tender law, the paper pound depreciated 30% against silver. Massachusetts pounds officially seven shillings to the silver ounce, had now fallen on the market to nine shillings per ounce. Depreciation proceeded in this and other colonies despite fierce governmental attempts to outlaw it, backed by fines, imprisonment, and total confiscation of property for the high crime of not accepting the paper at par. Faced with a further shortage of money due to the money issues, Massachusetts decided to press on. 
1716, it formed a government land bank and issued 100,000 pounds in notes to be loaned on real estate in the various counties of the province. Prices rose so dramatically that the tide of opinion in Massachusetts began to turn against paper, as writers pointed out that the result of issues was a doubling of prices in the past 20 years, depreciation of paper, and the disappearance of Spanish silver through the operation of Gresham's Law. From then on, Massachusetts, pressured by the British crown, tried intermittently to reduce the bills in circulation and return to a specie currency, but was hampered by its assumed obligations to honor the paper notes at par of its sister New England colonies. In 1744, another losing expedition against the French led Massachusetts to issue an enormous amount of paper money over the next several years. From 1744 to 1748, paper money in circulation expanded from 300,000 pounds to 2.5 million pounds, and the depreciation in Massachusetts was such that silver had risen on the market to 60 shillings an ounce, ten times the price at the beginning of an era of paper money in 1690. By 1740, every colony but Virginia had followed suit in fiat paper money issues, and Virginia succumbed in the late 1750s in trying to finance part of the French and Indian War against the French. Similar consequences, dramatic inflation, shortage of specie, massive depreciation despite compulsory par laws, ensued in each colony. Thus, along with Massachusetts' depreciation of 11 to 1 of its notes against specie compared to the original par, Connecticut's notes had sunk to 9 to 1, and the Carolinas at 10 to 1 in 1740, and the paper of virulently inflationist Rhode Island to 23 to 1 against specie. Even the least inflated paper, that of Pennsylvania, had suffered an appreciation of specie to 80% over par. A detailed study of the effects of paper money in New Jersey shows how it created a boom-bust economy over the colonial period. When new paper money was injected into the economy, an inflationary boom would result, to be followed by a deflationary depression when the paper money supply contracted. At the end of King George's War with France in 1748, Parliament began to pressure the colonies to retire the mass of paper money and return to a specie currency. In 1751, Great Britain prohibited all further issues of legal tender paper in New England and ordered a move toward redemption of existing issues in specie. Finally, in 1764, Parliament extended the prohibition of new issues to the remainder of the colonies and required the gradual retirement of outstanding notes. Following the lead of Parliament, the New England colonies, apart from Rhode Island, decided to resume specie payment and retire their paper notes rapidly at the current depreciated market rate. The panicky opponents of specie resumption and monetary contraction made the usual predictions in such a situation, that the result would be a virtual absence of money in New England and the consequent ruination of all trade. Instead, however, after a brief adjustment, the resumption and retirement led to a far more prosperous trade in production, the harder money and lower prices attracting an inflow of specie. In fact, with Massachusetts on specie and Rhode Island still on depreciated paper, the result was that Newport, which had been a flourishing center for West Indian imports for western Massachusetts, lost its trade to Boston and languished in the doldrums. In fact, as one student of colonial Massachusetts has pointed out, the return to specie occasioned remarkably little dislocation, recession, or price deflation. Indeed, wheat prices fell by less in Boston than in Philadelphia, which saw no such return to specie in the early 1750s. Foreign exchange rates, after the resumption of specie, were highly stable, 
and the restored species system operated after 1750 with remarkable stability during the Seven Years' War and during the dislocation of international payments in the last years before the Revolution. Not being outlawed by governmental decree, specie remained in circulation throughout the colonial period, even during the operation of paper money. Despite the inflation, booms and busts, and shortages of specie caused by paper issues, the specie system worked well overall. Quote, Here was a silver standard. In the absence of institutions of the central government intervening in the silver market, and in the absence of either a public or private central bank adjusting domestic credit or managing a reserve of specie or foreign exchange with which to stabilize exchange rates. The market kept exchange rates remarkably close to the legislated par. What is most remarkable in this context is the continuity of the specie system through the 17th and 18th centuries. Private Banknotes In contrast to government paper, private banknotes and deposits, redeemable in specie, had begun in Western Europe and Venice in the 14th century. Firms granting credit to consumers and businesses had existed in the ancient world and in medieval Europe, but these were, quote, money lenders who loaned out their own savings. Quote, banking, in the sense of lending out the savings of others, only began in England with the, quote, scriveners of the early 17th century. The scriveners were clerks who wrote contracts and bonds and were therefore in a position to learn of mercantile transactions and engage in money lending and borrowing. There were, however, no banks of deposit in England until the Civil War in the mid-17th century. Merchants had been in the habit of storing their surplus gold in the king's mint for safekeeping. That habit proved to be unfortunate, for when Charles I needed money in 1638, shortly before the outbreak of the Civil War, he confiscated the huge sum of 200,000 pounds of gold, calling it a, quote, loan from the owners. Although the merchants finally got their gold back, they were understandably shaken by the experience and forsook the mint, depositing their gold instead in the coffers of private goldsmiths, who, like the mint, were accustomed to storing the valuable metal. The warehouse receipts of the goldsmiths soon came to be used as a surrogate for the gold itself. By the end of the Civil War, in the 1660s, the goldsmiths fell prey to the temptation to print pseudo-warehouse receipts not covered by gold and lend them out. In this way, fractional reserve banking came to England. Very few private banks existed in colonial America, and they were short-lived. Most prominent was the Massachusetts Land Bank of 1740, issuing notes and lending them out on real estate. The Land Bank was launched as an inflationary alternative to government paper, which the royal governor was attempting to restrict. The Land Bank issued irredeemable notes, and fear of its unsound issue generated a competing private silver bank, which emitted notes redeemable in silver. The land bank promptly issued over 49,000 pounds in irredeemable notes, which depreciated very rapidly. In six months' time, the public was almost universally refusing to accept the bank's notes, and land bank sympathizers vainly accepting the notes. The final blow came in 1741, when Parliament, acting at the request of several Massachusetts merchants and the royal governor, outlawed both the land and the silver banks. One intriguing aspect of both the Massachusetts Land Bank and other inflationary colonial schemes is that they were advocated and lobbied for by some of the wealthiest merchants and land speculators in the respective colonies. Debtors benefit from inflation and creditors lose. Realizing this fact, older historians assumed that the debtors were largely poor agrarians and creditors were wealthy merchants, and that therefore the former were the main sponsors of inflationary nostrums. But, of course, 
there are no rigid, quote, classes of debtors and creditors. Indeed, wealthy merchants and land speculators are often the heaviest debtors. Later historians have demonstrated that members of the latter group were the major sponsors of inflationary paper money in the colonies. Revolutionary War Finance To finance the Revolutionary War, which broke out in 1775, the Continental Congress early hit on the device of issuing fiat paper money. The leader in the drive for paper money was Governor Morris, the highly conservative young scion of the New York landed aristocracy. There was no pledge to redeem the paper, even in the future, but it was supposed to be retired in seven years by taxes levied pro rata by the separate states. Thus, a heavy future tax burden was supposed to be added to the inflation brought about by the new paper money. The retirement pledge, however, was soon forgotten, as Congress, enchanted by this new, seemingly costless form of revenue, escalated its emissions of fiat paper. As a historian has phrased it, quote, such was the beginning of the federal trough, one of America's most imperishable institutions. The total money supply of the United States at the beginning of the revolution has been estimated at $12 million. Congress launched its first paper issue of $2 million in late June 1775, and before the notes were printed, it had already concluded that another $1 million was needed. Before the end of the year, a full $6 million in paper issues was issued or authorized, a dramatic increase of 50% in the money supply in one year. The issue of this fiat, quote, continental paper rapidly escalated over the next few years. Congress issued $6 million in 1775, $19 million in 1776, $13 million in 1777, $64 million in 1778, and $125 million in 1779. This was a total issue of over $225 million in five years superimposed upon a pre-existing money supply of $12 million. The result was, as could be expected, a rapid price inflation in terms of the paper notes and a corollary accelerating depreciation of the paper in terms of specie. Thus, at the end of 1776, the Continentals were worth $1 to $1.25 in specie. By the fall of the following year, its value had fallen to 3 to 1. By December 1778, the value was 6.8 to 1. And by December 1779, to the negligible 42 to 1. By the spring of 1781, the Continentals were virtually worthless, exchanging on the market at 168 paper dollars to $1 in specie. This collapse of the continental currency gave rise to the phrase, not worth a continental. To top this calamity, several states issued their own paper money, and each depreciated at varying rates. Virginia and the Carolinas led the inflationary move, and by the end of the war, state issues added a total of 210 million depreciated dollars to the nation's currency. In an attempt to stem the inflation and depreciation, various states levied maximum price controls and compulsory par laws. The result was only to create shortages and impose hardships on large sections of the public. Thus, soldiers were paid in Continentals, but farmers understandably refused to accept payment in paper money despite legal coercion. The Continental Army then moved to, quote, impress food and other supplies, seizing the supplies and forcing the farmers and shopkeepers to accept depreciated paper in return. By 1779, with Continental paper virtually worthless, the Continental Army stepped up its impressments, quote, paying for them in newly issued paper tickets, or, quote, certificates, issued by the Army Quartermaster and Commissary Departments.
The states followed suit with their own massive certificate issues. It understandably took little time for these certificates, federal and state, to depreciate in value to nothing. By the end of the war, federal certificate issues alone totaled $200 million. The one redeeming feature of this monetary calamity was that the federal and state governments at least allowed these paper issues to sink into worthlessness without insisting the taxpayers shoulder another grave burden by being forced to redeem these issues, specie, at par, or even to redeem them at all. Continentals were not redeemed at all, and state paper was only redeemed at depreciating rates, some at the greatly depreciated market value. By the end of the war, all the wartime state paper had been withdrawn from circulation. Unfortunately, the same policy was not applied to another important device that Congress turned to after its continental paper had become almost worthless in 1779, loan certificates. Technically, loan certificates were public debt, but they were scarcely genuine loans. They were simply notes issued by the government to pay for supplies and accepted by the merchants because the government would not pay anything else. Hence, the loan certificates became a form of currency, and rapidly depreciated. As early as the end of 1779, they had depreciated to 24 to 1 in specie. By the end of the war, $600 million of loan certificates had been issued. Some of the later loan certificate issues were liquidated at a depreciated rate, but the bulk remained after the war to become the substantial core of the permanent, peacetime federal debt. The mass of federal and state debt could have depreciated and passed out of existence by the end of the war, but the process was stopped and reversed by Robert Morris, wealthy Philadelphia merchant and virtual economic and financial czar of the Continental Congress in the last years of the war. Morris, leader of the nationalist forces in American politics, moved to make the depreciated federal debt ultimately redeemable in par and also agitated for federal assumption of the various state debts. The reason for this was twofold. A. To confer a vast subsidy on speculators who had purchased the public debt at highly depreciated values by paying interest and principal at par in specie. And B. To build up agitation for taxing power in the Congress, which the Articles of Confederation refused to allow to the federal government. The decentralist policy of the states raising taxes or issuing new paper money to pay off the pro rata federal debt, as well as their own, was thwarted by the adoption of the Constitution, which brought about the victory of the nationalist program, led by Morris's youthful disciple and former aide, Alexander Hamilton. The Bank of North America Robert Morris's nationalist vision was not confined to a strong central government, the power of the federal government to tax, and a massive public debt fastened permanently upon the taxpayers. Shortly after he assumed total economic power in Congress in the spring of 1781, Morris introduced a bill to create the first commercial bank, as well as the first central bank, in the history of the New Republic. This bank, headed by Morris himself, the Bank of North America, was not only the first fractional reserve commercial bank in the U.S., it was to be a privately owned central bank, modeled after the Bank of England. The money system was to be grounded upon specie, but with a controlled monetary inflation pyramiding an expansion of money and credit upon a reserve of specie. The Bank of North America, which quickly received a federal charter and opened its doors at the beginning of 1782, received the privilege from the government of its notes being receivable in all duties and taxes to all governments at par with specie. In addition, no other banks were to be permitted to operate in the country. In return for its monopoly license to issue paper money, 
the bank would graciously lend most of its newly created money to the federal government to purchase public debt and be reimbursed by the hapless taxpayer. The Bank of North America was made the depository for all congressional funds. The first central bank in America rapidly loaned $1.2 million to the Congress, headed also by Robert Morris. Despite Robert Morris's power and influence and the monopoly privileges conferred upon his bank, it was perceived in the market that the bank's notes were being inflated compared with specie. Despite the nominal redeemability of the Bank of North America's notes in specie, the market's lack of confidence in the inflated notes led to their depreciation outside its home base in Philadelphia. The bank even tried to shore up the value of the notes by hiring people to urge redeemers of its notes not to ruin everything by insisting upon specie, a move scarcely calculated to improve ultimate confidence in the bank. After a year of operation, however, Morris, his political power slipping after the end of the war, moved quickly to end his bank's role as a central bank and to shift it to the status of a private commercial bank chartered by the state of Pennsylvania. By the end of 1783, all of the federal government's stock in the Bank of North America, which had the previous year amounted to five-eighths of its capital, had been sold by Morris into private hands, and all U.S. government debt to the bank had been repaid. The first experiment with a central bank in the United States had ended. At the end of the Revolutionary War, the contraction of the swollen mass of paper money, combined with the resumption of imports from Great Britain, combined to cut prices by more than half in a few years. Vain attempts by seven state governments in the mid-1780s to cure the, quote, shortage of money and reinflate prices were a complete failure. Part of the reason for the state paper issues was a frantic attempt to pay the wartime public debt, state and pro rata federal, without resorting to crippling burdens of taxation. The increased paper issues merely added to the, quote, shortage by stimulating the export of specie and the import of commodities from abroad. Once again, Gresham's law was at work. State paper issues, despite compulsory par laws, merely depreciated rapidly and aggravated the shortage of specie. A historian discusses what happened to the paper issues of North Carolina. Quote, in 1787 to 1788, the specie value of the paper had shrunk by more than 50%. Coin vanished, and since the paper had practically no value outside the state, merchants could not use it to pay debts they owed abroad. Hence, they suffered severe losses when they had to accept it at inflated values in the settlement of local debts. North Carolina's performance warned merchants anew of the menace of depreciating paper money, which they were forced to receive at par from their debtors, but which they could not pass on to their creditors. End quote. Neither was the situation helped by the expansion of banking following the launching of the Bank of North America in 1782. The Bank of New York and the Massachusetts Bank of Boston followed two years later, with each institution enjoying a monopoly of banking in its region. Their expansion of banknotes and deposits helped to drive out specie, and in the following year, the expansion was succeeded by a contraction of credit, which aggravated the problems of recession. The United States Bimetallic Coinage Since the Spanish silver dollar was the major coin circulating in North America during the colonial and confederation periods, it was generally agreed that the quote dollar would be the basic currency unit of the new United States of America. Article 1, Section 8 of the new Constitution gave Congress the power, quote, to coin money, regulate the value thereof, and of foreign coin. 
The power was exclusive because the state governments were prohibited in Article 1, Section 10, from coining money, emitting paper money, or making anything but gold and silver coin legal tender in payment of debts. Evidently, the Founding Fathers were mindful of the bleak record of colonial and revolutionary paper issues and provincial juggling of the weights and denominations of coin. In accordance with this power, Congress passed the Coinage Act of 1792 on the recommendation of Secretary of Treasury Alexander Hamilton's Report on the Establishment of a Mint of the year before. The Coinage Act established a bimetallic dollar standard for the United States. The dollar was defined as both a weight of 371.25 grains of pure silver and or a weight of 24.75 grains of pure gold, a fixed ratio of 15 grains of silver to 1 grain of gold. Anyone could bring gold and silver bullion to the mint to be coined, and silver and gold coins were both to be legal tender at this fixed ratio of 15 to 1. The basic silver coin was to be the silver dollar, and the basic gold coin, the $10 eagle, containing 247.5 grains of pure gold. The 15 to 1 fixed bimetallic ratio almost precisely corresponded to the market gold-silver ratio of the early 1790s. But of course, the tragedy of any bimetallic standard is that the fixed mint ratio must always come a cropper against inevitably changing market ratios, and that Gresham's Law will then come inexorably into effect. Thus, Hamilton's expressed desire to keep both metals in circulation in order to increase the supply of money was doomed to failure. Unfortunately for the bimetallic goal, the 1780s saw the beginning of a steady decline in the ratio of the market values of silver to gold, largely due to the massive increases over the next three decades of silver production from the mines of Mexico. The result was that the market ratio fell to 15.5 to 1 by the 1790s, and after 1805 fell to approximately 15.75 to 1. The latter figure was enough of a gap between the market and mint ratios to set Gresham's Law into operation, so that by 1810, gold coins began to disappear from the United States, and silver coins began to flood in. The fixed government ratio now significantly overvalued silver and undervalued gold, so it paid people to bring in silver to exchange for gold, melt the gold coins into bullion, and ship it abroad. From 1810 until 1834, only silver coin, domestic and foreign, circulated in the United States. Originally, Congress provided in 1793 that all foreign coins circulating in the United States be legal tender. Indeed, foreign coins have been estimated to form 80% of American domestic species circulation in 1800. Most of the foreign coins were Spanish silver, and while the legal tender privilege was progressively canceled for various foreign coins by 1827, Spanish silver coins continued as legal tender and to predominate in circulation. Spanish dollars, however, soon began to be heavier in weight by 1-5% to over their American equivalents, even though they circulated at face value here, and so the American mint ratio overvalued American more than Spanish dollars. As a result, the Spanish silver dollars were re-exported, leaving American silver dollars in circulation. On the other hand, fractional Spanish silver coins, half dollars, quarter dollars, dimes, and half dimes, were considerably overvalued in the U.S. since they circulated at face value and yet were far lighter weight. Gresham's Law again came into play, and the result was that American silver fractional coins were exported and disappeared, leaving Spanish silver fractional coins as the major currency. 
To make matters still more complicated, American silver dollars, though lighter weight than the Spanish, circulated equally by name in the West Indies. As a result, American silver dollars were exported to the Caribbean. Thus, by the complex workings of Gresham's law, the United States was left, especially after 1820, with no gold coins and only Spanish fractional silver coin in circulation. The First Bank of the United States, 1791 to 1811. A linchpin of the Hamiltonian financial program was a central bank, the First Bank of the United States, replacing the abortive Bank of North America experiment. Hamilton's Report on a National Bank of December 1790 urged such a bank to be owned privately with the government owning one-fifth of the shares. Hamilton argued that the alleged, quote, scarcity of specie currency needed to be overcome by infusions of paper, and the new bank was to issue such paper to be invested in the assumed federal debt and in subsidy to manufacturers. The banknotes were to be legally redeemable in specie on demand and its notes were to be kept at par with specie by the federal government's accepting its notes in taxes, giving it a quasi-legal tender status. Also, the federal government would confer upon the bank the prestige of being the depository for its public funds. In accordance with Hamilton's wishes, Congress quickly established the First Bank of the United States in February 1791. The charter of the bank was for 20 years, and it was assured a monopoly of the privilege of having a national charter during that period. In a significant gesture of continuity with the Bank of North America, the latter's longtime Bank of North America president and former partner of Robert Morris, Thomas Willing of Philadelphia, was made president of the new Bank of the United States. The Bank of the United States promptly fulfilled its inflationary potential by issuing millions of dollars in paper money and demand deposits, pyramiding on top of $2 million in specie. The Bank of the United States invested heavily in loans to the United States government. In addition to $2 million invested in the assumption of pre-existing long-term debt assumed by the new federal government, the Bank of the United States engaged in massive temporary lending to the government, which reached $6.2 million in 1796. The result of the outpouring of credit and paper money by the new Bank of the United States was an inflationary rise in prices. Thus, wholesale prices rose from an index of 85 in 1791 to a peak of 146 in 1796, an increase of 72%. In addition, speculation boomed in government securities and real estate values were driven upward. Pyramiding on top of the Bank of the United States expansion and aggravating the paper money expansion and the inflation was a flood of newly created commercial banks. Whereas there were only three commercial banks before the founding of the United States, and only four by the establishment of the Bank of the United States, eight new banks were founded shortly thereafter, in 1791 and 1792, and ten more by 1796. Thus, the Bank of the United States and its monetary expansion spurred the creation of 18 new banks in five years. The establishment of the Bank of the United States precipitated a grave constitutional argument, the Jeffersonians arguing that the Constitution gave the federal government no power to establish a bank. Hamilton, in turn, paved the way for virtually unlimited expansion of federal power by maintaining that the Constitution, quote, implied a grant of power for carrying out vague national goals. The Hamiltonian interpretation won out officially in the decision of Supreme Court Justice John Marshall in McCullough v. Maryland in 1819. Despite the Jeffersonian hostility to commercial and central banks, The Democratic Republicans, under the control of quasi-federalist moderates rather than militant old Republicans, 
made no move to repeal the charter of the Bank of the United States before its expiration in 1811 and happily multiplied the number of state banks and bank credit in the next two decades. Thus, in 1800, there were 28 state banks. By 1811, the number had escalated to 117, a fourfold increase. In 1804, there were 64 state banks, of which we have data on 13 or 20% of the banks. These reported banks had $0.98 million in specie, as against notes and demand deposits outstanding of $2.82 million, a reserve ratio of 0.35, or a notes plus deposits pyramiding on top of specie of 2.88 to 1. By 1811, 26% of the 117 banks reported a total of $2.57 million, but the two-and-a-half-fold increase in specie was more than matched by an emission of $10.95 million of notes and deposits, a nearly four-fold increase. This constituted a pyramiding of 4.26 to 1 on top of specie, or a reserve ratio of these banks of 0.23. As for the Bank of the United States, which acted in conjunction with the federal government and with the state banks, in January 1811, it had specie assets of $5.01 million and notes and deposits outstanding of $12.87 million, a pyramid ratio of 2.57 to 1, or a reserve ratio of 0.39. Finally, when the time for rechartering the Bank of the United States came in 1811, the recharter bill was defeated by one vote each in the House and Senate. Recharter was fought for by the Madison administration, aided by nearly all the Federalists in Congress, but was narrowly defeated by the bulk of the Democratic Republicans, including the hard-money old Republican forces. In view of the widely held misconception among historians that central banks serve and are looked upon as restraints upon state or private bank inflation, it is instructive to note that the major forces in favor of Recharter were merchants, chambers of commerce, and most of the state banks. Merchants found that the bank had expended credit at cheap rates and had eased the external complaint about a, quote, scarcity of money. Even more suggestive is the support of the state banks, which hailed the bank as, quote, advantageous and worried about the contraction of credit if the bank were forced to liquidate. The Bank of New York, which had been founded by Alexander Hamilton, in fact lauded the Bank of the United States because it had been able, quote, in case of any sudden pressure upon the merchants, to step forward to their aid in a degree which the state institutions were unable to do. The War of 1812 and its Aftermath War has generally had grave and fateful consequences for the American monetary and financial system. We have seen that the Revolutionary War occasioned a mass of depreciated fiat paper, worthless continentals, a huge public debt, and the beginnings of central banking in the Bank of North America. The Hamiltonian financial system, and even the Constitution itself, was in large part shaped by the Federalist desire to fund the federal and state public debt via federal taxation, and a major reason for the establishment of the First Bank of the United States was to contribute to the funding of the newly assumed federal debt. The constitutional prohibition against state paper money and the implicit rebuff to all fiat paper were certainly influenced by the Revolutionary War experience. The War of 1812 to 1815 had momentous consequences for the monetary system. An enormous expansion in the number of banks and in bank notes and deposits was spurred by the dictates of war finance. New England banks were more conservative than in other regions, and the region was strongly opposed to the war with England, so little public debt was purchased in New England. 
Yet imported goods, textile manufacturers, and munitions had to be purchased in that region by the federal government. The government therefore encouraged the formation of new and recklessly inflationary banks in the mid-Atlantic, southern, and western states, which printed huge quantities of new notes to purchase government bonds. The federal government thereupon used these notes to purchase manufactured goods in New England. Thus, from 1811 to 1815, the number of banks in the country increased from 117 to 212. In addition, there had sprung up 35 private unincorporated banks, which were illegal in most states but were allowed to function under war conditions. Specie in the 30 reporting banks, 26% of the total number of banks of 1811, amounted to $2.57 million in 1811. This figure had risen to $5.4 million in the 98 reporting banks in 1815, or 40% of the total. Notes and deposits, on the other hand, were $10.95 million in 1811 and had increased to $31.6 million in 1815 among the reporting banks. If we make the heroic assumption that we can estimate the money supply for the country by multiplying by the proportion of unreported banks, and we then add in the Bank of the United States totals for 1811, specie in all banks would total $14.9 million in 1811 and $13.5 million in 1815, or a 9.4% decrease. On the other hand, total banknotes and deposits aggregated to $42.2 million in 1811 and $79 million four years later, so that an increase of 87.2% pyramided on top of a 9.4% decline in specie. If we factor in the Bank of the United States, then, the bank pyramid ratio was 3.7 to 1, and the reserve ratio 0 0.27 in 1811, while the pyramid ratio four years later was 5.85 to 1, and the reserve ratio 0 0.17. But the aggregates scarcely tell the whole story since, as we have seen, the expansion took place solely outside of New England, while New England banks continued on their relatively sound basis and did not inflate their credit. The record expansion of the number of banks was in Pennsylvania, which incorporated no less than 41 new banks in the month of March 1814, contrasting to only four banks which had existed in that state, all in Philadelphia, until that date. It is instructive to compare the pyramid ratios of banks in various reporting states in 1815 to only 1.96 to 1 in Massachusetts, 2.7 to 1 in New Hampshire, and 2.42 to 1 in Rhode Island, as contrasted to 19.2 to 1 in Pennsylvania, 18.46 to 1 in South Carolina, and 18.73 to 1 in Virginia. This monetary situation meant that the United States government was paying for New England manufactured goods with a mass of inflated bank paper outside the region. Soon, as the New England banks called upon the other banks to redeem their notes in specie, the mass of inflating banks faced imminent insolvency. It was at this point that a fateful decision was made by the U.S. government and concurred in by the governments of the states outside New England. As the banks all faced failure, the governments, in August 1814, permitted all of them to suspend specie payments, that is, to stop all redemption of notes and deposits in gold or silver, and yet to continue in operation. In short, in one of the most flagrant violations of property rights in American history, the banks were permitted to waive their contractual obligations to pay in specie, while they themselves could expand their loans and operations and force their own debtors to repay their loans as usual. Indeed, 
The number of banks and bank credit expanded rapidly during 1815 as a result of this governmental carte blanche. It was precisely during 1815 when virtually all the private banks sprang up, the number of banks increasing in one year from 208 to 246. Reporting banks increased their pyramid ratios from 3.17 to 1 in 1814 to 5.85 to 1 the following year, a drop of reserve ratios from 0.32. To 0.17. Thus, if we measure bank expansion by pyramiding in reserve ratios, we see that a major inflationary impetus during the War of 1812 came during the year 1815 after specie payments had been suspended throughout the country by government action. Historians dedicated to the notion that central banks restrain state or private bank inflation have placed the blame for the multiplicity of banks and bank credit inflation during the War of 1812 on the absence of a central bank. But as we have seen, both the number of banks and bank credit grew apace during the period of the first bank of the United States, pyramiding on top of the latter's expansion, and would continue to do so under the second bank, and, for that matter, the Federal Reserve System in later years. And the federal government, not the state banks themselves, is largely to blame for encouraging new, inflated banks to monetize the war debt. Then, in particular, it allowed them to suspend specie payment in August 1814. And to continue that suspension for two years after the war was over, until February 1817. Thus, for two and a half years, banks were permitted to operate and expand while issuing what was tantamount to fiat paper and bank deposits. Another neglected responsibility of the U.S. government for the wartime inflation was its massive issue of treasury notes to help finance the war effort. While this treasury paper was interest bearing and was redeemable in specie in one year, The cumulative amount outstanding functioned as money, as it was used in transactions among the public and was also employed as reserves or, quote, high powered money by the expanding banks. The fact that the government received the Treasury notes for all debts and taxes gave the notes a quasi legal tender status. Most of the Treasury notes were issued in 1814 and 1815, when their outstanding total reached $10.65 million and $15.46 million, respectively. Not only did the Treasury notes fuel the bank inflation, but their quasi legal tender status brought Gresham's Law into operation, and specie flowed out of the banks and public circulation outside of New England and into New England and out of the country. The expansion of bank money and Treasury notes during the war drove up prices in the United States. Wholesale price increases from 1811 to 1815 averaged 35%. With different cities experiencing a price inflation ranging from 28% to 55%. Since foreign trade was cut off by the war, prices of imported commodities rose far more, averaging 70%. But more important than this inflation, and at least as important as the wreckage of the monetary system during and after the war, was the precedent that the two and a half year long suspension of specie payments set for the banking system for the future. From then on, every time there was a banking crisis brought on by inflationary expansion and demands for redemption in specie, state and federal governments looked the other way and permitted general suspension of specie payments while bank operations continued to flourish. It thus became clear to the banks that in a general crisis they would not be required to meet the ordinary obligations of contract law or of respect for property rights, so their inflationary expansion was permanently encouraged by this massive failure of government to fulfill its obligation to enforce contracts and defend the rights of property. Suspensions of specie payments informally or officially permeated the economy outside of New England during the Panic of 
occurred everywhere outside of New England in 1837 and in all states south and west of New Jersey in 1839. A general suspension of specie payments occurred throughout the country once again in the Panic of 1857. It is important to realize then, in evaluating the American banking system before the Civil War, that even in the later years, when there was no central bank, the system was not, quote, free in any proper economic sense. Free banking can only refer to a system in which banks are treated as any other business, and that therefore failure to obey contractual obligations, in this case, prompt redemption of notes and deposits in specie, must incur immediate insolvency and liquidation. Burdened by the tradition of allowing general suspensions that arose in the United States in 1814, the pre-Civil War banking system, despite strong elements of competition when not saddled with a central bank, must rather be termed in the phrase of one economist as, quote, decentralization without freedom. From the 1814 to 1817 experience on, the notes of state banks circulated at varying rates of depreciation, depending on public expectations of how long they would be able to keep redeeming their obligations in specie. These expectations, in turn, were heavily influenced by the amount of notes and deposits issued by the bank, as compared with the amount of specie held in its vaults. In that era of poor communications and high transportation costs, the tendency for a banknote was to depreciate in proportion to its distance from the home office. One effective, if time-consuming, method of enforcing redemption on nominally specie-paying banks was the emergence of a class of professional, quote, money brokers. These brokers would buy up a mass of depreciated notes of nominally specie-paying banks and then travel to the home office of the bank to demand redemption in specie. Merchants, money brokers, bankers, and the general public were aided in evaluating the various state bank notes by the development of monthly journals known as, quote, banknote detectors. These detectors were published by money brokers and periodically evaluated the market rate of various banknotes in relation to specie. Quote, wildcat banks were so named because in that age of poor transportation, banks hoping to inflate and not worry about redemption attempted to locate in wildcat country where money brokers would find it difficult to travel. It should be noted that if it were not for periodic suspension, there would have been no room for wildcat banks or for varying degrees of lack of confidence in the genuineness of specie redemption at any given time. It can be imagined that the advent of the money broker was not precisely welcomed in the town of an errant bank, and it was easy for the townspeople to blame the resulting collapse of bank credit on the sinister stranger rather than on the friendly neighborhood banker. During the Panic of 1819, when banks collapsed after an inflationary boom lasting until 1817, obstacles and intimidation were often the lot of those who attempted to press the banks to fulfill their contractual obligation to pay in specie. Thus, Maryland and Pennsylvania, during the Panic of 1819, engaged in almost bizarre inconsistency in this area. Maryland, on February 15, 1819, enacted a law, quote, to compel banks to pay specie for their notes or forfeit their charters. Yet two days after this seemingly tough action, it passed another law, relieving banks of any obligation to redeem notes held by money brokers, quote, the major force ensuring the people of this state from the evil arising from the demands made on the banks of this state for gold and silver by brokers. Pennsylvania followed suit a month later. In this way, these states could claim to maintain the virtue of enforcing contract and property rights while moving to prevent the most effective method of ensuring such enforcement. During the 1814-1817 general suspension, note holders who sued for specie payments seldom gained satisfaction in the courts. Thus, Isaac Bronson, a prominent Connecticut banker in a specie-paying region, 
sued various New York banks for payment of notes in specie. He failed to get satisfaction, and for his pains received only abuse in the New York press as an agent of, quote, misery and ruin. The banks south of Virginia largely went off specie payment during the Panic of 1819, and in Georgia at least general suspension continued almost continuously to the 1830s. One customer complained during 1819 that in order to collect in specie from the largely state-owned Bank of Darien, Georgia, he was forced to swear before a justice of the peace in the bank that each and every note he presented to the bank was his own and that he was not a money broker or an agent for anyone else. He was forced to swear to the oath in the presence of at least five bank directors and the bank's cashier, and he was forced to pay a fee of $1.36 on each note in order to acquire specie on demand. Two years later, when a note holder demanded $30,000 in specie at the Planters Bank of Georgia, he was told he would be paid in pennies only, while another customer was forced to accept pennies handed out to him at a rate of $60 a day. During the panic, North Carolina and Maryland in particular moved against the money brokers in a vain attempt to prop up the depreciated notes of their state's banks. In North Carolina, banks were not penalized by the legislature for suspending specie payments to, quote, brokers, while maintaining them to others. Backed by government, the three leading banks of the state met and agreed in June 1819 not to pay specie to brokers or their agents. Their notes immediately fell to a 15% discount outside the state. However, the banks continued to require, ignoring the inconsistency, that their own debtors pay them at par in specie. Maryland, during the same year, moved to require a license of $500 per year for money brokers, in addition to an enormous $20,000 bond to establish the business. Maryland tried to bolster the defense of banks and the attack on brokers by passing a compulsory par law in 1819, prohibiting the exchange of specie for Maryland banknotes at less than par. The law was readily evaded, however, with the penalty merely adding to the discount as compensation for the added risk. Specie, furthermore, was driven out of the state by the operation of Gresham's Law. In Kentucky, Tennessee, and Missouri, stay laws were passed, requiring creditors to accept depreciated and inconvertible bank paper in payment of debts, else suffer a stay of execution of the debt. In this way, quasi-legal tender status was conferred on the paper. Many states permitted banks to suspend specie payment, and four western states, Tennessee, Kentucky, Missouri, and Illinois, established state-owned banks to try to overcome the Depression by issuing large issues of inconvertible paper money. In all states trying to prop up inconvertible bank paper, a quasi-legal status was also conferred on the paper by agreeing to receive the notes in taxes or debts due to the state. The result of all the inconvertible paper schemes was rapid and massive depreciation, disappearance of specie, succeeded by speedy liquidation of the new state-owned banks. An amusing footnote on the problem of banks being protected against their contractual obligations to pay in specie occurred in the course of correspondence between one of the earliest economists of America, the young Philadelphia state senator Condi Rigaud, and the eminent English economist David Ricardo. Ricardo had evidently been bewildered by Rigaud's statement that banks technically required to pay in specie often were not called upon to do so. On April 18, 1821, Rigaud replied, explaining the power of banks in the United States, quote, You state in your letter that you find it difficult to comprehend why persons who had a right to demand coin from the banks in payment of their notes so long forbore to exercise it. This no doubt appears paradoxical to one who resides in a country where an act of parliament was necessary to protect the bank, but the difficulty is easily solved. 
The whole of our population are either stockholders of banks or in debt to them. It is not the interest of the first to press the banks, and the rest are afraid. This is the whole secret. An independent man, who is neither a stockholder or debtor, who would have ventured to compel the banks to do justice, would have been persecuted as an enemy of society. The Second Bank of the United States, 1816-1833 The United States emerged from the War of 1812 in a chaotic monetary state, with banks multiplying and inflating ad lib, checked only by the varying rates of depreciation of their notes. With banks freed from redeeming their obligations in specie, the number of incorporated banks increased during 1816 from 212 to 232. Clearly, the nation could not continue indefinitely with the issue of fiat money in the hands of discordant sets of individual banks. It was apparent that there were two ways out of the problem. One was the hard money path, which was advocated by the old Republicans and, for their own purposes, the Federalists. The federal and state governments would have sternly compelled the rollicking banks to redeem promptly in specie and, when most of the banks outside of New England could not, to force them to liquidate. In that way, the mass of depreciated and inflated notes and deposits would have been swiftly liquidated, and specie would have poured back out of hordes and into the country to supply a circulating medium. The inflationary experience would have been over. Instead, the Democratic-Republican establishment in 1816 turned to the old Federalist path, a new central bank, the Second Bank of the United States. Modeled closely after the first bank, the Second Bank, a private corporation with one-fifth of the shares owned by the federal government, was to create a national paper currency, purchase a large chunk of the public debt, and receive deposits of treasury funds. The Second Bank of the United States notes and deposits were to be redeemable in specie, and they were given quasi-legal tender status by the federal government's receiving them in payment of taxes. That the purpose of establishing the Second Bank of the United States was to support the state banks in their inflationary course, rather than crack down on them, is seen by the shameful deal that the Second Bank made with the state banks as soon as it opened its doors in January 1817. At the same time that it was establishing a new bank in April 1816, Congress passed a resolution of Daniel Webster, at that time a Federalist champion of hard money, requiring that after February 20, 1817, the United States should accept as payments for debts or taxes only specie, treasury notes, Bank of the United States notes, or state bank notes redeemable in specie on demand. In short, no irredeemable state bank notes would be accepted after that date. Instead of using the opportunity to compel the banks to redeem, however, the Second Bank of the United States, in a meeting with representatives from the leading urban banks, excluding Boston, agreed to issue $6 million worth of credit in New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Virginia before insisting on specie payments from debts due to it from the state banks. In return for that agreed-upon massive inflation, the state banks graciously consented to resume specie payments. Moreover, the second bank and the state banks agreed to mutually support each other in any emergency, which of course meant in practice that the far stronger Bank of the United States was committed to the propping up of the weaker state banks. The second bank of the United States was pushed through Congress by the Madison administration, and particularly by Secretary of the Treasury Alexander J. Dallas, whose appointment was lobbied for for that purpose. Dallas, a wealthy Philadelphia lawyer, was a close friend, counsel, and financial associate of Philadelphia merchant and banker Stephen Gerard, 
reputedly one of the two wealthiest men in the country. Toward the end of its term, Gerard was the largest stockholder of the First Bank of the United States, and during the War of 1812, Gerard became a very heavy investor in the war debt of the federal government. Both as a prospective large stockholder and as a way to unload his public debt, Gerard began to agitate for a new bank of the United States. Dallas's appointment as Secretary of Treasury in 1814 was successfully engineered by Dallas and his close friend, wealthy New York merchant and fur trader John Jacob Astor, also a heavy investor in war debt. When the Second Bank of the United States was established, Stephen Gerard purchased the $3 million of the $28 million that remained unsubscribed, and he and Dallas managed to secure for the post of president of the new bank their good friend William Jones, former Philadelphia merchant. Much of the opposition to the founding of the Bank of the United States seems keenly prophetic. Thus, Senator William H. Wells, Federalist from Delaware, in arguing against the bank bill, said that it was, quote, ostensibly for the purpose of correcting the diseased state of our paper currency by restraining and curtailing the overissue of bank paper. And yet it came prepared to inflict upon us the same evil, being itself nothing more than simply a paper-making machine, end quote. In fact, the result of the deal with the state banks was that their resumption of specie payments after 1817 was more nominal than real, thereby setting the stage for the widespread suspension of the 1819 to 1821 depression. As Bray Hammond writes, quote, Specie payments were resumed with substantial shortcomings. Apparently the situation was better than it had been, and a pretense was maintained for its being better than it was. But redemption was not certain and universal. There was still a premium on specie and still a discount on banknotes, with considerable variation in both from place to place. Three years later, February 1820, Secretary of the Treasury Crawford reported to Congress that during the greater part of the time that had elapsed since the resumption of specie payments, the convertibility of banknotes into specie had been nominal rather than real in the largest portion of the Union. End quote. One problem is that the Bank of the United States lacked the courage to insist on payment of its notes from the state banks. As a result, state banks had large balances piled up against them at the Bank of the United States, totaling over $2.4 million during 1817 and 1818, remaining on the books as virtual interest-free loans. As Cotterell points out, quote, So many influential people were interested in the state banks as stockholders that it was not advisable to give offense by demanding payment in specie, and borrowers were anxious to keep the banks in the humor to lend, end quote. When the Bank of the United States did try to collect on state bank notes in specie, Bank President Jones reported, quote, the banks, our debtors, plead inability, require unreasonable indulgence, or treat our reiterated claims and expostulations with settled indifference. End quote. From its inception, the second bank launched a spectacular inflation of money and credit. Lax about insisting on the required payment of its capital and specie, the bank failed to raise the $7 million legally supposed to have been subscribed in specie. Instead, during 1817 and 1818, its specie held never rose above $2.5 million. At the peak of its initial expansion, in July 1818, the Bank of the United States specie totaled $2.36 million, and its aggregate notes and deposits totaled $21.8 million. Thus, in a scant year and a half of operation, the Second Bank of the United States had added a net of $19.2 million to the nation's money supply, for a pyramid ratio of 9.24 or a reserve ratio of 0 
Outright fraud abounded at the Second Bank of the United States, especially at the Philadelphia and Baltimore branches, particularly the latter. It is no accident that three-fifths of all of the bank's loans were made at these two branches. Also, the bank's attempt to provide a uniform currency throughout the nation floundered on the fact that the western and southern branches could inflate credit and banknotes, and that the inflated notes would wend their way to the more conservative branches in New York and Boston, which would be obligated to redeem the inflated notes at par. In this way, the conservative branches were stripped of specie, while the western branches could continue to inflate unchecked. The expansionary operations of the Second Bank of the United States, coupled with its laxity toward insisting on specie payment by the state banks, impelled a further inflationary expansion of state banks on top of the spectacular enlargement of the central bank. Thus, the number of incorporated state banks rose from 232 in 1816 to 338 in 1818. Kentucky alone chartered 40 new banks in the 1817 to 1818 legislative session. The estimated total money supply in the nation rose from $67.3 million in 1816 to $94.7 million in 1818, a rise of 40.7% in two years. Most of this increase was supplied by the Bank of the United States. The huge expansion of money and credit impelled a full-scale inflationary boom throughout the country. Import prices had fallen in 1815 with the renewal of foreign trade after the war, but domestic prices were another story. Thus, the index of export staples in Charleston rose from 102 in 1815 to 160 in 1818. The prices of Louisiana staples at New Orleans rose from 178 to 224 in the same period. Other parts of the economy boomed. Exports rose from $81 million in 1815 to a peak of $116 million in 1818. Prices rose greatly in real estate, land, farm improvement projects, and slaves, much of it fueled by the use of bank credit for speculation in urban and rural real estate. There was a boom in turnpike construction, furthered by vast federal expenditures on turnpikes. Freight rates rose on steamboats, and shipbuilding shared in the general prosperity. Also, general boom conditions expanded stock trading so rapidly that traders, who had been buying and selling stocks on the curbs on Wall Street for nearly a century, found it necessary to open the first indoor stock exchange in the country, the New York Stock Exchange, in March 1817. Also, investment banking began in the United States during this boom period. Starting in July 1818, the government and the Second Bank began to see what dire straits they were in. The enormous inflation of money and credit, aggravated by the massive fraud, had put the Bank of the United States in real danger of going under and illegally failing to sustain specie payments. Over the next year, the bank began a series of heroic contractions, forced curtailment of loans, contractions of credit in the South and West, refusal to provide uniform national currency by redeeming its shaky branch notes at par, and seriously enforcing the requirement that its debtor banks redeem in specie. In addition, it purchased millions of dollars of specie from abroad. These heroic actions, along with the ouster of bank president William Jones, managed to save the Bank of the United States but the massive contraction of money and credit swiftly brought the United States its first widespread economic and financial depression. The first nationwide, quote, boom-bust cycle had arrived in the United States. Impelled by rapid and massive inflation, quickly succeeded by contraction of money and credit. Banks failed, and private banks curtailed their credits and liabilities and suspended specie payments in most parts of the country. 
Contraction of money and credit by the Bank of the United States was almost unbelievable. Total notes and deposits falling from $21.9 million in June 1818 to $11.5 million only a year later. The money supply contributed by the Bank of the United States was thereby contracted by no less than 47.2% in one year. The number of incorporated banks at first remained the same and then fell rapidly from 1819 to 1822 falling from 341 in mid-1819 to 267 three years later. Total notes and deposits of state banks fell from an estimated $72 million in mid-1818 to $62.7 million a year later, a drop of 14% in one year. If we add in the fact that the U.S. Treasury contracted total Treasury notes from $8.81 million to zero during this period, we get the following estimated total money supply. In 1818, $103.5 million. In 1819, $74.2 million. A contraction in one year of 28.3%. The result of the contraction was a massive rash of defaults, bankruptcies of businesses and manufacturers, and liquidation of unsound investments during the boom. There was a vast drop in real estate values and rents, and in the prices of freight rates and slaves. Public land sales dropped greatly as a result of the contraction, declining from $13.6 million in 1818 to $1.7 million in 1820. Prices in general plummeted. The index of export staples fell from 158 in November 1818 to 77 in June 1819, an annualized drop of 87.9% during those seven months. South Carolina export staples dropped from 160 to 96 from 1818 to 1819, and commodity prices in New Orleans dropped from 200 in 1818 to 119 two years later. Falling money incomes led to a precipitous drop in imports, which fell from $122 million in 1818 to $87 million the year later. Imports from Great Britain fell from $43 million in 1818 to $14 million in 1820 and cotton and woolen imports from Britain fell from over $14 million each in 1818 to about $5 million each in 1820. The great fall in prices aggravated the burden of money debts, reinforced by the contraction of credit. Bankruptcies abounded, and one observer estimated that $100 million of mercantile debts to Europe were liquidated by bankruptcy during the crisis. Western areas, shorn of money by the collapse of the previously swollen paper and debt, often returned to barter conditions, and grain and whiskey were used as media of exchange. In the dramatic summing up of the hard money economist and historian William Googe, by its precipitous and dramatic contraction, quote, the bank was saved and the people were ruined. The Jacksonian Movement and the Bank War Out of the bitter experiences of the Panic of 1819 emerged the beginnings of the Jacksonian Movement, dedicated to hard money, the eradication of fractional reserve banking in general, and of the Bank of the United States in particular. Andrew Jackson himself, Senator Thomas Hart, quote, Old Bullion Benton of Missouri, future President James K. Polk of Tennessee, and Jacksonian economists Amos Kendall of Kentucky and Condi Rigo of Philadelphia, were all converted to hard money and 100% reserve banking by the experience of the Panic of 1819. The Jacksonians adopted, or in some cases pioneered in, the currency school analysis, which pinned the blame for boom-bust cycles on inflationary expansions followed by contractions of bank credit. Far from being the ignorant bumpkins that most historians have depicted, the Jacksonians were steeped in the knowledge of sound economics, 
particularly of the Ricardian Currency School. Indeed, no movement in American politics has been as flagrantly misunderstood by historians as the Jacksonians. They were emphatically not, as historians until recently have depicted, either, quote, ignorant anti-capitalist agrarians, or, quote, representatives of the rising entrepreneurial class, or, quote, tools of the inflationary state banks, or embodiments of an early proletarian anti-capitalist movement, or a non-ideological power group, or, quote, electoral machine. The Jacksonians were libertarians, plain and simple. Their program and ideology were libertarian. They strongly favored free enterprise and free markets, but they just as strongly opposed special subsidies and monopoly privileges conveyed by government to business or to any other group. They favored absolutely minimal government, certainly at the federal level, but also at the state level. They believed that government should be confined to upholding the rights of private property. In the monetary sphere, this meant the separation of government from the banking system and a shift from inflationary paper money and fractional reserve banking to pure specie and banks confined to 100% reserves. In order to put this program into effect, however, the Jacksonians faced the grueling task of creating a new party out of what had become a one-party system after the War of 1812, in which the Democrat Republicans had ended up adopting the Federalist program, including the reestablishment of the Bank of the United States. The new party, the Democratic Party, was largely forged in the mid-1820s by New York political leader Martin Van Buren, newly converted by the aging Thomas Jefferson to the laissez-faire cause. Van Buren cemented an alliance with Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri and the old Republicans of Virginia. But he needed a charismatic leader to take the presidency away from Adams and what was becoming known as the National Republican Party. He found that leader in Andrew Jackson, who was elected president under the new Democratic banner in 1828. The Jacksonians eventually managed to put into effect various parts of their free market and minimal government economic program, including a drastic lowering of tariffs, and for the first and probably the last time in American history, paying off the federal debt. But their major concentration was on the issue of money and banking. Here they had a coherent program, which they proceeded to install in rapidly succeeding stages. The first important step was to abolish central banking, in the Jacksonian view, the major inflationary culprit. The object was not to eliminate the Bank of the United States in order to free the state banks for inflationary expansion, but, on the contrary, to eliminate the major source of inflation before proceeding, on the state level, to get rid of fractional reserve banking. The Bank of the United States Charter was up for renewal in 1836, but Jackson denounced the bank in his first annual message in 1829. The imperious Nicholas Biddle, head of the second bank, decided to precipitate a showdown with Jackson before his re-election effort so Biddle filed for renewal early in 1831. The host of National Republicans and non-Jacksonian Democrats proceeded to pass the Recharter Bill, but Jackson, in a dramatic message, vetoed the bill, and Congress failed to pass it over his veto. Triumphantly re-elected on the bank issue in 1832, President Jackson lost no time in disestablishing the Bank of the United States as a central bank. The critical action came in 1833, when Jackson removed the public treasury deposits from the Bank of the United States and placed them in a number of state banks, soon labeled as, quote, pet banks, throughout the country. The original number of pet banks was seven, but the Jacksonians were not interested in creating a privileged bank oligarchy to replace the previous monopoly, so the number of pet banks had increased to 91 by the end of 1836. In that year, Biddle managed to secure a Pennsylvania charter for his bank, and the new United States Bank of Pennsylvania functioned as a much-reduced but still influential state bank for a few years thereafter. 
Orthodox historians have long maintained that by his reckless act of destroying the Bank of the United States and shifting government funds to the numerous pet banks, Andrew Jackson freed the state banks from the restraints imposed on them by a central bank. Thus, the banks were supposedly allowed to pyramid notes and deposits rashly on top of existing specie and precipitate a wild inflation that was later succeeded by two bank panics and a disastrous deflation. Recent historians, however, have totally reversed this conventional picture. In the first place, the record of bank inflation under the regime of the Bank of the United States was scarcely ideal. From the depths of the post-1819 Depression in January 1820 to January 1823, under the regime of the conservative Langdon Chivas, the Bank of the United States increased its notes and deposits at an annual rate of 5.9%. The nation's total money supply remained about the same in that period. Under the far more inflationist regime of Nicholas Biddle, however, the Bank of the United States notes and deposits rose, after January 1823, from $12 million to $42.1 million, an annual increase of 27.9%. As a consequence of this base of the banking pyramid inflating so sharply, the total money supply during this period vaulted from $81 million to $155 million, an annual increase of 10.2%. It is clear that the driving force for monetary expansion was the Bank of the United States, which acted as an inflationary rather than a restraining force upon the state banks. Looking at the figures another way, the 1823 data represented a pyramid ratio of money liabilities to specie of 3.86 to 1 on the part of the Bank of the United States and 4 to 1 of the banking system as a whole, or respective reserve ratios of 0 0.26 and 0 0.25. By 1832, in contrast, the Bank of the United States reserve ratio had fallen to 0 0.17 and the country as a whole to 0 0.15. Both sets of institutions had inflated almost precisely proportionately on top of specie. The fact that wholesale prices remained about the same over this period is no indication that the monetary inflation was not improper and dangerous. As Austrian business cycle theory has pointed out, any bank credit inflation sets up conditions for boom and bust. There is no need for prices actually to rise. The reason that prices did not rise was that the increased production of goods and services sufficed to offset the monetary expansion during this period. But similar conditions of the 1920s precipitated the Great Crash of 1929, an event that shocked most economists who had adopted the proto-monetarist position of Irving Fisher and other economists of the day that a stable wholesale price level cannot, by definition, be inflationary. In reality, the unhampered free market economy will usually increase the supply of goods and services and thereby bring about a gently falling price level, as happened in most of the 19th century, except during wartime. What then of the consequences of Jackson's removal of the deposits? What of the fact that wholesale prices rose from 84 in April 1834 to 131 in February 1837, a remarkable increase of 52% in a little less than three years? Wasn't that boom due to the abolition of central banking? An excellent reversal of the orthodox explanation of the boom of the 1830s, and indeed of the ensuing panic, has been provided by Professor Temin. First, he points out that the price inflation really began earlier, when wholesale prices reached a trough of 82 in July 1830, and then rose by 20.7% in three years to reach 99 in the fall of 1833. The reason for the price rise is simple. The total money supply had risen from $109 million in 1830 to $159 million in 1833, an increase of 45.9%, or 
or an annual rise of 15.3%. Breaking the figures down further, the total money supply had risen from $109 million in 1830 to $155 million a year and a half later, a spectacular expansion of 35%. Unquestionably, this monetary expansion was spurred by the still-flourishing Bank of the United States, which increased its notes and deposits from January 1830 to January 1832, from a total of $29 million to $42.1 million, a rise of 45.2%. Thus, the price and money inflation in the first few years of the 1830s were again sparked by the expansion of the still-dominant central bank. But what of the notable inflation after 1833? There is no doubt that the cause of the price inflation was the remarkable monetary inflation during the same period. For the total money supply rose from $150 million at the beginning of 1833, to $267 million at the beginning of 1837, an astonishing rise of 84%, or 21% per annum. But as Temin points out, this monetary inflation was not caused by the liberated state banks expanding to a fairly well. If it were true that the state banks used their freedom and their new federal government deposits to pyramid wildly on top of specie, then their pyramid ratio would have risen a great deal or, conversely, their reserve ratio of specie to notes and deposits would have fallen sharply. Yet the bank's reserve ratio was 0.16 at the beginning of 1837. During the intervening years, the reserve ratio was never below this figure. But this means that the state banks did no more pyramiding after the demise of the Bank of the United States as a central bank than they had done before. Conventional historians, believing that the Bank of the United States must have restrained the expansion of state banks, naturally assume that they were hostile to the central bank. But now, Gene Wilburn has discovered that the state banks overwhelmingly supported the Bank of the United States. Quote, We have found that Nicholas Biddle was correct when he said, State banks in the main are friendly. Specifically, only in Georgia, Connecticut, and New York was there positive evidence of hostility. A majority of state banks in some states of the South, such as North Carolina and Alabama, gave strong support to the bank, as did both the southwest states of Louisiana and Mississippi. Since Virginia gave some support, we can claim that state banks in the South and Southwest, for the most part, supported the bank. New England, contrary to expectations, showed the banks of Vermont and New Hampshire behind the bank, but support of Massachusetts was both qualitatively and quantitatively weak. The banks of the middle states all supported the second bank, except for those of New York. End quote. What, then, was the cause of the enormous monetary expansion of the 1830s? It was a tremendous and unusual expansion of the stockpile of specie in the nation's banks. The supply of specie in the country had remained virtually constant at about $32 million from the beginning of 1823 until the beginning of 1833. But the proportion of specie to banknotes held by the public as money dropped during this period from 23% to 5% so that more specie flowed from the public into the banks to fuel the relatively moderate monetary expansion of the 1820s. But starting at the beginning of 1833, the total specie in the country rose swiftly from $31 million to $73 million at the beginning of 1837, for a rise of 141.9%, or 35.5% per annum. Hence, even though increasing distrust of banks led the public to withdraw some specie from them, so that the public now held 13% of its money in specie instead of 5%, the banks were able to increase their notes and deposits at precisely the same rate as the expansion of specie flowing into their coffers. Thus, the Jackson administration is absolved from blame for the 1833-1837 to 1837 inflation, 
In a sense, the state banks are as well. Certainly, they scarcely acted as if being, quote, freed by the demise of the Bank of the United States. Instead, they simply increased their money issues proportionately with a huge increase of specie. Of course, the basic fractional reserve banking system is scarcely absolved from responsibility, since otherwise the monetary expansion in absolute terms would not have been as great. The enormous increase in specie was the result of two factors. First and foremost, a large influx of silver coin from Mexico, and second, the sharp cut in the usual export of silver to the Orient. The latter was due to the substantial increases in China's purchase of opium instead of silver from abroad. The influx of silver was the result of paper money inflation by the Mexican government, which drove Mexican silver coins into the United States, where they circulated as legal tender. The influx of Mexican coin has been attributed to a possible increase in the productivity of the Mexican mines, but this makes little sense since the inflow stopped permanently as soon as 1837. The actual cause was an inflation of the Mexican currency by the Santa Ana regime, which financed its deficits during this period by minting highly debased copper coins. Since the debased copper grossly overvalued copper and undervalued gold and silver, both the latter metals proceeded to flow rapidly out of Mexico until they virtually disappeared. Silver, of course, and not gold, was flowing into the United States during this period. Indeed, the Mexican government was forced to rescind its actions in 1837 by shifting the copper coinage to its proper ratio. The influx of Mexican silver into the U.S. promptly ceased. A bank credit inflation, the magnitude of that of the 1830s, is bound to run into shoals that cause the bank to stop the expansion and begin to contract. As the banks expand and prices rise, specie is bound to flow out of the country and into the hands of the domestic public, and the pressure on the banks to redeem in specie will intensify, forcing cessation of the boom and even monetary contraction. In a sense, the immediate precipitating cause is of minor importance. Even so, the Jackson administration has been unfairly blamed for precipitating the Panic of 1837 by issuing the Species Circular in 1836. In 1836, the Jackson administration decided to stop the enormous speculation in Western public lands that had been fueled during the past two years by the inflation of bank credit. Hence, Jackson decreed that public land payments would have to be made in specie. This had the healthy effect of stopping public land speculation but recent studies have shown that the specie circular had very little impact in putting pressure on the banks to pay specie. From the point of view of the Jackson program, however, it was as important as moving toward putting the U.S. government finances on a purely specie basis. Another measure advancing the Jacksonian program was also taken in 1836. Jackson, embarrassed at the government having amassed a huge budget surplus during his eight years in office, ordered the Treasury to distribute the surplus proportionately to the states. The distribution was made in notes, presumably payable in specie. But again, Temin has shown that the distribution had little impact on movements of specie between banks and therefore in exerting contractionist pressure upon them. What then was the precipitating factor in triggering the panic of 1837? Temin plausibly argues that the Bank of England, worried about inflation in Britain and the consequent outflow of gold, tightened the money supply and raised interest rates in the latter half of 1836. As a result, Credit contractions severely restricted the American cotton export trade in London. Exports declined, cotton prices fell, capital flowed into England, and contractionist pressure was put upon American trade and the American banks. Banks throughout the United States, including the Bank of the United States, promptly suspended specie payments in May 1837. Their notes depreciated at varying rates, and interregional trade within the country was crippled. 
While banks were able to evade specie payments and continue operations, they were still obliged to contract credit in order to go back on specie eventually, since they could not hope to be creating fiat money indefinitely and be allowed to remain in business. Finally, the New York banks were compelled by law to resume paying their contractual obligations, and the other banks followed in the fall of 1838. During the year 1837, the money supply fell from $276 million to $232 million, a large drop of 15.6% in one year. Total specie in the country continued to increase in 1837, up to $88 million, but growing public distrust of the banks reflected in an increase in the proportion of money held as specie from 13% to 23%, put enough pressure upon the banks to force the contraction. The bank's reserve ratio rose from 0.16 to 0.2. In response to the monetary contraction, wholesale prices fell precipitately by over 30% in seven months, declining from 131 in February 1837 to 98 in September of that year. In 1838, the economy revived. Britain resumed easy credit that year, cotton prices rose, and a short-lived boomlet began. Public confidence in the banks unwisely returned as they resumed specie payment, and as a result, the money supply rose slightly during the year, and prices rose by 25%, increasing from 98 in September 1837 to 125 in February 1839. Leading the boom of 1838 were state governments, who, finding themselves with the unexpected windfall of a distributed surplus from the federal government, proceeded to spend the money wildly and borrow even more extravagantly on public works and other uneconomic reforms of, quote, investment. But the state governments engaged in rashly optimistic plans that their public works would be financed heavily from Britain and other countries, and the cotton boom on which these hopes depended collapsed again in 1839. The states had to abandon their projects en masse. Cotton prices declined, and severe contractionist pressure was put on trade. Furthermore, the Philadelphia-based Bank of the United States had invested heavily in cotton speculation, and the falling price of cotton forced the Bank of the United States, once again, to suspend payments in October 1839. This touched off a wave of general bank suspensions in the South and West, but this time the banks of New York and New England continued to redeem their obligations in specie. Finally, the Bank of the United States, having for the last time played a leading role in generating a recession and monetary crisis, was forced to close its doors two years later. With the crisis of 1839, there ensued four years of massive monetary and price deflation. Unsound banks were finally eliminated. Unsound investments generated in the boom were liquidated. The number of banks during these four years fell by 23%. The money supply fell from $240 million at the beginning of 1839 to $158 million in 1843 a seemingly cataclysmic drop of 34%, or 8.5% per annum. Prices fell even further, from 125 in February 1839 to 67 in March 1843, a tremendous drop of 42%, or 10.5% per year. During the boom, as we have indicated, state governments went heavily into debt, issuing bonds to pay for wasteful public works. In 1820, the total indebtedness of American states was a modest $12.8 million. By 1830, it rose to $26.5 million. But then it started to escalate, reaching $66.5 million in 1835 and skyrocketing to $170 million in 1839. The collapse of money, credit banking, and prices after 1839 brought these state debts into jeopardy. At this point, the Whigs, taking a leaf from their forebears, the Federalists, 
agitated for the federal government to bail out the states and assume their debts. After the crisis of 1839 arrived, some of the southern and western states were clearly in danger of default, their plight made worse by the fact that the bulk of the debt was held by British and Dutch capitalists, and that specie would have to be sent abroad to meet the heavy interest payments. The Whigs pressed further for federal assumption of the debt, with the federal government to issue $200 million worth of bonds in payment. Furthermore, British bankers put severe pressure on the United States to assume the state debts if it expected to float further loans abroad. The American people, however, spurned federal aid, including even the citizens of the states in difficulty, and the advent of the Polk administration ended any prospects for federal assumption. The British noted in wonder that the average American was far more concerned about his personal debts to other individuals and banks than about the debts of his state. In fact, the people were quite willing to have the states repudiate their debts outright. Demonstrating an astute perception of the reckless course the states had taken, the typical American response to the problem, quote, suppose foreign capitalists did not lend any more to the states, end quote, was the sharp retort, quote, well, who cares if they don't? We are now as a community heels over head in debt and can scarcely pay the interest, end quote. The implication was that the disappearance of foreign credit to the states would have the healthy effect of cutting off their wasteful spending, as well as avoiding the imposition of a crippling tax burden to pay for the interest and principal. There was in this response an awareness by the public that they and their government were separate and sometimes even hostile entities rather than one in the same organism. By 1847, four western and southern states, Mississippi, Arkansas, Michigan, and Florida, had repudiated all or part of their debts. Six other states, Maryland, Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Pennsylvania, had defaulted from three to six years before resuming payment. It is evident, then, that the 1839 to 1843 contraction was healthful for the economy in liquidating unsound investments, debts, and banks, including the pernicious Bank of the United States. But didn't the massive deflation have catastrophic effects on production, trade, and employment, as we have been led to believe? In a fascinating analysis and comparison with the deflation of 1929 to 1933, a century later, Professor Temin shows that the percentage of deflation over the comparable four years, 1839 to 1843 and 1929 to 1933, was almost the same. Yet the effects on real production of the two deflations were very different. Whereas in 1929 to 1933, real gross investment fell catastrophically by 91%, real consumption by 19%, and real GNP by 30%, in 1839 to 1843, Investment fell by 23%, but real consumption increased by 21%, and real GNP by 16%. The interesting problem is to account for the enormous fall in production and consumption in the 1930s, as contrasted to the rise in production and consumption in the 1840s. It seems that only the initial months of the contraction worked a hardship on the American public, and that most of the earlier deflation was a period of economic growth. Salmon properly suggests that the reason can be found in the downward flexibility of prices in the 19th century, so that the massive monetary contraction would lower prices but not particularly cripple the world of real production or standards of living. In contrast, in the 1930s, government placed massive roadblocks on the downward fall of prices and wage rates and hence brought about severe and continuing depression of production and living standards. The Jacksonians had no intention of leaving a permanent system of pet banks, and so after the retirement of Jackson, his successor, Martin Van Buren, 
fought to establish the independent treasury system, in which the federal government conferred no special privilege or inflationary prop on any bank. Instead of a central bank or pet banks, the government was to keep its funds purely in specie in its own treasury vaults or its, quote, sub-treasury branches, and simply take in and spend funds from there. Van Buren finally managed to establish the independent treasury system, which would last until the Civil War. At long last, the Jacksonians had achieved their dream of severing the federal government totally from the banking system and placing its finances on a purely hard money, specie basis. The Jacksonians and the Coinage Legislation of 1834 We have seen that the Coinage Act of 1792 established a bimetallic system in which the dollar was defined as equaling both 371.25 grains of pure silver and 24.75 grains of pure gold, a fixed weight ratio of 15 grains of silver to 1 grain of gold. But bimetallism foundered on Gresham's Law. After 1805, the world market value of silver fell to approximately 15.75 to 1, so that the U.S. fixed mint ratio greatly undervalued gold and overvalued silver. As a result, gold flowed out of the country and silver flowed in, so that after 1810, only silver coin, largely overvalued Spanish-American fractional silver coin, circulated within the United States. The rest of the currency was inflated bank paper in various stages of depreciation. The Jacksonians, as we have seen, were determined to eliminate inflationary paper money and substitute a hard money consisting of specie, or, at the most, of paper 100% backed by gold or silver. On the federal level, this meant abolishing the Bank of the United States and establishing the independent treasury. The rest of the fight would have to be conducted during the 1840s and later at the state level where the banks were chartered. But one thing the federal government could do was readjust the specie coinage. In particular, the Jacksonians were anxious to eliminate small denomination banknotes, $20 and under, and substitute gold and silver coins for them. They reasoned that the average American largely used these coins, and they were the ones bilked by inflationary paper money. For a standard to be really gold and silver, it was vital that gold or silver coins circulate and be used as a medium of exchange by the average American. To accomplish this goal, the Jacksonians set about to establish a comprehensive program. As a vital step, one of the coinage acts of 1834 readjusted the old mint ratio of 15 to 1 that had undervalued gold and driven it out of circulation. The coinage act devalued the definition of the gold dollar from the original 24.75 grains to 23.2 grains, a debasement of gold by 6.26%. The silver dollar was left at the old weight of 371.25 grains, so that the mint ratio between silver and gold was now fixed at a ratio of 16 to 1, replacing the old 15 to 1. It was unfortunate that the Jacksonians did not appreciate silver to 396 grains instead of debasing gold, for this set a precedent for debasement that was to plague America in 1933 and after. The new ratio of 16 to 1, however, now undervalued silver and overvalued gold, since the world market ratio had been approximately 15.79 to 1 in the years before 1834. Until recently, historians have assumed that the Jacksonians deliberately tried to bring in gold and expel silver and establish a monometallic gold standard by the back door. Recent study has shown, however, that the Jacksonians only wanted to give gold inflow a little push through a slight undervaluation and that they anticipated a full coin circulation of both gold and silver. 
1833, for example, the world market ratio was as high as 15.93 to 1. Indeed, it turns out that for two decades the Jacksonians were right, and that the slight 1% premium of silver over gold was not enough to drive the former coins out of circulation. Both silver and gold were imported from then on, and silver and gold coins both circulated successfully side by side until the early 1850s. Lightweight Spanish fractional silver remained overvalued even at the mint ratio, so it flourished in circulation, replacing depreciated small notes. Even American silver dollars were now retained in circulation since they were, quote, shielded and kept circulating by the presence of new, heavyweight Mexican silver dollars, which were exported instead. In order to stimulate the circulation of both gold and silver coins instead of paper notes, the Jacksonians also passed two companion coinage acts in 1834. The Jacksonians were not monetary nationalists. Specie was specie, and they saw no reason that foreign gold or silver coins should not circulate with the same full privileges as American minted coins. Hence, the Jacksonians, in two separate measures, legalized the circulation of all foreign silver and gold coins, and they flourished in circulation until the 1850s. A third plank in the Jacksonian coinage program was to establish branch U.S. mints so as to coin the gold found in newly discovered mines in Georgia and North Carolina. The Jackson administration finally succeeded in getting Congress to do so in 1835 when it set up branch mints to coin gold in North Carolina and Georgia and silver and gold at New Orleans. Finally, on the federal level, the Jacksonians sought to levy a tax on small banknotes and to prevent the federal government from keeping its deposits in state banks, issuing small notes, or accepting small banknotes in taxes. They were not successful, but the independent treasury eliminated public deposit in state banks, and the species circular, as we have seen, stopped the receipt of banknotes for public land sales. From 1840 on, the hard money battle would be waged at the state level. In the early 1850s, Gresham's Law finally caught up with the bimetallist idol that the Jacksonians had forged in the 1830s, replacing the earlier de facto silver monometallism. The sudden discovery of extensive gold mines in California, Russia, and Australia greatly increased gold production, reaching a peak in the early 1850s. From the 1720s through the 1830s, annual world gold production averaged $12.8 million, never strained far from that norm. Then, world gold production increased to an annual average of $38.2 million in the 1840s and spurred it upward to a peak of $155 million in 1853. World gold production then fell steadily from that peak to an annual average of $139.9 million in the 1850s and to $114.7 million from 1876 to 1890. It was not to surpass this peak until the 1890s. The consequence of the burst in gold production was, of course, a fall in the price of gold relative to silver in the world market. The silver-gold ratio declined from 15.97 in January 1849 to an average of 15.7 in 1850 to 15.46 in 1851 and to an average of 15.32 to 1 in the eight years from 1853 to 1860. As a result, the market premium of American silver dollars over gold quickly rose above the 1% margin, which was the estimated cost of shipping silver coins abroad. That premium, which had hovered around 1% since the mid-1830s, suddenly rose to 4.5% at the beginning of 1851, 
and after falling back to about 2% at the turn of 1852, bounced back up and remained at the 4-5% level. The result was a rapid disappearance of silver from the country, the heaviest and therefore most undervalued coins vanishing first. Spanish milled dollars, which contained 1% to 5% more silver than American dollars, commanded a premium of 7% and went first. Then went the full-weight American silver dollars, and after that, American fractional silver coins, which were commanding a 4% premium by the fall of 1852. The last coins left were the worn Spanish and Mexican fractions, which were depreciated by 10-15%. to 15%. By the beginning of 1851, however, even these worn foreign silver coins had gone to a 1% premium and were beginning to go. It was clear that America was undergoing a severe small coin crisis. Gold coins were flowing into the country, but they were too valuable to be technically usable for small denomination coins. The Democratic Pierce administration saw with horror millions of dollars of unauthorized private small notes flood into circulation in early 1853 for the first time since the 1830s. The Jacksonians were in grave danger of losing the fight for hard money coinage, at least for the smaller and medium denominations. Something had to be done quickly. The ultimate breakdown of bimetallism had never been clearer. If bimetallism is not in the long run viable, this leaves two free market hard money alternatives. A. Silver monometallism with the dollar defined as a weight of silver only, and gold circulating freely by weight at freely fluctuating market rates. Or B, gold monometallism with a dollar defined only as a weight of gold, with silver circulating by weight. Each of these is an example of what has been called, quote, parallel standards, or, quote, free metallism, in which two or more metal coins are allowed to fluctuate freely within the same area and exchange at free market prices. As we have seen, colonial America was an example of such parallel standards since foreign gold and silver coins circulated freely and at fluctuating market prices. The United States could have taken this opportunity of monetary crisis to go on either version of a parallel standard. Apparently, however, few thought of doing so. Another viable, though inferior, solution to the problem of bimetallism was to establish a monometallic system, either de facto or de jure, with the other metal circulating in the form of lightweight and therefore overvalued or, quote, token coinage. Silver monometallism was immediately unfeasible since it was rapidly flowing out of the country and because gold, being far more valuable than silver, could not technically function easily as a lightweight subsidiary coin. The only feasible solution, then, within a monometallic framework was to make gold the basic standard and let highly overvalued, essentially token, silver coins function as subsidiary small coinage. Certainly, if a parallel standard was not to be adopted, the latter solution would be far better than allowing depreciated paper notes to function as small currency. Under pressure of the crisis, Congress decided, in February 1853, to keep the de jure bimetallic standard, but to adopt a de facto gold monometallic standard with fractional silver coins circulating as a deliberately overvalued subsidiary coinage, legal tender up to a maximum of only $5. The fractional silver coins were debased by 6.91%. With silver commanding about 4% market premium over gold, this meant that fractional silver was debased 3% below gold. At that depreciated rate, fractional silver was not overvalued in relation to gold and remained in circulation. By April, the new subsidiary quarter dollars proved to be popular, and by early 1854, the problem of the shortage of small coins in America was over.
In rejecting proposals either to go over completely to de jure gold monometallism or to keep the existing bimetallic system, Congress was choosing a gold standard temporarily, but keeping its options open. The fact that it continued the old full-bodied silver dollar, the quote, dollar of our fathers, demonstrates that an eventual return to de facto bimetallism was by no means being ruled out, albeit Gresham's law could not then maintain the American silver dollar in circulation. In 1857, an important part of the Jacksonian coinage program was repealed as Congress, in an exercise of monetary nationalism, eliminated all legal tender power of foreign coins. Decentralized Banking from the 1830s to the Civil War After the central bank was eliminated in the 1830s, the battle for hard money largely shifted to the state governmental arena. During the 1830s, the major thrust was to prohibit the issue of small notes, which was accomplished for notes under $5 in 10 states by 1832, and subsequently, five others restricted or prohibited such notes. The Democratic Party became ardently hard money in the various states after the shock of the financial crisis of 1837 and 1839. The Democratic drive was toward the outlawry of all fractional reserve bank paper. Battles were fought also in the late 1840s at constitutional conventions of many states, particularly in the West. In some Western states, the Jacksonians won temporary success, but soon the Whigs would return and repeal the bank prohibition. The Whigs, trying to find some way to overcome the general revulsion against banks after the crisis of the late 1830s, adopted the concept of, quote, free banking, which had been enacted by New York and Michigan in the late 1830s. From New York, the idea spread outward to the rest of the country and triumphed in 15 states by the early 1850s. On the eve of the Civil War, 18 out of 33 states in the Union had adopted, quote, free banking laws. It must be realized that, quote, free banking, as it came to be known in the United States before the Civil War, was unrelated to the philosophic concept of free banking analyzed by economists. As we have seen earlier, genuine free banking is a system where entry into banking is totally free, the banks are neither subsidized nor regulated, and at the first sign of failure to redeem in specie payments, a bank is forced to declare insolvency and close its doors. Quote, free banking before the Civil War, on the other hand, was very different. As we have pointed out, the government allowed periodic general suspensions of specie payments whenever the banks overexpanded and got into trouble. The latest episode was in the Panic of 1857. It is true that bank incorporation was now more liberal since any bank that met the legal regulations could become incorporated automatically without lobbying for special legislative charters, as had been the case before. But the banks were now subject to a myriad of regulations, including edicts by state banking commissioners and high minimum capital requirements that greatly restricted entry into the banking business. But the most pernicious aspect of, quote, free banking was that the expansion of banknotes and deposits was directly tied to the amount of state government securities that the bank had invested in and posted as bond with the state. In effect, then, state government bonds became the reserve base upon which banks were allowed to pyramid a multiple expansion of banknotes and deposits. Not only did the system provide explicitly or implicitly for fractional reserve banking, but the pyramid was tied rigidly to the amount of government bonds purchased by the banks. This provision deliberately tied banks and bank credit expansion to the public debt. It meant that the more public debt the banks purchased, the more they could create and lend out new money. Banks, in short, were encouraged to monetize the public debt. State governments were thereby encouraged to go into debt, 
and hence, government and bank inflation were intimately linked. In addition to allowing periodic suspension of specie payments, federal and state governments conferred upon the banks the privilege of their notes being accepted in taxes. Moreover, the general prohibition of interstate branch banking, and often of interstate branches as well, greatly inhibited the speed by which one bank could demand payment from other banks in specie. In addition, state usury laws, pushed by the Whigs and opposed by the Democrats, made credit excessively cheap for the riskiest borrowers and encouraged inflation and speculative expansion of bank lending. Furthermore, the desire of state governments to finance internal improvements was an important factor in subsidizing and propelling expansion of bank credit. As Hammond admits, quote, The wildcats lent no money to farmers and served no farmer interest. They arose to meet the credit demands not of farmers, who were too economically astute to accept wildcat money, but of states engaged in public improvements. End quote. Despite the flaws and problems, the decentralized nature of the pre-Civil War banking system meant banks were free to experiment on their own with improving the banking system. The most successful such device was the creation of the Suffolk system. A free market central bank. It is a fact, almost never recalled, that there once existed an American private bank that brought order and convenience to a myriad of privately issued banknotes. Further, this Suffolk Bank restrained the overissuance of these notes. In short, it was a private central bank that kept the other banks honest. As such, it made New England an island of monetary stability in an America contending with currency chaos. Chaos was, in fact, that condition in which New England found herself just before the Suffolk Bank was established. There was a myriad of banknotes circulating in the area's largest financial center, Boston. Some were issued by Boston banks, which all in Boston knew to be solvent, but others were issued by state-chartered banks. These could be quite far away, and in those days such distance impeded both general knowledge about their solvency and easy access in bringing the bank's notes in for redemption into gold or silver. Thus, while at the beginning these country notes were accepted in Boston at par value, this just encouraged some faraway banks to issue far more notes than they had gold to back them. So country banknotes began to be generally traded at discounts to par of from 1% to 5%. City banks finally refused to accept country banknotes altogether. This gave rise to the money brokers mentioned earlier in this chapter. But it also caused hardship for Boston merchants, who had to accept country notes whose real value they could not be certain of. When they exchanged the notes with the brokers, they ended up assuming the full cost of discounting the bills they had accepted at par. A false start. Matters began to change in 1814. The New England Bank of Boston announced it too would go into the money broker business, accepting country notes from holders and turning them over to the issuing bank for redemption. The note holders, though, still had to pay the cost. In 1818, a group of prominent merchants formed the Suffolk Bank to do the same thing. This enlarged competition brought the basic rate of country note discount down from 3% in 1814 to 1% in 1818, and finally to a bare one-half of 1% 1 in 1820. But this did not necessarily mean that country banks were behaving more responsibly in their note creation. By the end of 1820, the business had become clearly unprofitable, and both banks stopped competing with the private money brokers. The Suffolk became just another Boston bank. Operation Begins 
During the next several years, Citibanks found their notes representing an ever smaller part of the total New England money supply. Country banks were simply issuing far more notes in proportion to their capital, that is, gold and silver, than were the Boston banks. Concerned about this influx of paper money of lesser worth, both Suffolk Bank and New England Bank began again in 1824 to purchase country notes. But this time they did so not to make a profit on redemption, but simply to reduce the number of country notes in circulation in Boston. They had the foolish hope that this would increase the use of their better notes, thus increasing their own loans and profits. But the more they purchased country notes, the more notes of even worse quality, particularly from faraway main banks, would replace them. Buying these latter involved more risk, so the Suffolk proposed to six other city banks a joint fund to purchase and send these notes back to the issuing bank for redemption. These seven banks, known as the Associated Banks, raised $300,000 for this purpose. With the Suffolk acting as agent and buying country notes from the other six, operations began March 24, 1824. The volume of country notes brought in this way increased greatly to $2 million per month by the end of 1825. By then, Suffolk felt strong enough to go it alone. Further, it now had the leverage to pressure country banks into depositing gold and silver with the Suffolk to make note redemption easier. By 1838, almost all banks in New England did so and were redeeming their notes through the Suffolk Bank. The Suffolk ground rules from beginning 1825 to end 1858 were as follows. Each country bank had to maintain a permanent deposit of specie of at least $2,000 for the smallest bank, plus enough to redeem all its notes that Suffolk received. These gold and silver deposits did not have to be at Suffolk as long as they were at some place convenient to Suffolk so that the notes would not have to be sent home for redemption. But in practice, nearly all reserves were at Suffolk. Citibanks had only to deposit a fixed amount, which decreased to $5,000 by 1835. No interest was paid on any of these deposits. But, in exchange, the Suffolk began performing an invaluable service. It agreed to accept at par all the notes it received as deposits from other New England banks in the system, and credit the depositor bank's accounts on the following day. With the Suffolk acting as a, quote, clearing bank, accepting, sorting, and crediting banknotes, it was now possible for any New England bank to accept the notes of any other bank, however far away and at face value. This drastically cut down on the time and inconvenience of applying to each bank separately for specie redemption. Moreover, the certainty spread that the notes of the Suffolk member banks would be valued at par. It spread at first among other bankers, and then to the general public. The Country Banks Resist How did the inflationist country banks react to this? Not very well, for as one could see, the Suffolk system put limits on the amount of notes they could issue. They resented par redemption and detested systematic specie redemption because that forced them to stay honest. But country banks knew that any bank that did not play by the rules would be shunned by the banks that did, or at least see its notes accepted only at discount and not in a very wide area at that. All legal means to stop Suffolk failed. The Massachusetts Supreme Court upheld in 1827 Suffolk's right to demand gold or silver for country bank notes, and the state legislature refused to charter a clearing bank run by the country banks, probably rightly assuming that these banks would run much less strict operations. Stung by these setbacks, the country banks played by the rules, bided their time, and awaited their revenge. Suffolk's Stabilizing Effects even though Suffolk's initial objective had been to increase the circulation of city banks, this did not happen. 
In fact, by having their notes redeemed at par, country banks gained a new respectability. This came, naturally, at the expense of the number of notes issued by the worst former inflationists. But at least in Massachusetts, the percentage of Citibank notes in circulation fell from 48.5% in 1826 to 35.8% in 1833. The biggest, most powerful weapon Suffolk had to keep stability was the power to grant membership into the system. It accepted only banks whose notes were sound. While Suffolk could not prevent a bad bank from inflating, denying it membership ensured that the notes would not enjoy wide circulation. And the member banks that were mismanaged could be stricken from the list of Suffolk-approved New England banks in good standing. This caused an offending bank's notes to trade at a discount at once, even though the bank itself might be still redeeming its notes in specie. In another way, the Suffolk exercised a stabilizing influence on the New England economy. It controlled the use of overdrafts in the system. When a member bank needed money, it could apply for an overdraft, that is, a portion of excess reserves in the banking system. If Suffolk decided that a member bank's loan policy was not conservative enough, it could refuse to sanction the bank's application to borrow reserves at Suffolk. The denial of overdrafts to profligate banks thus forced those banks to keep their assets more liquid. Few government central banks today have succeeded in that. This is all the more remarkable when one considers that Suffolk, or any central bank, could have earned extra interest income by issuing overdrafts irresponsibly. But Dr. George Trivoli, whose excellent monograph, The Suffolk Bank, we rely on in this study, states that by providing stability to the New England banking system, quote, it should not be inferred that the Suffolk Bank was operating purely as public benefactor, end quote. Suffolk, in fact, made handsome profits. At its peak in 1858, the last year of existence, it was redeeming $400 million in notes, with a total annual salary cost of only $40,000. The healthy profits were derived primarily from loaning out those reserve deposits, which Suffolk itself, remember, did not pay interest on. Not surprisingly, Suffolk stock was the highest-priced bank stock in Boston, and by 1850, regular dividends were 10%. The Suffolk Difference That the Suffolk system was able to provide note redemption much more cheaply than the U.S. government was stated by a U.S. comptroller of the currency. John J. Knox compared the two systems from a vantage point of half a century. Quote, In 1857, the redemption of notes by the Suffolk Bank was almost $400 million, as against $137,697,696 in 1875 the highest amount ever reported under the national banking system. The redemptions in 1898 were only $66,683,476 at a cost of $1.29 per thousand. The cost of redemption under the Suffolk system was $0.10 cents per $1,000, which does not appear to include transportation. If this item is deducted from the cost of redeeming national banknotes, it would reduce it to about $0.94. Cents. This difference is accounted for by the relatively small amount of redemptions by the Treasury and the increased expense incident to the necessity of official checks by the government and by the higher salaries paid. But allowing for these differences, the fact is established that private enterprise could be entrusted with the work of redeeming the circulating notes of the banks, and it could thus be done as safely and much more economically than the same service can be performed by the government. End quote. The volume of redemptions was much larger under Suffolk than under the national banking system. 
During Suffolk's existence, 1825 to 1857, they averaged $229 million per year. The average of the national system from its start in 1863 to about 1898 is put by Mr. Knox at only $54 million. Further, at its peak in 1858, $400 million was redeemed. But the New England money supply was only $40 million. This meant that, astoundingly, the average note was redeemed 10 times per year, or once every five weeks. Bank capital, note circulation, and deposits, considered together as, quote, banking power, grew in New England on a per capita basis much faster than in any other region of the country from 1803 to 1850. And there is some evidence that New England banks were not as susceptible to disaster during the several banking panics during that time. In the Panic of 1837, not one Connecticut bank failed, nor did any suspend specie payments. All remained in the Suffolk system. And when in 1857 specie payment was suspended in Maine, all but three banks remained in business. As the Bank Commission of Maine stated, quote, The Suffolk system, though not recognized in banking law, has proved to be a great safeguard to the public. Whatever objections may exist to the system in theory, its practical operation is to keep the circulation of our banks within the bounds of safety. End quote. The Suffolk's Demise the extraordinary profits and power that the Suffolk had by 1858 attained spawned competitors. The only one to become established was the Bank for Mutual Redemption in 1858. This bank was partially a response to the somewhat arrogant behavior of the Suffolk by this time, after 35 years of unprecedented success. But further, and more important, the balance of power in the state legislature had shifted outside of Boston to the country bank areas. The politicians were more amenable to the desires of the overexpanding country banks. Still, it must be said that Suffolk acted toward the Bank of Mutual Redemption with spite where conciliation would have helped. Trying to force Mutual Redemption out of business, Suffolk, starting October 8, 1858, refused to honor notes of banks having deposits in the newcomer. Further, Suffolk in effect threatened any bank withdrawing deposits from it. But country banks rallied to the newcomer, and on October 16th, Suffolk announced that it would stop clearing any country banknotes, thus becoming just another bank. Only the Bank for Mutual Redemption was left, and though it soon had half the New England banks as members, it was much more lax toward overissuance by country banks. Perhaps the Suffolk would have returned amid dissatisfaction with its successor, but in 1861, just over two years after Suffolk stopped clearing, the Civil War began, and all specie payments were stopped. As a final nail in the coffin, the National Banking System Act of 1863 forbade the issuance of any state banknotes, giving a monopoly to the government that has continued ever since. While it lasted, though, the Suffolk banking system showed that it is possible in a free market system to have private banks competing to establish themselves as efficient, safe, and inexpensive clearinghouses Limiting Overissue of Paper Money The Civil War The Civil War exerted an even more fateful impact on the American monetary and banking system than had the War of 1812. It set the United States, for the first time except for 1814 to 1817, on an irredeemable fiat currency that lasted for two decades and led to reckless inflation of prices. This, quote, greenback currency set a momentous precedent for the post-1933 United States, and even more particularly for the post-1971 experiment in fiat money. 
Perhaps an even more important consequence of the Civil War was the permanent change wrought in the American banking system. The federal government in effect outlawed the issue of state banknotes and created a new, quasi-centralized, fractional reserve national banking system, which paved the way for the return of outright central banking in the federal reserve system. The Civil War, in short, ended the separation of the federal government from banking and brought the two institutions together in an increasingly close and permanent symbiosis. In that way, the Republican Party, which inherited the Whig admiration for paper money and governmental control and sponsorship of inflationary banking, was able to implant the soft money tradition permanently in the American system. Greenbacks The Civil War led to an enormous ballooning of federal expenditures, which skyrocketed from $66 million in 1861 to $1.3 billion four years later. To pay for these swollen expenditures, the Treasury initially attempted, in the fall of 1861, to float a massive $150 million bond issue to be purchased by the nation's leading banks. However, Secretary of the Treasury Salmon P. Chase, a former Jacksonian, tried to require the banks to pay for the loan in specie that they did not have. This massive pressure on their specie, as well as an increased public demand for specie due to a well-deserved lack of confidence in the banks, brought about a general suspension of specie payments a few months later, at the end of December 1861. This suspension was followed swiftly by the Treasury itself, which suspended specie payments on its Treasury notes. The U.S. government quickly took advantage of being on an inconvertible fiat standard. In the Legal Tender Act of February 1862, Congress authorized the printing of $150 million in new, quote, United States notes, soon to be known as, quote, greenbacks, to pay for the growing war deficits. The greenbacks were made legal tender for all debts, public and private, except that the Treasury continued its legal obligation of paying the interest on its outstanding public debt in specie. The greenbacks were also made convertible at par into U.S. bonds, which remained a generally unused option for the public and was repealed a year later. In creating greenbacks in February, Congress resolved that this would be the first and last emergency issue. But printing money is a heady wine, and a second $150 million issue was authorized in July, and still a third $150 million in early 1863. Greenback's outstanding reached a peak in 1864 of $415.1 million. Greenbacks began to depreciate in terms of specie almost as soon as they were issued. In an attempt to drive up the price of government bonds, Secretary Chase eliminated the convertibility of greenbacks in July 1863, an act that simply drove their value down further. Chase and the Treasury officials, instead of acknowledging their own premier responsibility for the continued depreciation of the greenbacks, conveniently placed the blame on anonymous, quote, gold speculators. In March 1863, Chase began a determined campaign, which would last until he was driven from office, to stop the depreciation by controlling, assaulting, and eventually eliminating the gold market. In early March, he had Congress levy a stamp tax on gold sales and to forbid loans on a collateral of coin above its par value. This restriction on the gold market had little effect, and when depreciation resumed its march at the end of the year, Chase decided to de facto repeal the requirement that customs duties be paid in gold. In late March 1864, Chase declared that importers would be allowed to deposit greenbacks at the Treasury and receive gold in return at a premium below the market. Importers could then use the gold to pay the customs duties. 
This was supposed to reduce greatly the necessity for importers to buy gold coin on the market and therefore to reduce the depreciation. The outcome, however, was that the greenback, at 59 cents in gold when Chase began the experiment, had fallen to 57 cents by mid-April. Chase was then forced to repeal his customs duty scheme. With the failure of this attempt to regulate the gold market, Chase promptly escalated his intervention. In mid-April, he sold the massive amount of $11 million in gold in order to drive down the gold premium of greenbacks. But the impact was trifling, and the Treasury could not continue this policy indefinitely because it had to keep enough gold in its vaults to pay interest on its bonds. At the end of the month, the greenback was lower than ever, having sunk to below 56 cents in gold. Indefatigably, Chase tried yet again. In mid-May 1864, he sold foreign exchange in London at below market rates in order to drive down pounds in relation to dollars and, more specifically, to replace some of the U.S. export demand for gold in England. But this, too, was a failure, and Chase ended this experiment before the end of the month. Finally, Secretary Chase decided to take off the gloves. He had failed to regulate the gold market. He would therefore end the depreciation of greenbacks by destroying the gold market completely. By mid-June, he had driven through Congress a truly despotic measure to prohibit under pain of severe penalties all futures contracts in gold, as well as all sales of gold by a broker outside his own office. The result was disaster. The gold market was in chaos, with wide ranges of prices due to the absence of an organized market. Businessmen clamored for repeal of the, quote, gold bill, and, worst of all, the object of the law, to lower the depreciation of the paper dollar, had scarcely been achieved. Instead, public confidence in the greenback plummeted, and its depreciation in terms of gold got far worse. At the beginning of June, the greenback dollar was worth over 52 cents in gold. Apprehensions about the emerging gold bill drove the greenback down slightly to 51 cents in mid-June. Then, after the passage of the bill, the greenback plummeted, hitting 40 cents at the end of the month. The disastrous gold bill was hastily repealed at the end of June, and perhaps not coincidentally, Secretary Chase was ousted from office at the same time. The war against the speculators was over. As soon as greenbacks depreciated to less than 97 cents in gold, fractional silver coins became undervalued and so were exported to be exchanged for gold. By July 1862, in consequence, no coin higher than the copper-nickel penny remained in circulation. The U.S. government then leaped in to fill the gap with small tickets, first issuing postage stamps for the purpose then bits of unglued paper, and finally, after the spring of 1863, fractional paper notes. A total of $28 million in postage currency and fractional notes had been issued by the middle of 1864. Even the nickel-copper pennies began to disappear from circulation as greenbacks depreciated and the nickel-copper coins began to move toward being undervalued. The expectation and finally the reality of undervaluation drove the coins into hoards and then into exports. Postage and fractional notes did not help matters because their lowest denominations were five cents and three cents, respectively. The penny shortage was finally alleviated when a debased and lighter weight penny was issued in the spring of 1864, consisting of bronze instead of nickel and copper. As soon as the nation's banks and the treasury itself suspended specie payments at the end of 1861, Gresham's law went into operation and gold coin virtually disappeared from circulation, except for the government's interest payments and importers' customs duties. The swift issuance of legal tender greenbacks, which the government forced creditors to accept at par, 
ensured the continued disappearance of gold from then on. The fascinating exception was California. There were very few banks during this period west of Nebraska, and in California, the absence of banks was ensured by the fact that note-issuing banks, at least, were prohibited by the California Constitution of 1849. The California gold discoveries of the late 1840s ensured a plentiful supply for coinage. Used to a currency of gold coin only, with no intrusion of banknotes, California businessmen took steps to maintain gold circulation and avoid coerced payment in greenbacks. At first, the merchants of San Francisco, in November 1862, jointly agreed to refrain from accepting or paying out greenbacks at any but the depreciated market value, and to keep gold as the monetary standard. Any firms that refused to abide by the agreement would be blacklisted and required to pay gold and cash for any goods which they might purchase in the future. Voluntary efforts did not suffice to overthrow the federal power standing behind legal tender, however, and so California merchants obtained the passage in California legislature of a, quote, Specific Contracts Act at the end of April 1863. The Specific Contracts Act provided that contracts for the payment of specific kinds of money would be enforceable in the courts. After passage of that law, California businessmen were able to protect themselves against tenders of greenbacks by inserting gold coin payment clauses in all their contracts. Would that the other states, and even the federal government, had done the same? Furthermore, the private banks of deposit in California refused to accept greenbacks on deposit. Newspapers used their influence to warn citizens about the dangers of greenbacks, and the state government refused to accept greenbacks in payment of taxes. In that way, all the major institutions in California joined in refusing to accept or give their imprimatur to federal inconvertible paper. Judicial institutions also helped maintain the gold standard and repel the depreciated U.S. paper. Not only did the California courts uphold the constitutionality of the Specific Contracts Act, but the California Supreme Court ruled in 1862 that greenbacks could not be accepted in state or county taxes since the state constitution prohibited any acceptance of paper money for taxes. The state of Oregon was quick to follow California's lead. Oregon's constitution had also outlawed banks of issue, and gold had for years been the exclusive currency. Two weeks after the agreement of the San Francisco merchants, the merchants of Salem, Oregon, unanimously backed gold as the monetary standard and refused to accept greenbacks at par. Two months later, the leading merchants of Portland agreed to accept greenbacks only at rates current in San Francisco. The merchants in the rest of the state were quick to follow suit. The Portland merchants issued a circular warning of a blacklist of all customers who insisted on settling their debts in greenbacks, and they would be quickly boycotted, and dealings with them would only be in cash. Oregon deposit banks also refused to accept greenbacks, and the Oregon legislature followed California a year and a half later in passing a specific performance law. Oregon, too, refused to accept greenbacks in taxes and strengthened the law in 1864 by requiring that, quote, all taxes levied by state, counties, or municipal corporations therein shall be collected and paid in gold and silver coin of the United States and not otherwise, end quote. In the same year, the Oregon Supreme Court followed California in ruling that greenbacks could not constitutionally be received in payment of taxes. The banking story during the Civil War is greatly complicated by the advent of the national banking system in the latter part of the war. But it is clear that the state banks, being able to suspend specie and to pyramid money and credit on top of the federal greenbacks, 
profited greatly by being able to expand during this period. Thus, total state bank notes and deposits were $510 million in 1860, and by 1863 rose to $743 million, an increase in state bank demand liabilities in those three years of 15.2% per year. It is no wonder, then, that contrary to older historical opinion, many state banks were enthusiastic about the greenbacks, which provided them with legal tender that could function as a reserve base upon which they could expand. As Hammond puts it, quote, Instead of being curbed, as some people suppose later, the powers of the banks were augmented by the legal tender issues. As the issues increased, the deposits of the banks would increase, end quote. Indeed, Senator Sherman Republican, Ohio, noted that the state banks favored greenbacks, and the principal author of the greenback legislation, Representative Elbridge G. Spaulding, Republican, New York, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Subcommittee that introduced the bill, was himself a Buffalo banker. The total money supply of the country, including gold coin, state banknotes, subsidiary silver, and U.S. currency, including fractional and greenbacks, amounted to $745.4 million in 1860. By 1863, the money supply had skyrocketed to $1.435 billion, an increase of 92.5% in three years, or 30.8% per annum. By the end of the war, the money supply, which now included national banknotes and deposits, totaled $1.773 billion, an increase in two years of 23.6%, or 11.8% per year. Over the entire war, the money supply rose from $45.4 million to $1.773 billion, an increase of 137.9%, or 27.69% per annum. The response to this severe monetary inflation was a massive inflation of prices. It is no wonder that the greenbacks, depreciating rapidly in terms of gold, depreciated in terms of goods as well. Wholesale prices rose from 100 in 1860 to 210.9 at the end of the war, a rise of 110.9%, or 22.2% per year. The Republican administration argued that its issue of greenbacks was required by stern wartime, quote, necessity. The spuriousness of this argument is seen by the fact that greenbacks were virtually not issued after the middle of 1863. There were three alternatives to the issue of legal tender fiat money. 1. The government could have issued paper money, but not made it legal tender. It would have depreciated even more rapidly. At any rate, they would have had quasi-legal tender status by being receivable in federal dues and taxes. 2. It could have increased taxes to pay for the war expenditures. 3. It could have issued bonds and other securities and sold the debt to banks and non-bank institutions. In fact, the government employed both the latter alternatives and after 1863 stopped issuing greenbacks and relied on them exclusively, especially a rise in the public debt. The accumulated deficit piled up during the war was $2.614 billion, of which the printing of greenbacks only financed $431.7 million. Of the federal deficits during the war, greenbacks financed 22.8% in fiscal 1862. 48.5% in 1863, 6.3% in 1864, and none in 1865. This is particularly striking if we consider that the peak deficit came in 1865, totaling $963.8 million. All the rest was financed by increased debt. 
Taxes also increased greatly, revenues rising from $52 million in 1862 to $333.7 million in 1865. Tax revenues as a percentage of the budget rose from a minuscule 10.7% in fiscal 1862 to over 26% in 1864 and 1865. It is clear, then, that the argument of, quote, necessity in the printing of greenbacks was specious, and indeed the greenback advocates conceded that it was perfectly possible to issue public debt, provided that the administration was willing to see the prices of its bonds rise and its interest payments rise considerably. At least for most of the war, they were not willing to take their chances in the competitive bond market. The Public Debt and the National Banking System the public debt of the Civil War brought into American financial history the important advent of one Jay Cook. The Ohio-born Cook had joined the moderately successful Philadelphia investment banking firm of Clark & Dodge as a clerk at the age of 18. In a few years, Cook worked himself up to the status of junior partner, and, in 1857, he left the firm to branch out on his own in canal and railroad promotion and other business ventures. There he doubtless would have remained, except for the lucky fact that he and his brother Henry, editor of the leading Republican newspaper in Ohio, the Ohio State Journal, were close friends of U.S. Senator Salmon P. Chase. Chase, a veteran leader of the anti-slavery movement, fought for and lost the Republican presidential nomination in 1860 to Abraham Lincoln. At that point, the Cooks determined to feather their nest by lobbying to make Salmon Chase Secretary of the Treasury. After heavy lobbying by the Cooks, the Chase appointment was secured, so Jay Cook quickly set up his own investment banking house of Jay Cook & Company. Everything was in place. It now remained to seize the opportunity. As the Cooks' father wrote of Henry, quote, I took up my pen principally to say that H.S.'s, Henry's, plan in getting Chase into the cabinet and John Sherman into the Senate is accomplished and that now is the time for making money, by honest contracts out of the government, end quote. Now indeed was their time for making money, and Cook lost no time in doing so. It did not take much persuasion, including whining and dining, for Cook to induce his friend Chase to take an unprecedented step in the fall of 1862, granting the House of Cook a monopoly on the underwriting of the public debt. With enormous energy, Cook hurled himself into the task of persuading the mass of public to buy U.S. government bonds. In doing so, Cook perhaps invented the art of public relations and mass propaganda. Certainly, he did so in the realm of selling bonds. As Kirkland writes, quote, With characteristic optimism, he, Cook, flung himself into a bond crusade. He recruited a small army of 2,500 subagents among bankers, insurance men, and community leaders, and kept them inspired and informed by mail and telegraph. He taught the American people to buy bonds, using lavish advertising in newspapers, broadsides, and posters. God, destiny, duty, courage, patriotism, all summoned farmers, mechanics, and capitalists to invest in loans. End quote. Loans which, of course, they had to purchase from Jay Cook. And purchase the loans they did for Cook's bond sales soon reached the enormous figure of $1 million to $2 million a day. Perhaps $2 billion in bonds were bought and underwritten by Jay Cook during the war. Cook lost his monopoly in 1864, under pressure of rival bankers, 
but a year later he was reappointed to keep that highly lucrative post until the House of Cook crashed in the Panic of 1873. In the Civil War, Jay Cook began as a moderately successful promoter. He emerged at war's end a millionaire, a man who had spawned the popular motto, quote, as rich as Jay Cook. Surely he must have counted the $100,000 he had poured into Sam and Chase's political fortunes by 1864 as one of the most lucrative investments he had ever made. It is not surprising that Jay Cook acquired enormous political influence in the Republican administration of the Civil War and after. Hugh McCullough, Secretary of the Treasury from 1865 to 1869, was a close friend of Cook's, and when McCullough left office, he assumed the post as head of Cook's London office. The Cook brothers were also good friends of General Ulysses Grant, so they wielded great influence during the Grant administration. No sooner had Cook secured the monopoly of government bond underwriting than he teamed up with his associates, Secretary of the Treasury Chase and Ohio's Senator John Sherman, to drive through a measure which was destined to have far more fateful effects than greenbacks on the American monetary system, the national banking system. The National Banking Acts destroyed the previously decentralized and fairly successful state banking system and substituted a new, centralized, and far more inflationary banking system under the aegis of Washington and a handful of Wall Street banks. Whereas the effects of the greenbacks were finally eliminated by the resumption of specie payments in 1879, the effects of the national banking system are still with us. Not only was this system in place until 1913, but it paved the way for the Federal Reserve System by instituting a quasi-central banking type of monetary system. The, quote, inner contradictions of the national banking system were such that the nation was driven either to go onward to a frankly central bank or else to scrap centralized banking altogether and go back to decentralized state banking. Given the inner dynamic of state intervention to keep intensifying, coupled with the almost universal adoption of statist ideology after the turn of the 20th century, which course the nation would take was unfortunately inevitable. Chase and Sherman drove the new system through under the cover of war necessity, but it was designed to alter the banking system permanently. The wartime ground was to set up national banks, which were so structured as to necessarily purchase large amounts of U.S. government bonds. Pattern after the, quote, free banking systems, this tied the nation's banks with the federal government and the public debt in a close, symbiotic relationship. The Jacksonian embarrassment of the independent treasury was de facto swept away, and the treasury would now keep its deposits in a new series of, quote, pets, the national banks chartered directly by the federal government. In this way, the Republican Party was able to use the wartime emergency to fulfill the Whig Republican dream of a federally controlled centralized banking system, able to inflate the supply of money and credit in a uniform manner. Meshing with this was a profound political goal. As Sherman expressly pointed out, a vital object of the national banking system was to eradicate the embarrassing doctrine of states' rights and to nationalize American politics. As established in the Bank Acts of 1863 and 1864, the national banking system provided for the chartering of national banks by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency in Washington, D.C. The banks were, quote, free in that any institution meeting the requirements could obtain a charter, but the requirements were so high, from $50,000 for rural banks to $200,000 in the bigger cities, that small national banks were rolled out, particularly in the large cities. 
The national banking system created three sets of national banks. Central Reserve City, which was only New York. Reserve City, other cities with over 500,000 population. And Country, which included all other national banks. Central Reserve City banks were required to keep 25% of their notes and deposits in reserve of vault cash or, quote, lawful money, which included gold, silver, and greenbacks. This provision incorporated the, quote, reserve requirement concept that had been a feature of the, quote, free banking system. Reserve city banks, on the other hand, were allowed to keep one half of their required reserves in vault cash, while the other half could be kept as demand deposits, checking deposits, in central reserve city banks. Finally, country banks only had to keep a minimum ratio of 15% of their notes and deposits, and only 40% of these reserves had to be in the form of vault cash. The other 60% could be in the form of demand deposits either at Reserve City or Central Reserve City banks. The upshot of this system was to replace the individualized structure of the pre-Civil War state banking system by an inverted pyramid of country banks, expanding on top of Reserve City banks, which in turn expanded on top of New York City banks. Before the Civil War, every bank had to keep its own specie reserves, and any pyramiding of notes and deposits on top of that was severely limited by calls for redemption in specie by other competing banks, as well as by the general public. But now, reserve city banks could keep half of their reserves as deposits in New York City banks, and country banks could keep most of theirs in one or the other, so that as a result, all the national banks in the country could pyramid in two layers on top of the relatively small base of reserves in the New York banks. And furthermore, those reserves could consist of inflated greenbacks as well as specie. Before the Civil War, every bank must stand or fall on its bottom. It can pyramid notes and deposits on top of specie, but its room for such inflationary expansion is limited because any bank's expansion will cause increased spending by its clients on the goods or services of other banks. Notes or checks on the expanding bank will go into the coffers of other banks, which will call on the expanding bank for redemption. This will put severe pressure on the expanding bank, which cannot redeem all of its liabilities as it is, and whose reserve ratio has declined, so it will be forced to either contract its loans and liabilities or else go under. Under the national banking system, New York City banks pyramid notes and deposits on top of specie and greenbacks. Reserve City banks pyramid their notes and deposits on top of specie, greenbacks, and deposits at New York City. And country banks pyramid on top of both. This means that, for example, if New York City banks inflate and expand their notes and deposits, they will not be checked by other banks calling upon them for redemption. Instead, Reserve city banks will be able to expand their own loans and liabilities by pyramiding on top of their own increased deposits at New York City banks. In turn, the country banks will be able to inflate their credit by pyramiding on top of their increased deposits at both Reserve City and New York banks. The whole nation is able to inflate uniformly and relatively unchecked by pyramiding on top of a few New York City banks. The national banks were not compelled to keep part of their reserves as deposits in larger banks, but they tended to do so in the long run so that they could expand uniformly on top of the larger banks, and in the short run because of the advantages of having a line of credit with a larger, quote, correspondent bank, as well as earning interest on demand deposits at that bank. Let us illustrate in another way how the national banking system pyramided by centralizing reserves. Let us consider the hypothetical balance sheet of the various banks. 
Suppose that the country banks begin with $1 million in vault cash as their reserves. With the national banking system in place, the country banks can now deposit three-fifths, or $600,000, of their cash in reserve city banks in return for interest-paying demand deposits at those banks. Total reserves for the two sets of banks have not changed, but now, because the country banks can use as their reserves deposits in reserve city banks, the same total reserves can be used by the banks to expand far more of their credit. For now, $400,000 in cash supports the same total of notes and deposits that the country banks had previously backed by $1 million, and the reserve city banks can now expand $2.4 million on top of the new $600,000 in cash, or rather, $1.8 million in addition to the $600,000 due to the city banks. In short, country bank reserves have remained the same, but reserve city bank reserves have increased by $600,000, and they can engage in 4 to 1 pyramiding of credit on top of that. But that is not all. The reserve city banks can deposit half of their reserves at the New York banks. When they do that, since the reserve city banks are allowed to keep half of their reserves in the central reserve city banks, the former can still pyramid $2.4 million on top of their new $600,000 and yet deposit $300,000 in cash at the New York banks. The latter, then, can expand another 4 to 1 on top of the new cash of $300,000 or increase their total notes and deposits to $1.2 million. In short, not only did the national banking system allow pyramiding of the entire banking structure on top of a few large Wall Street banks, but the very initiating of the system allowed a multiple expansion of all bank liabilities by centralizing a large part of the nation's cash reserves from the individual state banks into the hands of the larger, and especially the New York, banks. For the expansion of $1.2 million on top of the new $300,000 at New York banks served to expand the liabilities going to the smaller banks, which in turn could pyramid on top of their increased deposits. But even without that further expansion, $1 million of which, we will assume, originally supported $6 million in notes and deposits, will now support, in addition to that $6 million, $2.4 million issued by the Reserve City Banks and $1.2 million by the New York banks. To say nothing of further expansion by the latter two sets of banks, which will allow country banks to pyramid more liabilities. In June 1874, the fundamental structure of the national banking system was changed when Congress, as part of an inflationist move after the Panic of 1873, eliminated all reserve requirements on notes, keeping them only on deposits. This released over $20 million of lawful money from bank reserves and allowed a further pyramiding of demand liabilities. In the long run, it severed the treatment of notes from deposits, with notes tied rigidly to bank holdings of government debt and demand deposits pyramiding on top of reserve ratios in specie and greenbacks. But this centralized, inverse pyramiding of bank credit was not all. For, in a way modeled by the, quote, free banking system, Every national bank's expansion of notes was tied intimately to its ownership of U.S. government bonds. Every bank could only issue notes if it deposited an equivalent of U.S. securities as collateral at the U.S. Treasury, so that national banks could only expand their notes to the extent that they purchased U.S. government bonds. This provision tied the national banking system intimately to the federal government, and more particularly to its expansion of public debt. The federal government had an assured, 
built-in market for its debt, and the more the banks purchased that debt, the more the banking system could inflate. Monetizing the public debt was not only inflationary per se, it provided the basis, when done by the larger city banks, of other banks pyramiding on top of their own monetary expansion. The tie-in and the pyramiding process were cemented by several other provisions. Every national bank was obliged to redeem the obligations of every other national bank at par. Thus, the severe market limitation on the circulation of inflated notes and deposits, depreciation as the distance from the bank increases, was abolished. And while the federal government could not exactly make the notes of a private bank legal tender, it conferred quasi-legal tender status on every national bank by agreeing to receive all its notes and deposits at par for dues and taxes. It is interesting and even heartening to discover that despite these enormous advantages conferred by the federal government, national banknotes fell below par with greenbacks in the financial crisis of 1867, and a number of national banks failed the next year. Genuine redeemability, furthermore, was made very difficult under the national banking system. Laxity was ensured by the fact that national banks were required to redeem the notes and deposits of every other national bank at par, and yet it was made difficult for them to actually redeem those liabilities in specie. For one of the problems with the pre-Civil War state banking system was that interstate or even interstate branches were illegal, thereby hobbling the clearing system for swiftly redeeming another bank's notes and deposits. One might think that a national banking system would at least eliminate this problem, but on the contrary, branch banking continued to be prohibited, and interstate branch banking is illegal to this day. Editor's note, Congress eliminated federal restrictions on interstate banking and branching in September 1994 with the passage of the Regal Neal Interstate Banking and Branching Efficiency Act. A bank would only have to redeem its notes at its own counter in its home office. Furthermore, the redemption of notes was crippled by the fact that the federal government imposed a maximum limit of $3 million a month by which national banknotes could be contracted. Reserve requirements are now considered a sound and precise way to limit bank credit expansion, but the precision can work two ways. Just as government safety codes can decrease safety by setting a lower limit for safety measures and inducing private firms to reduce safety downward to that common level, so reserve requirements can and ordinarily do serve as lowest common denominators for bank reserve ratios. Free competition can and generally will result in banks voluntarily keeping higher reserve ratios, but a uniform legal requirement will tend to push all the banks down to that minimum ratio. And indeed, we can see this now in the universal propensity of all banks to be, quote, fully loaned up, that is, to expand as much as is legally possible up to the limits imposed by the legal reserve ratio. Reserve requirements of less than 100% are more an inflationary than a restrictive monetary device. The national banking system was intended to replace the state banks, but many state banks continued aloof and refused to join, despite the special privileges accorded to the national banks. The reserve and capital requirements were more onerous, and at that period, national banks were prohibited from making loans on real estate. With the state banks refusing to come to heel voluntarily, Congress, in March 1865, completed the Civil War revolution of the banking system by placing a prohibitive 10% tax on all banknotes, which had the desired effect of virtually outlawing all note issues by the state banks. From 1865 on, the national banks had a legal monopoly on the issue of banknotes. At first, 
The state banks contracted and disappeared under the shock, and it looked as if the United States would only have national banks. The number of state banks fell from 1,466 in 1863 to 297 in 1866, and total notes and deposits in state banks fell from $733 million in 1863 to only $101 million in 1866. After several years, however, the state banks readily took their place as an expanding element in the banking system, albeit subordinated to the national banks. In order to survive, the state banks had to keep deposit accounts at national banks from whom they could, quote, buy national banknotes in order to redeem their deposits. In short, the state banks now became the fourth layer of the national pyramid of money and credit, on top of the country and other banks, for the reserves of the state banks became, in addition to vault cash, demand deposits at national banks, which they could redeem in cash. The multi-layered structure of bank inflation under the national banking system was intensified. In this new structure, the state banks began to flourish. By 1873, the total number of state banks had increased to 1,330, and their total deposits were $789 million. The Cook-Chase connection with the new national banking system was simple. As Secretary of the Treasury, Chase wanted an assured market for the government bonds that were being issued so heavily during the Civil War. And as the monopoly underwriter of U.S. government bonds for every year except one from 1862 to 1873, Jay Cook was even more directly interested in an assured and expanding market for his bonds. What better method for obtaining such a market than creating an entirely new banking system, the expansion of which was directly tied to the bank's purchases of government bonds? From Jay Cook. The Cook brothers played a major role in driving the National Banking Act of 1863 through a reluctant Congress. The Democrats, devoted to hard money, opposed the legislation almost to a man. Only a majority of Republicans could be induced to agree on the bill. After John Sherman's decisive speech in the Senate for the measure, Henry Cook, now head of the Washington office of the House of Cook, wrote jubilantly to his brother, quote, it will be a great triumph, Jay, and one to which we have contributed more than any other living man. The bank had been repudiated by the House and was without a sponsor in the Senate and was thus virtually dead and buried when I induced Sherman to take hold of it and we went to work with the newspapers. End quote. Going to work with the newspapers meant something more than mere persuasion for the Cook brothers. As monopoly underwriter of government bonds, Cook was paying the newspapers large sums for advertising, and so the Cooks thought, as it turned out correctly, that they could induce the newspapers to grant them an enormous amount of free space, quote, in which to set forth the merits of the new national banking system, end quote. Such space meant not only publicity and articles, but even more important, the fervent editorial support of most of the nation's press. And so the press, implicitly bought for the occasion, kept up a drumfire of propaganda for the new national banking system. As Cook himself related, quote, For six weeks or more, nearly all the newspapers in the country were filled with our editorials, written by the Cook brothers, condemning the state bank system and explaining the great benefits to be derived from the national banking system now proposed. End quote. And every day, the indefatigable Cooks put on the desks of every member of Congress the relevant editorials from newspapers in their respective districts. While many state bankers, especially the conservative old-line New York bankers, opposed the national banking system, Jay Cook, once the system was in place, plunged in with a will. 
Not only did he sell the national banks their required bonds, he also set up new national banks which would have to buy his government securities. His agents formed national banks in the smaller towns of the South and West. Furthermore, he set up two large national banks, the First National Bank of Philadelphia and the First National Bank of Washington, D.C. But the national banking system was in great need of a mighty bank in New York City to serve as the base of the inflationary pyramid for a host of country and reserve city banks. Shortly after the inception of the system, three national banks had been organized in New York, but none of them were large enough or prestigious enough to serve as the key fulcrum of the new banking structure. Jay Cook, however, was happy to oblige, and he quickly established the Fourth National Bank of New York, capitalized at a huge $5 million. After the war, Jay Cook favored resumption of specie payments, but only if greenbacks could be replaced one-to-one -one by new national banknotes. In his unbounded enthusiasm for national banknotes and their dependence on the federal debt, Cook urged repeal of the $300 million legal limit on national banknote issue. In 1865, he published a pamphlet proclaiming that in less than 20 years, national banknote circulation would total $1 billion. The title of the pamphlet Cook published is revealing. How our national debt may be a national blessing. The debt is public wealth, political union, protection of industry, secure basis for national currency. By 1866, it was clear that the national banking system had replaced the state as the center of the monetary system of the United States. Only a year earlier, in 1865, state banknotes had totaled $142.9 million. By 1866, they had collapsed to $20 million. On the one hand, national banknotes grew from a mere $31.2 million in 1864, their first year of existence, to $276 million in 1866. And while, as we have seen, the number of state banks in existence was falling drastically from 1,466 to 297, the number of national banks grew in that same period, from 66 in 1863 to 1,634 three years later. The Post-Civil War Era, 1865 to 1879. The United States ended the war with a depreciated, inconvertible greenback currency and a heavy burden of public debt. The first question on the monetary agenda was what to do about the greenbacks. A powerful group of industrialists calling for continuation of greenbacks, opposing resumption, and, of course, any contraction of money to prepare for specie resumption, was headed by the Pennsylvania iron and steel manufacturers. The Pennsylvania Iron Masters, who had been in the forefront of the organized protective tariff movement since its beginnings in 1820, were led here and instructed by their intellectual mentor, himself a Pennsylvania Iron Master, the elderly economist Henry C. Carey. Carey and his fellow iron manufacturers realized that during an inflation, since the foreign exchange market anticipates further inflation, domestic currency tends to depreciate faster than domestic prices are rising. A falling dollar and a rising price of gold, they realized, make domestic prices cheaper and imported prices higher, and hence function as a surrogate tariff. A cheap money, inflationist policy, then, could not only provide easy credit for manufacturing, it could also function as an extra tariff because of the depreciation of the dollar and the rise in the gold premium. Imbibers of the Kerry gospel of high tariffs and soft money were a host of attendees at the famous, quote, Kerry Vespers, 
evenings of discussion of economics and politics. Influential Cary disciples included economist and Pennsylvania ironmaster Stephen Cowell, Eber Ward, president of the Iron and Steel Association, John A. Williams, editor of the association's journal, Iron Age, Representative Daniel Morell, Pennsylvania iron manufacturer, I. Smith Homans, Jr., editor of the Banker's Magazine, and powerful U.S. Representative William D. Kelly of Pennsylvania, whose lifelong devotion to the interest of the iron masters earned him the proud sobriquet, quote, Old Pig Iron. The Cary Circle also dominated the American Industrial League, which spread the Cary doctrines of protection and paper money. Influential allies in Congress, if not precisely Cary followers, were the radical leader, Representative Thaddeus Stevens, himself a Pennsylvania ironmaster, and Representative John A. Griswold, an ironmaster from New York. Also sympathetic to greenbacks were many manufacturers who desired cheap credit, gold speculators who were betting on higher gold prices, and railroads, which as heavy debtors to their bondholders, realized that inflation benefits debtors by cheapening the dollar whereas it also tends to expropriate creditors by the same token. One of the influential Cary disciples, for example, was the leading railroad promoter, the Pennsylvanian Thomas A. Scott, leading entrepreneur of the Pennsylvania and the Texas and Pacific Railroads. One of the most flamboyant advocates of greenback inflation in the post-war era was the Wall Street stock speculator Richard Schell. In 1874, Shell became a member of Congress, where he proposed an outrageous pre-Keynesian scheme in the spirit of Keynes's later dictum that so long as money is spent, it doesn't matter what the money is spent on, be it pyramid building or digging holes in the ground. Shell seriously urged the federal government to dig a canal from New York to San Francisco, financed wholly by the issue of greenbacks. Shell's enthusiasm was perhaps matched only by that of the notorious railroad speculator and economic adventurer, George Francis Train, who called repeatedly for immense issues of greenbacks. Train thundered in 1867, quote, Give us greenbacks, we say, and build cities, plant corn, open coal mines, control railways, launch ships, grow cotton, establish factories, open gold and silver mines, erect rolling mills, Carry my resolution, and there is sunshine in the sky. End quote. The Panic of 1873 was a severe blow to many overbuilt railroads, and it was railroad men who led in calling for more greenbacks to stem the tide. Thomas Scott, Collis P. Huntington, leader of the Central Pacific Railroad, Russell Sage, and other railroad men joined in the call for greenbacks. So strong was their influence that the Louisville Courier Journal, in April 1874, declared. Quote, the strongest influence at work in Washington upon the currency proceeded from the railroads. The great inflationists, after all, are the great trunk railroads. End quote. The greenback problem after the Civil War was greatly complicated by the massive public debt that lay over the heads of the American people. A federal debt, which had tallied only $64.7 million in 1860, amounted to the huge amount of $2.32 billion in 1866. Many ex-Jacksonian Democrats, led by Senator George H. Pendleton of Ohio, began to agitate for further issue of greenbacks solely for the purpose of redeeming the principle of federal debts contracted in greenbacks during the war. In a sense, then, hard money hostility to both inflation and the public debt were now at odds. In a sense, the Pendletonians were motivated by a sense of poetic justice, 
of paying inflated debts in inflated paper. But in doing so, they lost sight of the broader hard money goal. This program confused the party struggles of the post-Civil War period. But ultimately, it is safe to say that the Democrats had a far greater proportion of congressmen devoted to hard money and to resumption than did the Republicans. Thus, Secretary of the Treasury Hugh McCullough's, quote, loan bill of March 1866, which provided for contraction of greenbacks in preparation for resumption of specie payments, was passed in the House by a Republican vote of 56 to 52 and a Democratic vote of 27 to 1. And in April 1874, the, quote, inflation bill, admittedly vetoed later by President Grant, which provided for expansion of greenbacks and of national banknotes, was passed in the House by a Republican vote of 105 to 64, while the Democrats voted against by the narrow margin of 35 to 37. In the meantime, despite repeated resolutions for resumption of specie payments in 1865 and 1869, the dominant Republican Party continued to do nothing for actual resumption. The Pendleton Plan was adopted by the Democrats in their 1868 platform, and the Republican victory in the presidential race that year was generally taken as a conclusive defeat for that idea. Finally, however, the Democratic sweep in the congressional elections of 1874 forced the Republicans into a semblance of unity on monetary matters, and, in the lame-duck congressional session led by Senator John Sherman, they came up with the Resumption Act of January 1875. Despite the fact that the Resumption Act ultimately resulted in specie resumption, it was not considered a hard-money victory by contemporaries. Sherman had forged a compromise between hard and soft-money forces. It is true that the U.S. government was supposed to buy gold with government bonds to prepare for resumption on January 1, 1879. But this resumption was four years off, and Congress had expressed intent to resume several times before. And in the meantime, the soft-money men were appeased by the fact that the bill immediately eliminated the $300 million limit on national banknotes in a provision known as, quote, free banking. The only hard-money compensation was an 80% pro-rata contraction of greenbacks to partially offset any new national banknotes. The bulk of the opposition to the Resumption Act was by hard-money congressmen who, in addition to pointing out its biased ambiguities, charged that the contracted greenbacks could be reissued instead of retired. Hard money forces throughout the country had an equally scornful view of the Resumption Act. In a few years, however, they rallied as resumption drew near. That the Republicans were generally less than enthusiastic about specie resumption was revealed by the Grant administration's reaction to the Supreme Court's decision in the first legal tender case. After the end of the war, the question of the constitutionality of legal tender came before the courts. We have seen that the California and Oregon courts decided irredeemable paper to be unconstitutional. In the large number of state court decisions on greenbacks before 1870, every Republican judge but one upheld their constitutionality, whereas every Democratic judge but two declared them unconstitutional. The greenback question reached the U.S. Supreme Court in 1867 and was decided in February 1870 in the case of Hepburn v. Griswold. The court held, by a vote of 5 to 3, with all the Democratic judges voting with the majority and the Republicans in the minority. Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase, who delivered the decision denouncing his own action as Secretary of the Treasury as unnecessary and unconstitutional, 
had swung back to the Democratic Party and had actually been a candidate for the presidential nomination at the 1868 convention. The Grant administration was upset by Hepburn v. Griswold, as were the railroads, who had accumulated a heavy long-term debt, which would now be payable in more valuable gold. As luck would have it, however, there were two vacancies on the court, one of which was created by the retirement of one of the majority judges. Grant appointed not only two Republican judges, but two railroad lawyers whose views on the subject were already known. The new five-to-four majority dutifully and quickly reconsidered the question and, in May 1871, reversed the previous court in the fateful decision of Knox v. Lee. From then on, paper money would be held consonant with the U.S. Constitution. The national banking system was ensconced after the Civil War. The number of banks, national banknotes, and deposits all pyramided upward, and after 1870, state banks began to boom as deposit-creating institutions. With lower requirements and fewer restrictions than the national banks, they could pyramid on top of national banks. The number of national banks increased from 1,294 in 1865 to 1,968 in 1873 while the number of state banks rose from 349 to 1,330 in the same period. Total state and national banknotes and deposits rose from $835 million in 1865 to $1.964 billion in 1873, an increase of 135.2% or an increase of 16.9% per year. The following year, the supply of bank money leveled off as the Panic of 1873 struck and caused numerous bankruptcies. As a general overview of the national banking period, we can agree with Klein that, quote, The financial panics of 1873, 1884, 1893, and 1907 were in large part an outgrowth of reserve pyramiding and excessive deposit creation by reserve city and central reserve city banks. These panics were triggered by the currency drains that took place in periods of relative prosperity when banks were loaned up, end quote. And yet it must be pointed out that the total money supply, even merely the supply of bank money, did not increase after the panic, but merely leveled off. Orthodox economic historians have long complained about the, quote, Great Depression that is supposed to have struck the United States in the Panic of 1873, and lasted for an unprecedented six years, until 1879. Much of this stagnation is supposed to have been caused by a monetary contraction leading to the resumption of specie payments in 1879. Yet what sort of depression is it which saw an extraordinarily large expansion of industry, of railroads, of physical output, of net national product, or real per capita income? As Friedman and Schwartz admit, the decade from 1869 to 1879 saw a 3% per annum increase in money national product, an outstanding real national product growth of 6.8% per year in this period, and a phenomenal rise of 4.5% per year in real product per capita. Even the alleged, quote, monetary contraction never took place, the money supply increasing by 2.7% per year in this period. From 1873 through 1878, before another spurt of monetary expansion, the total supply of bank money rose from $1.964 billion to $2.221 billion, a rise of 13.1% or 2.6% per year. In short, a modest but definite rise, 
and scarcely a contraction. It should be clear, then, that the, quote, Great Depression of the 1870s is merely a myth, a myth brought about by misinterpretation of the fact that prices in general fell sharply during the entire period. Indeed, they fell from the end of the Civil War until 1879. Friedman and Schwartz estimated that prices in general fell from 1869 to 1879 by 3.8% per annum. Unfortunately, most historians and economists are conditioned to believe that steadily and sharply falling prices must result in depression, hence their amazement at the obvious prosperity and economic growth during this era. For they have overlooked the fact that in the natural course of events, when government and the banking system do not increase the money supply very rapidly, free market capitalism will result in an increase of production and economic growth so great as to swamp the increase of money supply. Prices will fall, and the consequences will be not depression or stagnation, but prosperity, since costs are falling too, economic growth, and the spread of the increased living standards to all the consumers. Indeed, recent research has discovered that the analogous, quote, Great Depression in England in this period was also a myth, and due to a confusion between a contraction of prices and its alleged inevitable effect on a depression of prices, and its alleged inevitable effect on a depression of business activity. It might well be that the major effect of the Panic of 1873 was not to initiate a Great Depression, but to cause bankruptcies in overinflated banks and in railroads riding on the tide of vast government subsidy and bank speculation. In particular, we may note Jay Cook, one of the creators of the national banking system and paladin of the public debt. In 1866, he favored contraction of the greenbacks and early resumption because he feared that inflation would destroy the value of government bonds. By the late 1860s, however, the House of Cook was expanding everywhere, and in particular had gotten control of the new Northern Pacific Railroad. Northern Pacific had been the recipient of the biggest federal largesse to railroads during the 1860s, a land grant of no less than 47 million acres. Cook sold Northern Pacific bonds as he had learned to sell government securities, hiring pamphleteers to write propaganda about the alleged Mediterranean climate of the Northwest. Many leading government officials and politicians were on the Cook Northern Pacific payroll, including President Grant's private secretary, General Horace Porter. In 1869, Cook expressed his monetary philosophy in keeping with his enlarged sphere of activity. Quote, why should this grand and glorious country be stunted and dwarfed, its activities chilled and its very lifeblood curdled by these miserable hard-coin theories, the musty theories of a bygone age? These men who are urging on premature resumption know nothing of the great growing West, which would grow twice as fast if it was not cramped for the means necessary to build railroads and improve farms and convey the produce to market. End quote. But in 1873, a remarkable example of poetic justice struck Jay Cook. The overbuilt Northern Pacific was crumbling, and a Cook government bond operation provided a failure. So the mighty house of Cook, quote, stunted and dwarfed by the market economy, crashed and went bankrupt, touching off the Panic of 1873. After the passing of the Resumption Act in 1875, the Republicans finally stumbled their way into resumption in 1879 fully 14 years after the end of the Civil War. The money supply did not contract in the late 1870s because the Republicans did not have the will to contract in order to pave the way for resumption. 
Resumption was finally achieved after substantial sales of U.S. bonds for gold in Europe by Secretary of the Treasury Sherman. Return to the gold standard in 1879 was almost blocked in the last three years before resumption by the emergence of a tremendous agitation, heavily in the West, but also throughout the country, for the free coinage of silver. The United States mint ratios had been undervaluing silver since 1834, and in 1853, de facto gold monometallism was established because silver was so far undervalued as to drive fractional silver coins out of the country. Since 1853, the United States, while de jour on a bimetallic standard at 16 to 1, with the silver dollar still technically in circulation, though non-existent, was actually on a gold monometallic standard with lightweight subsidiary silver coins for fractional use. In 1872, it became apparent to a few knowledgeable men at the U.S. Treasury that silver, which had held at about 15.5 to 1 since the early 1860s, was about to suffer a huge decline in value. The major reason was the realization that European nations were shifting from a silver to a gold standard, thereby decreasing their demand for silver. A subsidiary reason was the discovery of silver mines in Nevada and other states in the West. Working rapidly, these Treasury men, along with Senator Sherman, slipped through Congress in February 1873 a seemingly innocuous bill which in effect discontinued the minting of any further silver dollars. This was followed by an act of June 1874, which completed the demonetization of silver by ending the legal tender quality of all silver dollars above the sum of $5. The timing was perfect, since it was in 1874 that the market value of silver fell to greater than 16 to 1 to gold for the first time. From then on, the market price of silver fell steadily, declining to nearly 18 to 1 in 1876, over 18 to 1 in 1879 and reaching the phenomenal level of 32 to 1 in 1894. In short, after 1874, silver was no longer undervalued but overvalued, and increasingly so in terms of gold at 16 to 1. Except for the acts of 1873 and 1874, labeled by the pro-silver forces as, quote, the crime of 1873, Silver would have flowed into the United States, and the country would have been once again on a de facto monometallic silver standard. The champions of greenbacks, the champions of inflation, saw a, quote, hard money way to increase greatly the amount of American currency, the remonetization of a flood of new overvalued silver. The agitation was to remonetize silver by, quote, the free and unlimited coinage of silver at 16 to 1. It should be recognized that the Silverites had a case. The demonetization of silver was a, quote, crime in the sense that it was done shiftily, deceptively, by men who knew that they wanted to demonetize silver before it was too late and have silver replace gold. The case for gold over silver was a strong one, particularly in an era of rapidly falling value of silver, but it should have been made openly and honestly. The furtive method of demonetizing silver, the, quote, crime against silver, was in part responsible for the vehemence of the silver agitation for the remainder of the century. Ultimately, the administration was able to secure the resumption of payments in gold, but at the expense of submitting to the Bland-Allison Act of 1878, which mandated that the Treasury purchase $2 million to $4 million of silver per month from then on. It should be noted that this first silver agitation of the late 1870s, at least, cannot be considered an agrarian or a particularly southern and western movement. 
The silver agitation was broadly based throughout the nation, except in New England, and was, moreover, an urban movement. As Weinstein points out, quote, Silver began as an urban movement, furthermore, not an agrarian crusade. Its original strongholds were the large towns and cities of the Midwest and the Middle Atlantic states, not the country's farming communities. The first batch of bimetallist leaders were a loosely knit collection of hard-money newspaper editors, businessmen, academic reformers, bankers, and commercial groups. End quote. With the passage of the Silver Purchase Act of 1878, silver agitation died out in America to spring up again in the 1890s. The Gold Standard Era with the National Banking System, 1879 to 1913. The record of 1879 to 1896 was very similar to the first stage of the alleged Great Depression from 1873 to 1879. Once again, we had a phenomenal expansion of American industry, production, and real output per head. Real reproducible, tangible wealth per capita rose at the decadal peak in American history in the 1880s at 3.8% per annum. Real net national product rose at the rate of 3.7% per year from 1879 to 1897, while per capita net national product increased by 1.5% per year. Once again, Orthodox economic historians are bewildered, for there should have been a Great Depression, since prices fell at a rate of over 1% per year in this period. Just as in the previous period, the money supply grew, but not fast enough to overcome the great increases in productivity and the supply of products. The major difference in the two periods is that the money supply rose more rapidly from 1879 to 1897, by 6% per year, compared with the 2.7% per year in the earlier era. As a result, prices fell by less, by over 1% per annum, as contrasted to 3.8%. Total bank money, notes, and deposits rose from $2.45 billion to $6.06 billion in this period, a rise of 10.45% per annum, surely enough to satisfy all but the most ardent inflationists. For those who persist in associating a gold standard with deflation, it should be pointed out that price deflation in the gold standard 1879 to 1897 period was considerably less than price deflation from 1873 to 1879, when the United States was still on a fiat greenback standard. After specie resumption occurred successfully in 1879, the gold premium to greenbacks fell to par and the appreciated greenback promoted confidence in the gold-backed dollar. More foreigners willing to hold dollars meant an inflow of gold into the United States and greater American exports. Some historians have attributed the boom of 1879 to 1882, culminating in a financial crisis in the latter year, to the inflow of gold coin to the U.S., which rose from $110.5 million in 1879 to $358.3 million in 1882. In a sense, this is true, but the boom would never have taken on considerable proportions without the pyramiding of the national banking system, the deposits of which increased from $2.149 billion in 1879 to $2.777 billion in 1882, a rise of 29.2% or 9.7% per annum. Wholesale prices were driven up from 90 in 1879 to 108 three years later, a 22.5% increase before resuming their long-run downward path. 
A financial panic in 1884, coming during a mild contraction after 1882, lowered the supply of bank money. Total banknotes and deposits dropped slightly, from $3.19 billion in 1883 to $3.15 billion. The panic was triggered by an overflow of gold abroad, as foreigners began to lose confidence in the willingness of the United States to remain on the gold standard. This understandable loss of confidence resulted from the inflationary sop to the pro-silver forces in the Bland-Allison Silver Purchase Act of 1878. The shift in treasury balances from gold to silver struck a disquieting note in foreign financial circles. Before examining the critical decade of the 1890s, it is well to point out in some detail the excellent record of the first decade after the return to gold, 1879 to 1889. America went off the gold standard in 1861 and remained off after the war's end. Arguments between hard money advocates who wanted to eliminate unbacked greenbacks and soft money men who wanted to increase them raged through the 1870s until the Grant administration decided in 1875 to resume redemption of paper dollars into gold at pre-war value on the first day of 1879. At the time, in 1875, greenbacks were trading at a discount of roughly 17% against the pre-war gold dollar. A combination of outright paper money deflation and an increase in official gold holdings enabled a return to gold four years later which set the scene for a decade of tremendous economic growth. Economic record-keeping a century ago was not nearly as well-developed as today, but a clear picture comes through nonetheless. The Encyclopedia of American Economic History calls the period under review, quote, one of the most expansive in American history. Capital investment was high, there was little unemployment, and the real costs of production declined rapidly. End quote. Prices, Wages, and Real Wages This is shown most graphically with a look at wages and prices during the decade before and after convertibility. While prices fell during the 1870s and 1880s, wages only fell during the greenback period and rose from 1879 to 1889. The figures tell a remarkable story. Both consumer prices and nominal wages fell by about 30% during the last decade of greenbacks. But from 1879 to 1889, while prices kept falling, wages rose 23%. So real wages, after taking inflation, or the lack of it, into effect, soared. No decade before or since produced such a sustainable rise in real wages. Two possible exceptions are the periods 1909 to 1919, when the index rose from 99 to 140, and 1929 to 1939 when the index rose from 134 to 194. But during the first decade, real wages plummeted the next year, to 129 in 1920, and did not reach 1919's level until 1934. And during the 1930s, real wages also soared, for those fortunate enough to have jobs. In any event, the contrast to this past decade is astonishing. And while there are many reasons why real wages increase, three necessary conditions must be present. Foremost, an absence of sustained inflation. This contributes to the second condition, a rise in savings and capital formation. People will not save if they believe their money will be worth less in the future. Finally, technological advancement is obviously important, but it is not enough. The 1970s saw this third factor present, but the absence of the first two caused real wages to fall. Interest rates. 
Sidney Homer writes in his monumental History of Interest Rates, 2000 BC to the present, that, quote, during the last two decades of the 19th century, 1880 to 1900, long-term bond yields in the United States declined almost steadily. The nation entered its first period of low, long-term interest rates, end quote, finally experiencing the 3 to 3.5 percent long-term rates which had characterized Holland in the 17th century and Britain in the 18th and 19th, in short, the economic giants of their day. To gauge long-term rates of the day, it is best not to use the long-term government bonds we would use today as a measure. The National Banking Acts of 1863 to 1864 stipulated that these bonds had to be used to secure banknotes. This created such a demand for them that, as Homer says, quote, By the mid-1870s, it put government bond prices up to levels where their yields were far below acceptable rates of long-term interest, end quote. But the Commerce Department tracks the unadjusted index of yields of American railroad bonds. For 1878, the year before gold, the yield was 6.45%. For 1879, 5.98%. And 1889, 4.43%. We stress that with consumer prices about 7% lower in 1889 than they had been the decade before, the real rate of return by decade's end was well into double-digit range, a bonanza for savers and lenders. Short-term rates during the last century were considerably more skittish than long-term rates. But even here, the decennial averages of annual averages of both three- to six-month commercial paper rates and overnight call money during the 1880s declined from what it had been the previous decades. Average commercial paper rates fell from 6.46% for the decade of 1870 to 1879 to 5.14% for the decade of 1880 to 1889. Average call money rates fell from 5.73% for the decade of 1870 to 1879 to 3.98% for the decade of 1880 to 1889. A Burst in Productivity by some measures, the 1880s was the most productive decade in our history. In their A Monetary History of the United States, 1867 to 1960, Professors Friedman and Schwartz quote R.W. Goldsmith on the subject, quote, The highest decadal rate of growth of real reproducible, tangible wealth per head from 1805 to 1950, for periods of about 10 years, was apparently reached in the 80s with approximately 3.8%, end quote. The statistics give proof to this outpouring of new wealth. The average gross national product per capita in 1958 prices rose from $531 for the decade of 1869 to 1878 to $774 for the decade of 1879 to 1888 to $795 for the decade of 1889 to 1898. This dollar growth was occurring, remember, in the face of general price declines. The average gross domestic product in 1929 prices rose from $11.6 billion per year for the decade of 1869 to 1878 to $21.2 billion per year for the decade of 1879 to 1888. Gross domestic product almost doubled from the decade before, a far larger percentage jump decade on decade than any time since. Labor productivity increased as manufacturing output per man-hour rose from 14.7 in 1869 to 16.2 in 1879 to 20.5 in 1889. 
the 26.5% increase here ranks among the best in our history. Labor productivity reflects increased capital investment. Capital formation. From 1869 to 1879, the total number of business establishments barely rose, but the next decade saw a 39.4% increase. Nor surprisingly, a decade of falling prices, rising real income, and lucrative interest returns made for tremendous capital investment, ensuring future gains in productivity. There was a massive 500% decade-on-decade increase in the purchase of structures and equipment from 1880 to 1890, and this has never since been even closely rivaled. It stands in particular contrast to the virtual stagnation witnessed by the 1970s. Total private and public capital formation roughly doubled between the 1870s and 1880s. It has repeatedly been alleged that the late 19th century, the golden age of the gold standard in the United States, was a period especially harmful to farmers. The facts, however, tell a different story. While manufacturing in the 1880s grew more rapidly than did agriculture, the census of 1890, report Friedman and Schwartz, quote, was the first in which the net value added by manufacturing exceeded the value of agricultural output, end quote. Farmers had an excellent decade. The number of farms increased from approximately 4 million in 1880 to 4.5 million in 1890. Farmland increased from 536 billion acres in 1880 to 623 billion acres in 1890. Farm productivity increased from 5.1 persons supplied by a farm worker in 1880 to 5.6 in 1890. The value of farm gross output and product increased, in terms of 1910 to 1914 dollars, from $4.1 billion in 1880 to $4.99 billion in 1890. So farms, farmland, productivity, and production all increased in the 1880s, even while commodity prices were falling and farm wage rates, even in nominal terms, rose during this time. In 1879 or 1880, the wage per month, with room and board, was $11.50. In 1889 or 1890, the wage per month, with room and board, was $13.50. This phenomenal economic growth during the decade immediately after the return to gold convertibility cannot be attributed solely to the gold standard. Indeed, all during this time, there was never a completely free market monetary system. The National Banking Acts of 1863 to 1864 had semi-cartelized the banking system. Only certain banks could issue money, but all other banks had to have accounts at these. The financial panics throughout the late 19th century were a result of the arbitrary credit creation powers of the banking system. While not as harmful as today's inflation mechanism, it was still a storm in an otherwise fairly healthy economic climate. The fateful decade of the 1890s saw the return of the agitation for free silver, which had lain dormant for a decade. The Republican Party intensified its longtime flirtation with inflation by passing the Sherman Silver Purchase Act of 1890, which roughly doubled the Treasury purchase requirement of silver. The Treasury was now mandated to buy 4.5 million ounces of silver per month. Furthermore, payment was to be made in a new issue of redeemable greenback currency. Treasury Notes of 1890, which were to be a full legal tender, redeemable in either gold or silver at the discretion of the Treasury. Not only was this an increased commitment to silver, it was a significant step on the road to bimetallism, which, at the depreciated market rates, would mean inflationary silver monometallism. 
In the same year, the Republicans passed the High McKinley Tariff Act of 1890, which reaffirmed their commitment to high tariffs and soft money. Another unsettling inflationary move made in the same year was that the New York sub-treasury altered its long-standing practice of settling its clearinghouse balances in gold coin. Instead, in August 1890, it began using the old greenbacks and the new treasury notes of 1890. As a result, these paper currencies largely replaced gold paid in customs receipts in New York. Uneasiness about the shift from gold to silver and the continuing free silver agitation caused foreigners to lose further confidence in the U.S. gold standard and to cause a drop in capital imports and severe gold outflows from the country. This loss of confidence exerted contractionist pressure on the American economy and reduced potential economic growth during the early 1890s. Fears about the American gold standard were intensified in March 1891. when the Treasury suddenly imposed a stiff fee on the export of gold bars taken from its vaults, so that most gold exported from then on was American gold coin rather than bars. A shock went through the financial community, in the U.S. and abroad, when the United States Senate passed a free silver coinage bill in July 1892. The fact that the bill went no further was not enough to restore confidence in the gold standard. banks began to insert clauses in loans and mortgages requiring payment in gold coin. Clearly, the dollar was no longer trusted. Gold exports intensified in 1892, the Treasury's gold reserve declined, and a run ensued on the U.S. Treasury. In February 1893, the Treasury persuaded New York banks, which had drawn down $6 million on gold from the Treasury by presenting Treasury notes for redemption, to return the gold and reacquire the paper. This act of desperation was scarcely calculated to restore confidence in the paper dollar. The Treasury was paying the price for specie resumption without bothering to contract the paper notes in circulation. The gold standard was therefore inherently shaky, resting only on public confidence, and that was giving way under the silver agitation and under desperate acts by the Treasury. Poor Grover Cleveland, a hard-money Democrat, assumed the presidency in the middle of this monetary crisis. Two months later, the stock market collapsed, and a month afterward, in June 1893, distrust of the fractional reserve banks led to massive bank runs and bank failures throughout the country. Once again, however, many banks, national and state, especially in the West and South, were allowed to suspend specie payments. The Panic of 1893 was on. In a few months, Eastern Bank suspension occurred, beginning with New York City. The total money supply, gold coin, treasury paper, national banknotes, and national and state bank deposits fell by 6.3% in one year, from June 1892 to June 1893. Suspension of specie payments resulted in deposits, which were no longer immediately redeemable in cash, going to a discount in relation to currency during the month of August. As a result, Deposits became less useful, and the public tried its best to intensify its exchange of deposits for currency. By the end of 1893, the panic was over, as foreign confidence rose with the Cleveland administration's successful repeal of the Sherman Silver Purchase Act in November of that year. Further silver agitation of 1895 endangered the Treasury's gold reserve, but heroic acts of the Treasury— including buying gold from a syndicate of bankers headed by J.P. Morgan and August Belmont, restored confidence in the continuance of the gold standard. The victory of the Free Silver Bryanite forces at the 1896 Democratic Convention caused further problems for gold, 
but the victory of the pro-gold Republicans put an end to the problem of domestic and foreign confidence in the gold standard. 1896. The Transformation of the American Party System Orthodox economic historians attribute the triumph of William Jennings Bryan in the Democratic Convention of 1896 and his later renominations for president to a righteous rising up of the people demanding inflation over the interests holding out for gold. Friedman and Schwartz attribute the rise of Bryanism to a price contraction of the last three decades of the 19th century and the triumph of gold and disappearance of the, quote, money issue to the price rise after 1896. This conventional analysis overlooks several problems. First, if Bryan represented the people versus the interests, why did Bryan lose and lose soundly, not once, but three times? Why did gold triumph long before any price inflation became obvious, in fact, at the depths of price contraction in 1896? But the main neglect of the conventional analysis is the disregard of the highly illuminating insights provided in the past 15 years by the, quote, new political history of 19th century American politics and its political culture. The new political history began by going beyond national political issues, largely economic, and investigating state and local political contests. It also dug into the actual voting records of individual parishes, wards, and counties, and discovered how people voted and why they voted the way they did. The work of the new political history is truly interdisciplinary, for its methods range from sophisticated techniques for voting analysis to illuminating insights into American ethnic religious history. In the following pages, we shall present a summary of the findings of the new political history on the American party structure of the late 19th century and after, and on the transformation of 1896 in particular. First, the history of American political parties is one of successive, quote, party systems. Each party system lasts several decades, with each particular party having a certain central character. In many cases, the name of the party can remain the same, but its essential character can drastically change, in the so-called, quote, critical elections. In the 19th century, the nation's second party system, the Whigs versus Democrats, lasting from about 1832 to 1854, was succeeded by the third system, the Republicans versus Democrats, lasting from 1854 to 1896. Characteristic of both party systems was that each party was committed to a distinctive ideology clashing with the other, and these conflicting worldviews made for fierce and close contests. Elections were particularly hard fought. Interest was high since the parties offered a, quote, choice, not an echo, and so the turnout rate was remarkably high often reaching 80 to 90 percent of eligible voters. More remarkably, candidates did not, as we are used to in the 20th century, fuzz their ideology during campaigns in order to appeal to a floating, ideologically different, independent voter. There were very few independent voters. The way to win elections, therefore, was to bring out your vote, and the way to do that was to intensify and strengthen your ideology during campaigns. Any fuzzing over would lead the Republican or Democratic constituents to stay home in disgust, and the election would be lost. Very rarely would there be a crossover to the other, hated party. One problem that strikes anyone interested in 19th century political history is, how come the average person exhibited such great and intense interest in such arcane economic topics as banking, gold and silver, and tariffs? Thousands of half-literate people wrote embattled tracts on these topics, and voters were intensely interested. Attributing the answer to inflation or depression, 
to seemingly economic interests, as do Marxists and other economic determinists, simply won't do. The far greater depressions and inflations of the 20th century have not induced nearly as much mass interest in economics as did the milder economic crises of the past century. Only the findings of the new political historians have cleared up this puzzle. It turns out that the mass of the public was not necessarily interested in what the elites or national politicians were talking about. The most intense and direct interest of the voters was applied to local and state issues, and on these local levels the two parties waged an intense and furious political struggle that lasted from the 1830s to the 1890s. The beginning of the century-long struggle began with the profound transformation of American Protestantism in the 1830s. This transformation swept like wildfire across the northern states, particularly Yankee territory, during the 1830s, leaving the South virtually untouched. The transformation found particular root among Yankee culture with its aggressive and domineering spirit. This new Protestantism, called Pietism, was born in the fires of Charles Finney and the Great Revival Movement of the 1830s. Its credo was roughly as follows. Each individual is responsible for his own salvation and it must come in an emotional moment of being, quote, born again. Each person can achieve salvation. Each person must do his best to save everyone else. This compulsion to save others was more than simple missionary work. It meant that one would go to hell unless he did his best to save others. But since each person is alone and facing the temptation to sin, this role can only be done by the use of the state. The role of the state was to stamp out sin and create a new Jerusalem on earth. The Pietists defined sin very broadly. In particular, the most important politically was, quote, demon rum, which clouded men's minds and therefore robbed them of their theological free will. In the 1830s, the evangelical Pietists launched a determined and indefatigable prohibitionist crusade on the state and local level that lasted a century. Second was any activity on Sunday except going to church, which led to a drive for Sabbatarian blue laws. Drinking on Sunday was, of course, a double sin, and hence was particularly heinous. Another vital thrust of the new Yankee pietism was to try to extirpate Roman Catholicism, which robs communicants of their theological free will by subjecting them to the dictates of priests who are agents of the Vatican. If Roman Catholics could not be prohibited per se, their immigration could be slowed down or stopped, and since their adults were irrevocably steeped in sin, it became vital for crusading pietists to try to establish public schools as compulsory forces for Protestantizing society, or, as the pietists like to put it, to, quote, Christianize the Catholics. If the adults are hopeless, the children must be saved by the public school and compulsory attendance laws. Such was the political program of Yankee pietism. Not all immigrants were scorned. British, Norwegian, or other immigrants who belonged to pietist churches, whether nominally Calvinists or Lutheran or not, were welcomed as, quote, true Americans. The Northern Pietists found their home almost to a man, first in the Whig Party, and then in the Republican Party. And they did so, too, among the Greenback and Populist Parties, as we shall see further below. There came to this country during the century an increasing number of Catholic and Lutheran immigrants, especially from Ireland and Germany. The Catholics and High Lutherans, who have been called, quote, ritualists or liturgicals, had a very different kind of religious culture. Each person is not responsible for his own salvation directly. If he is to be saved, he joins the church and obeys its liturgy and sacraments. In a profound sense, then, the church is responsible for one's salvation, and there was no need for the state to stamp out temptation. 
These churches then, especially the Lutheran, had a laissez-faire attitude toward the state and morality. Furthermore, their definitions of sin were not nearly as broad as the pietists. Liquor is fine in moderation, and drinking beer with the family in beer parlors on Sunday after church was a cherished German tradition, Catholic and Lutheran. And parochial schools were vital in transmitting religious values to their children in a country where they were in a minority. Virtually to a man, Catholics and High Lutherans found their home during the 19th century in the Democratic Party. It is no wonder that the Republicans gloried in calling themselves throughout the period, quote, the party of great moral ideas, while the Democrats declared themselves to be, quote, the party of personal liberty. For nearly a century, the bemused liturgical Democrats fought a defensive struggle against people whom they considered pietist fanatics, constantly swooping down trying to outlaw their liquor, their Sunday beer parlors, and their parochial schools. How did all this relate to the economic issues of the day? Simply that the leaders of each party went to their voting constituents and raised their consciousness to get them vitally interested in national economic questions. Thus, the Republican leaders would go to their rank and file and say, just as we need big paternalistic government on the local and state level to stamp out sin and compel morality, so we need big government on the national level to increase everyone's purchasing power through inflation, keeping out cheap foreign goods through tariffs, or keeping out cheap foreign labor through immigration restrictions. And for their part, the Democratic leaders would go to their constituents and say, just as the Republican fanatics are trying to take away your liquor, your beer parlors, and your parochial schools, so the same people are trying to keep out cheap foreign goods through tariffs and trying to destroy the value of your savings through inflation. Paternalistic government on the federal level is just as evil as it is at home. So statism and libertarianism were expanded to other issues and other levels. Each side infused its economic issues with a moral fervor and passion stemming from deeply held religious values. The mystery of the passionate interest of Americans in economic issues in the epic is solved. Both in the second and third party systems, however, the Whigs and then the Republicans had a grave problem. Partly because of demographics, greater immigration, and higher birth rates, the Democratic liturgicals were slowly but surely becoming the majority party in the country. The Democrats were split asunder by the slavery question in the 1840s and 1850s, but now, by 1890, the Republicans saw the handwriting on the wall. The Democratic victory in the congressional races in 1890, followed by the unprecedented landslide victory of Grover Cleveland carrying both houses of Congress in 1892, indicated to the Republicans that they were becoming doomed to be a permanent minority. To remedy the problem, the Republicans, in the early 1890s, led by Ohio Republicans William McKinley and Mark Hanna, launched a shrewd campaign of reconstruction. In particular, in state after state, they ditched the prohibitionists, who were becoming an embarrassment and losing the Republicans' large numbers of German Lutheran votes. Also, they modified their hostility to immigration. By the mid-1890s, the Republicans had moved rapidly toward the center, toward fuzzing over their political pietism. In the meanwhile, an upheaval was beginning to occur in the Democratic Party. The South, by now a one-party Democratic region, was having its own pietism transformed by the 1890s. Quiet pietists were now becoming evangelical, and Southern Protestant organizations began to call for prohibition. Then the new, sparsely settled mountain states, many of them with silver mines, were largely pietists. Moreover, a power vacuum, which would ordinarily have been temporary, had been created in the National Democratic Party. 
Or Grover Cleveland, a hard-money laissez-faire Democrat, was blamed for the Panic of 1893, and many leading Cleveland Democrats lost their gubernatorial and senatorial posts in the 1894 elections. The Cleveland Democrats were temporarily weak, and the Southern Mountain Coalition was ready to hand. Seeing this opportunity, William Jennings Bryan and his pietist coalition seized control of the Democratic Party at the momentous convention of 1896. The Democratic Party was never to be the same again. The Catholics, Lutherans, and laissez-faire Cleveland Democrats were in mortal shock. The, quote, party of our fathers was lost. The Republicans, who had been moderating their stance anyway, saw the opportunity of a lifetime. At the Republican convention, Representative Henry Cabot Lodge, representing the Morgans and the pro-gold standard Boston financial interests, told McKinley and Hannah, pledge yourself to the gold standard, the basic Cleveland economic issue, and drop your silverite and greenback tendencies, and we will all back you. Refuse, and we will support Brian or a third party. McKinley struck the deal, and from then on, the Republicans, in 19th century terms, were a centrist party. Their principles were now high tariffs and the gold standard, and prohibition was quietly forgotten. What would the poor liturgicals do? Many of them stayed home in droves, and indeed, the election of 1896 marks the beginning of the great slide downward in voter turnout rates that continues to the present day. Some of them, in anguish at the pietist, inflationist, and prohibitionist Bryanites, actually conquered their anguish and voted Republican for the first time in their lives. The Republicans, after all, had dropped the hated prohibitionists and adopted gold. The election of 1896 inaugurated the fourth-party system in America. From the third-party system of closely fought, seesawing races between a pious status Republican Party versus a liturgical libertarian Democratic Party, the fourth-party system consisted of a majority-centrist Republican Party against a minority-pietist Democratic Party. After a few years, the Democrats lost their pietist nature, and they too became a centrist, though usually minority party, with a moderately statist ideology scarcely distinguishable from the Republicans. So went the fourth-party system until 1932. A charming anecdote told to us by Richard Jensen sums up much of the 1896 election. The heavily German city of Milwaukee had been mainly Democratic for years. The German Lutherans and Catholics in America were devoted, in particular, to the gold standard and were bitter enemies of inflation. The Democratic nomination for Congress in Milwaukee had been obtained by a populist Democrat, Richard Schilling. Sounding for all the world like modern monetarists or Keynesians, Schilling tried to explain to the assembled Germans of Milwaukee in a campaign speech that it didn't really matter what commodity was chosen as money, that, quote, gold, silver, copper, paper, sauerkraut, or sausages would do equally well as money. At that point, the German masses of Milwaukee laughed Schilling off the stage, and the shrewdly opportunistic Republicans adopted as their campaign slogan, Schilling and sauerkraut, and swept Milwaukee. The Greenbackers and later the pro-silver, inflationist, Bryanite populist party were not, quote, agrarian parties. They were collections of pietists aiming to stamp out personal and political sin. Thus, as Kleppner points out, quote, the Greenback Party was less an amalgamation of economic pressure groups than an ad hoc coalition of true believers, ideologues who launched their party as a quasi-religious movement that bore the indelible hallmark of a transfiguring faith, end quote. The Greenbackers perceived their movement as the, quote, religion of the master in motion among men, end quote. 
And the populists described their 1890 free silver contest in Kansas, not as a political campaign, but as, quote, a religious revival, a crusade, a Pentecost of politics in which a tongue of flame sat upon every man, and each spake as the Spirit gave him utterance, end quote. The people had, quote, heard the word and could preach the gospel of populism. It was no accident, we see now, that the Greenbackers almost invariably endorsed prohibition, compulsory public schooling, and crushing of parochial schools, or that populists in many states, quote, declared unequivocally for prohibition or entered various forms of fusion with the Prohibition Party. The transformation of 1896 and the death of the third-party system meant the end of America's great laissez-faire, hard-money libertarian party. The Democratic Party was no longer the party of Jefferson, Jackson, and Cleveland. With no further political embodiment for laissez-faire in existence, and with both parties offering, quote, an echo, not a choice, public interest in politics steadily declined. A power vacuum was left in American politics for the new corporate statist ideology of progressivism, which swept both parties and created a short-lived progressive party in America after 1900. The progressive era of 1900 to 1918 fastened a welfare warfare state on America, which has set the mold for the rest of the 20th century. Statism arrived after 1900, not because of inflation or deflation, but because a unique set of conditions had destroyed the Democrats as a laissez-faire party and left a power vacuum for the triumph of the new ideology of compulsory cartelization through a partnership of big government, business, unions, technocrats, and intellectuals. Part 2. The Origins of the Federal Reserve The Progressive Movement the Federal Reserve Act of December 23, 1913, was part and parcel of the wave of progressive legislation on local, state, and federal levels of government that began about 1900. Progressivism was a bipartisan movement which, in the course of the first two decades of the 20th century, transformed the American economy and society from one of roughly laissez-faire to one of centralized statism. Until the 1960s, historians had established the myth that progressivism was a virtual uprising of workers and farmers who, guided by a new generation of altruistic experts and intellectuals, surmounted fierce big business opposition in order to curb, regulate, and control what had been a system of accelerating monopoly in the late 19th century. A generation of research and scholarship, however, has now exploded that myth for all parts of the American polity and it has become all too clear that the truth is the reverse of this well-worn fable. In contrast, what actually happened was that business became increasingly competitive during the late 19th century, and that various big business interests, led by the powerful financial house of J.P. Morgan and Company, had tried desperately to establish successful cartels on the free market. The first wave of such cartels was in the first large-scale business, railroads, and in every case, the attempt to increase profits by cutting sales with the quota system and thereby to raise prices or rates collapsed quickly from internal competition within the cartel and from external competition by new competitors eager to undercut the cartel. During the 1890s, in the new field of large-scale industrial corporations, Big business interests tried to establish high prices and reduce production via mergers, and again, in every case, the mergers collapsed from the winds of the new competition. In both sets of cartel attempts, J.P. Morgan and Company had taken the lead, and in both sets of cases, the market, hampered though it was by high protective tariff walls, managed to nullify these attempts at voluntary cartelization. 
it then became clear to these big business interests that the only way to establish a cartelized economy, an economy that would ensure their continued economic dominance and high profits, would be to use the powers of government to establish and maintain cartels by coercion. In other words, to transform the economy from roughly laissez-faire to centralized and coordinated statism. But how could the American people, steeped in a long tradition of fierce opposition to government-imposed monopoly, go along with this program? How could the public's consent to the new order be engineered? Fortunately for the cartelists, a solution to this vexing problem lay at hand. Monopoly could be put over in the name of opposition to monopoly. In that way, using the rhetoric beloved by Americans, the form of the political economy could be maintained, while the content could be totally reversed. Monopoly had always been defined in the popular parlance and among economists as, quote, grants of exclusive privilege by the government. It was now simply redefined as, quote, big business or business competitive practices, such as price cutting, so that regulatory commissions from the Interstate Commerce Commission to the Federal Trade Commission to state insurance commissions were lobbied for and staffed by big business men from the regulated industry all done in the name of curbing, quote, big business monopoly on the free market. In that way, the regulatory commissions could subsidize, restrict, and cartelize in the name of, quote, opposing monopoly, as well as promoting the general welfare and national security. Once again, it was railroad monopoly that paved the way. For this intellectual shell game, the cartelists needed the support of the nation's intellectuals, the class of professional opinion molders in society. The Morgans needed a smokescreen of ideology, setting forth the rationale and the apologetics for the new order. Again, fortunately for them, the intellectuals were ready and eager for the new alliance. The enormous growth of intellectuals, academics, social scientists, technocrats, engineers, social workers, physicians, and occupational, quote, guilds of all types in the late 19th century led most of these groups to organize for a far greater share of the pie than they could possibly achieve on the free market. These intellectuals needed the state to license, restrict, and cartelize their occupations so as to raise the incomes for the fortunate people already in these fields. In return for their serving as apologists for the new statism, the state was prepared to offer not only cartelized occupations, but also ever-increasing and cushier jobs in the bureaucracy to plan and propagandize for the newly statized society. And the intellectuals were ready for it, having learned in graduate schools in Germany the glories of statism and organicist socialism, of a harmonious, quote, middle way between dog-eat-dog laissez-faire on the one hand and proletarian Marxism on the other. Instead, big government, staffed by intellectuals and technocrats, steered by big business and aided by unions organizing a subservient labor force, would impose a cooperative commonwealth for the alleged benefit of all. Unhappiness with the National Banking System The previous big push for statism in America had occurred during the Civil War, when the virtual one-party Congress, after secession of the South, emboldened the Republicans to enact their cherished status program under the cover of war. The alliance of big business and big government with the Republican Party drove through an income tax, heavy excise taxes on such sinful products as tobacco and alcohol, high protective tariffs, and huge land grants and other subsidies to transcontinental railroads. The overbuilding of railroads led directly to Morgan's failed attempts at railroad pools, and finally to the creation 
promoted by Morgan and Morgan Controlled Railroads, of the Interstate Commerce Commission in 1887. The result of that was the long, secular decline of the railroads, beginning before 1900. The income tax was annulled by Supreme Court action, but was reinstated during the progressive period. The most interventionary of the Civil War actions was in the vital field of money and banking. The approach toward hard money and free banking that had been achieved during the 1840s and 1850s was swept away by two pernicious inflationary measures of the wartime Republican administration. One was fiat money greenbacks, which depreciated by half by the middle of the Civil War and were finally replaced by the gold standard after urgent pressure by hard money Democrats, but not until 1879 some 14 full years after the end of the war. A second and more lasting intervention was the National Banking Acts of 1863, 1864, and 1865, which destroyed the issue of banknotes by state-chartered or, quote, state banks by a prohibitory tax and then monopolized the issue of banknotes in the hands of a few large, federally-chartered, quote, national banks, mainly centered on Wall Street. In a typical cartelization, national banks were compelled by law to accept each other's notes and demand deposits at par, negating the process by which the free market had previously been discounting the notes and deposits of shaky and inflationary banks. In this way, the Wall Street federal government establishment was able to control the banking system and inflate the supply of notes and deposits in a coordinated manner. But there were still problems. The national banking system provided only a halfway house between free banking and government central banking, and by the end of the 19th century, the Wall Street banks were becoming increasingly unhappy with the status quo. The centralization was only limited, and, above all, there was no governmental central bank to coordinate inflation, and to act as a lender of last resort, bailing out banks in trouble. No sooner had bank credit generated booms when they got into trouble and bank-created booms turned into recessions, with banks forced to contract their loans and assets and to deflate in order to save themselves. Not only that, but after the initial shock of the National Banking Acts, State banks had grown rapidly by pyramiding their loans and demand deposits on top of national banknotes. These state banks, free of the high legal capital requirements that kept entry restricted in national banking, flourished during the 1880s and 1890s and provided stiff competition for the national banks themselves. Furthermore, St. Louis and Chicago, after the 1880s, provided increasingly severe competition to Wall Street. Thus, St. Louis and Chicago bank deposits, which had been only 16% of the St. Louis, Chicago, and New York City total in 1880, rose to 33% of that total by 1912. All in all, bank clearings outside of New York City, which were 24% of the national total in 1882, had risen to 43% by 1913. The complaints of the big banks were summed up in one word, inelasticity. The national banking system, they charged, did not provide for the proper elasticity of the money supply, that is, 
the banks were not able to expand money and credit as much as they wished, particularly in times of recession. In short, the national banking system did not provide sufficient room for inflationary expansions of credit by the nation's banks. By the turn of the century, the political economy of the United States was dominated by two generally clashing financial aggregations. The previously dominant Morgan Group, which had begun in investment banking and expanded into commercial banking, railroads, and mergers of manufacturing firms, and the Rockefeller Forces, which began in oil refining and then moved into commercial banking, finally forming an alliance with the Kuhn-Leb Company in investment banking and the Harriman interests in railroads. Although these two financial blocks usually clashed with each other, they were as one on the need for a central bank. Even though the eventual major role in forming and dominating the Federal Reserve System was taken by the Morgans, the Rockefeller and Kuhn-Leb forces were equally enthusiastic in pushing and collaborating on what they all considered to be an essential monetary reform. The Beginnings of the Reform Movement The Indianapolis Monetary Convention The presidential election of 1896 was a great national referendum on the gold standard. The Democratic Party had been captured at its 1896 convention by the populist, ultra-inflationist, anti-gold forces headed by William Jennings Bryan. The older Democrats, who had been fiercely devoted to hard money and the gold standard, either stayed home on election day or voted, for the first time in their lives, for the hated Republicans. The Republicans had long been the party of prohibition and of greenback inflation and opposition to gold. But since the early 1890s, the Rockefeller forces, dominant in their home state of Ohio and nationally in the Republican Party, had decided to quietly ditch prohibition as a political embarrassment and as a grave deterrent to obtaining votes from the increasingly powerful bloc of German-American voters. In the summer of 1896, anticipating the defeat of the gold forces at the Democratic Convention, the Morgans, previously dominant in the Democratic Party, approached the McKinley, Mark Hanna, Rockefeller forces through their rising young satrap, Congressman Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts. Lodge offered the Rockefeller forces a deal. The Morgans would support McKinley for president and neither sit home nor back a third gold Democrat party, provided that McKinley pledged himself to a gold standard. The deal was struck, and many previously hard-money Democrats shifted to the Republicans. The nature of the American political party system was now drastically changed. Previously, a tightly fought struggle between hard money, free trade, laissez-faire Democrats on the one hand, and protectionist, inflationist, and statist Republicans on the other, with the Democrats slowly but surely gaining ascendancy by the early 1890s, was now a party system that would be dominated by the Republicans until the Depression election of 1932. The Morgans were strongly opposed to Bryanism, which was not only populist and inflationist, but also anti-Wall Street Bank. The Bryanites, much like populists of the present day, preferred congressional, greenback inflationism to the more subtle and more privileged, big-bank-controlled variety. The Morgans, in contrast, favored a gold standard. But, once gold was secured by the McKinley victory in 1896, 
They wanted to press on to use the gold standard as a hard money camouflage, behind which they could change the system into one less nakedly inflationist than populism, but far more effectively controlled by the big banker elites. In the long run, a controlled Morgan-Rockefeller gold standard was far more pernicious to the cause of genuine hard money than a candid free silver or greenback Bryanism. As soon as McKinley was safely elected, the Morgan-Rockefeller forces began to organize a, quote, reform movement to cure the, quote, inelasticity of money in the existing gold standard and to move slowly toward the establishment of a central bank. To do so, they decided to use the techniques they had successfully employed in establishing a pro-gold standard movement during 1895 and 1896. The crucial point was to avoid the public suspicion of Wall Street and banker control by acquiring the patina of a broad-based, grassroots movement. To do so, the movement was deliberately focused in the Middle West, the heartland of America, and organizations developed that included not only bankers, but also businessmen, economists, and other academics who supplied respectability, persuasiveness, and technical expertise to the reform cause. Accordingly, the reform drive began just after the 1896 elections in authentic Midwest country. Hugh Henry Hanna, president of the Atlas Engine Works of Indianapolis, who had learned organizing tactics during the year with the pro-gold standard union for sound money, sent a memorandum in November to the Indianapolis Board of Trade, urging a grassroots Midwestern state like Indiana to take the lead in currency reform. In response, the reformers moved fast. Answering the call of the Indianapolis Board of Trade, delegates from boards of trade from 12 Midwestern cities met in Indianapolis on December 1, 1896. The conference called for a large monetary convention of businessmen, which accordingly met in Indianapolis on January 12, 1897. Representatives from 26 states and the District of Columbia were present. The monetary reform movement was now officially underway. The influential Yale Review commended the convention for averting the danger of arousing popular hostility to bankers. It reported that, quote, the conference was a gathering of businessmen in general rather than bankers in particular, end quote. The conventioneers may have been businessmen, but they were certainly not very grassrootsy. Presiding at the Indianapolis Monetary Convention of 1897 was C. Stuart Patterson, dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School and a member of the finance committee of the powerful, Morgan-oriented Pennsylvania Railroad. The day after the convention opened, Hugh Hanna was named chairman of an executive committee which he would appoint. The committee was empowered to act for the convention after it adjourned. The executive committee consisted of the following influential corporates and financial leaders. John J. Mitchell of Chicago, president of the Illinois Trust and Savings Bank, and a director of the Chicago and Alton Railroad, the Pittsburgh, Fort Wayne, and Chicago Railroad, and the Pullman Company. Mitchell was named treasurer of the executive committee. H. H. Colsot, editor and publisher of the Chicago Times-Herald and the Chicago Ocean-Herald, trustee of the Chicago Art Institute, and a friend and advisor of Rockefeller's main man in politics, President William McKinley. 
Charles Custis Harrison, provost of the University of Pennsylvania, who had made a fortune as a sugar refiner in partnership with the powerful Havemeyer, quote, sugar trust interests. Alexander E. Orr, New York City banker in the Morgan Ambit, who was a director of the Morgan Run, Erie and Chicago, Rock Island and Pacific Railroads, of the National Bank of Commerce, and of the influential publishing house, Harper Brothers. Orr was also a partner in the country's largest grain merchandising firm and a director of several life insurance companies. Edwin O. Stannard, St. Louis grain merchant, former governor of Missouri, and former vice president of the National Board of Trade and Transportation. E.B. Stallman, owner of the Nashville Banner, commissioner of the Cartelist Southern Railway and Steamship Association, and former vice president of the Louisville, New Albany, and Chicago Railroad. A.E. Wilson, influential attorney from Louisville and a future governor of Kentucky. But the two most interesting and powerful executive committee members of the Indianapolis Monetary Convention were Henry C. Payne and George Foster Peabody. Henry Payne was a Republican Party leader from Milwaukee and president of the Morgan-dominated Wisconsin Telephone Company, long associated with the railroad-oriented Spooner-Sawyer Republican machine in Wisconsin politics. Payne was also heavily involved in Milwaukee utility and banking interests, in particular as a longtime director of the North American Company, a large public utility holding company headed by New York City financier Charles W. Wetmore. So close was North American to the Morgan interests that its board included two top Morgan financiers. One was Edmund C. Converse, president of the Morgan-run Liberty National Bank of New York City, and soon to be founding president of Morgan's Bankers Trust Company. The other was Robert Bacon, a partner in J.P. Morgan and Company, and one of Theodore Roosevelt's closest friends, whom Roosevelt would make assistant secretary of state. Furthermore, when Theodore Roosevelt became president as the result of the assassination of William McKinley, he replaced Rockefeller's top political operative, Mark Hanna of Ohio, with Henry C. Payne as Postmaster General of the United States. Payne, a leading Morgan lieutenant, was reportedly appointed to what was then the major political post in the cabinet, specifically to break Hanna's hold over the National Republican Party. It seems clear that replacing Hanna with Payne was part of the savage assault that Theodore Roosevelt would soon launch against Standard Oil, as part of the open warfare about to break out between the Rockefeller, Harriman, Kuhn Leb camp and the Morgan camp. Even more powerful in the Morgan ambit was the secretary of the Indianapolis Monetary Convention's executive committee, George Foster Peabody. The entire Peabody family of Boston Brahmins had long been personally and financially closely associated with the Morgans. A member of the Peabody clan had even served as best man at J.P. Morgan's wedding in 1865. George Peabody had long ago established an international banking firm of which J.P. Morgan's father, Junius, had been one of the senior partners. George Foster Peabody was an eminent New York investment banker with extensive holdings in Mexico, who was to help reorganize General Electric for the Morgans, and was later offered the job of Secretary of the Treasury during the Wilson administration. He would function throughout that administration as a, quote, statesman without portfolio. 
Let the masses be hoodwinked into regarding the Indianapolis Monetary Convention as a spontaneous, grassroots outpouring of small Midwestern businessmen. To the Kanyashanti, any organization featuring Henry Payne, Alexander Orr, and especially George Foster Peabody meant but one thing. J.P. Morgan The Indianapolis Monetary Convention quickly resolved to urge President McKinley to 1. Continue the gold standard, and 2. Create a new system of, quote, elastic bank credit. To that end, the convention urged the president to appoint a new monetary commission to prepare legislation for a new, revised monetary system. McKinley was very much in favor of the proposal, signaling Rockefeller agreements, and on July 24th, he sent a message to Congress urging the creation of a special monetary commission. The bill for a national monetary commission passed the House of Representatives, but died in the Senate. Disappointed but intrepid, the executive committee, failing a presidentially appointed commission, decided in August 1897 to go ahead and select its own. The leading role in appointing this commission was played by George Foster Peabody, who served as liaison between the Indianapolis members and the New York financial community. To select the commission members, Peabody arranged for the executive committee to meet in the Saratoga Springs summer home of his investment banking partner, Spencer Trask. By September, the executive committee had selected the members of the Indianapolis Monetary Commission. The members of the new Indianapolis Monetary Commission were as follows. Chairman was former Senator George F. Edmonds, Republican of Vermont, attorney, and former director of several railroads. C. Stuart Patterson, dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School and a top official of the Morgan-controlled Pennsylvania Railroad. Charles S. Fairchild, a leading New York banker, president of the New York Security and Trust Company, former partner in the Boston Brahmin investment banking firm of Lee Higginson & Company, and executive and director of two major railroads. Fairchild, a leader in New York state politics, had been Secretary of the Treasury in the first Cleveland administration. In addition, Fairchild's father, Sidney T. Fairchild, had been a leading attorney for the Morgan-controlled New York Central Railroad. Stuvescent Fish, scion of two longtime aristocratic New York families, was a partner of the Morgan-dominated New York Investment Bank of Morton, Bliss & Company and then president of Illinois Central Railroad and a trustee of Mutual Life. Fish's father had been a senator, governor, and secretary of state. Louis A. Garnett was a leading San Francisco businessman. Thomas G. Bush of Alabama was the director of the Mobile and Birmingham Railroad. J.W. Fries was a leading cotton manufacturer from North Carolina. William B. Dean was a merchant from St. Paul, Minnesota, and a director of the St. Paul-based Transcontinental Great Northern Railroad, owned by James J. Hill, ally with Morgan in the titanic struggle over the Northern Pacific Railroad with Harriman, Rockefeller, and Kuhn Leb. George Layton of St. Louis was an attorney for the Missouri Pacific Railroad. Robert S. Taylor was an Indiana patent attorney for the Morgan-controlled General Electric Company. The single, most important working member of the commission was James Lawrence Laughlin, head professor of political economy at the new Rockefeller-founded University of Chicago 
and editor of its prestigious Journal of Political Economy. It was Laughlin who supervised the operations of the Commission's staff and the writing of the reports. Indeed, the two staff assistants to the Commission who wrote reports were both students of Laughlin's at Chicago, former student L. Carroll Roots and his current graduate student, Henry Parker Willis. The impressive sum of $50,000 was raised throughout the nation's banking and corporate community to finance the work of the Indianapolis Monetary Commission. New York City's large quota was raised by Morgan Bankers Peabody and Orr, and heavy contributions to fill the quota came promptly from mining magnate William E. Dodge, cotton and coffee trader Henry Hentz, a director of the Mechanics National Bank, and J.P. Morgan himself. With the money in hand, the executive committee rented office space in Washington, D.C. in mid-September and set the staff to sending out and collating the replies to a detailed monetary questionnaire sent to several hundred selected experts. The Monetary Commission sat from late September into December 1897, sifting through the replies to the questionnaire collated by Roots and Willis. The purpose of the questionnaire was to mobilize a broad base of support for the Commission's recommendations, which they could claim represented hundreds of expert views. Second, the questionnaire served as an important public relations device, making the Commission and its work highly visible to the public, to the business community throughout the country, and to members of Congress. Furthermore, through this device, the Commission could be seen as speaking for the business community throughout the country. To this end, the original idea was to publish the Indianapolis Monetary Commission's preliminary report, adopted in mid-December, as well as the questionnaire replies in a companion volume. Plans for the questionnaire volume fell through, although it was later published as part of a series of publications on political economy and public law by the University of Pennsylvania. Undaunted by the slight setback, the Executive Committee developed new methods of molding public opinion using the questionnaire replies as an organizing tool. In November, Hugh Hanna hired as his Washington assistant financial journalist Charles A. Conant, whose task was to propagandize and organize public opinion for the recommendations of the Commission. The campaign to beat the drums for the forthcoming Commission report was launched when Conant published an article in the December 1st issue of Sound Currency magazine, taking an advanced line on the report and bolstering the conclusions not only with his own knowledge of monetary and banking history, but also with frequent statements from the as-yet-unpublished replies to the staff questionnaire. Over the next several months, Conant worked closely with Jules Guthridge, the General Secretary of the Commission. They first induced newspapers throughout the country to print abstracts of the questionnaire replies. As Guthridge wrote some Commission members, he thereby stimulated, quote, public curiosity about the forthcoming report, and he boasted that by, quote, careful manipulation, he was able to get the preliminary report, quote, printed in whole or in parts, principally in parts, in nearly 7,500 newspapers, large and small, end quote. In the meanwhile, Guthridge and Conant orchestrated letters of support from prominent men across the country when the preliminary report was published on January 3, 1898. As soon as the report was published, Guthridge and Conant made these letters available to the daily newspapers. 
Quickly, the two built up a distribution system to spread the gospel of the report, organizing nearly 100,000 correspondents, quote, dedicated to the enactments of the Commission's plan for banking and currency reform, end quote. The prime and immediate emphasis of the preliminary report of the Indianapolis Monetary Commission was to complete the promise of the McKinley victory by codifying and enacting what was already in place de facto, a single gold standard with silver reduced to the status of subsidiary token currency. Completing the victory over Bryanism and free silver, however, was just a mopping-up operation. More important in the long run was the call raised by the report for banking reform to allow greater elasticity. Bank credit could then be increased in recessions and whenever seasonal pressure for redemption by agricultural country banks forced the large central reserve banks to contract their loans. The actual measures called for by the commission were of marginal importance. More important was that the question of banking reform had been raised at all. The public having been aroused by the preliminary report, the executive committee decided to organize a second and final meeting of the Indianapolis Monetary Convention, which duly met at Indianapolis on January 25, 1898. The second convention was a far grander affair than the first, bringing together 496 delegates from 31 states. Furthermore, the gathering was a cross-section of America's top corporate leaders. While the state of Indiana naturally had the largest delegation, of 85 representatives of boards of trade and chambers of commerce, New York sent 74 delegates, including many from the Board of Trade and Transportation, the Merchants Association, and the Chamber of Commerce in New York City. Such corporate leaders attended as Cleveland iron manufacturer Alfred A. Pope, president of the National Malleable Castings Company, Virgil P. Klein, legal counsel to Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company of Ohio, and C.A. Pillsbury of Minneapolis-St. Paul, organizer of the world's largest flour mills. From Chicago came such business notables as Marshall Field and Albert A. Sprague, a director of the Chicago Telephone Company, subsidiary of the Morgan-controlled telephone monopoly, American Telephone and Telegraph Company. Not to be overlooked was Delegate Franklin McVeigh, a wholesale grocer from Chicago and an uncle of a senior partner in the Wall Street law firm of Bangs, Stetson, Tracy, and McVeigh, counsel to J.P. Morgan and Company. McVeigh, who was later to become Secretary of the Treasury in the Taft administration, was wholly in the Morgan ambit. His father-in-law, Henry F. Eames, was the founder of the Commercial National Bank of Chicago, and his brother Wayne was soon to become a trustee of the Morgan-dominated Mutual Life Insurance Company. The purpose of the second convention, as former Secretary of the Treasury Charles S. Fairchild candidly explained in his address to the gathering, was to mobilize the nation's leading businessmen into a mighty and influential reform movement. As he put it, quote, if men of business give serious attention and study to these subjects, they will substantially agree upon legislation, and thus agreeing, their influence will be prevailing. End quote. He concluded, quote, My word to you is, pull all together. End quote. Presiding officer of the convention, Iowa Governor Leslie M. Shaw, was, however, a bit disingenuous when he told the gathering, quote, 
You represent today, not the banks, for there are few bankers on this floor. You represent the business industries and the financial interests of the country. End quote. There were plenty of bankers there, too. Shaw himself, later to be Secretary of the Treasury under Theodore Roosevelt, was a small-town banker in Iowa and president of the Bank of Denison, who continued as bank president throughout his term as convention governor. More important in Shaw's outlook and career was the fact that he was a longtime close friend and loyal supporter of the Des Moines Regency, the Iowa Republican machine headed by the powerful Senator William Boyd Allison. Allison, who was to obtain the Treasury post for his friend, was in turn tied closely to Charles E. Perkins, a close Morgan ally, president of the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad, and kinsman of the powerful Forbes Financial Group of Boston, long tied in with the Morgan interests. Also serving as delegates to the Second Convention were several eminent economists, each of whom, however, came not as academic observers, but as representatives of elements of the business community. Professor Jeremiah W. Jenks of Cornell, a proponent of trust cartelization by government, and soon to become a friend and advisor of Theodore Roosevelt as governor, came as delegate from the Ithaca Business Men's Association. Frank W. Tossig of Harvard University represented the Cambridge Merchants Association. Yale's Arthur Twining Hadley, soon to be the president of Yale, represented the New Haven Chamber of Commerce, and Frank M. Taylor of the University of Michigan came as representative of the Ann Arbor Businessmen's Association. Each of these men held powerful posts in the organized economics profession, Jenkins, Tossig, and Taylor serving on the currency committee of the American Economic Association. Hadley, a leading railroad economist, also served on the boards of directors of Morgan's New York, New Haven, and Hartford and Atchison. Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroads. Both Tossig and Taylor were monetary theorists who, while committed to a gold standard, urged reform that would make the money supply more elastic. Tossig called for an expansion of national banknotes, which would inflate in response to the, quote, needs of business. As Tossig put it, the currency would then, quote, grow without trammels as the needs of the community spontaneously call for increase, end quote. Taylor, too, as one historian puts it, wanted the gold standard to be modified by, quote, a conscious control of the movement of money, end quote, by government, quote, in order to maintain the stability of the credit system, end quote. Taylor justified governmental suspensions of specie payment to, quote, protect the gold reserve. On January 26, the convention delegates duly endorsed the preliminary report with virtual unanimity, after which Professor J. Lawrence Laughlin was assigned the task of drawing up a more elaborate final report, which was published and distributed a few months later. Laughlin's and the convention's final reports not only came out in favor of a broadened asset base for a greatly increased amount of national banknotes, but also called explicitly for a central bank that would enjoy a monopoly of the issue of banknotes. The convention delegates took the gospel of banking reform to the length and breadth of the corporate and financial communities. In April 1898, for example, A. Barton Hepburn, president of the Chase National Bank of New York, at that time a flagship commercial bank for the Morgan interests, and a man who would play a large role in the drive to establish a central bank, 
invited Indianapolis Monetary Commissioner Robert S. Taylor to address the New York State Bankers Association on the currency question, since, quote, bankers, like other people, need instruction upon this subject, end quote. All the monetary commissioners, especially Taylor, were active during the first half of 1898 in exhorting groups of businessmen throughout the nation for monetary reform. Meanwhile, in Washington, the lobbying team of Hanna and Conant was extremely active. A bill embodying the suggestions of the Monetary Commission was introduced by Indiana Congressman Jesse Overstreet in January and was reported out by the House Banking and Currency Committee in May. In the meantime, Conant met almost continuously with the Banking Committee members. At each stage of the legislative process, Hanna sent letters to the convention delegates and to the public, urging a letter-writing campaign in support of the bill. In this agitation, McKinley's Secretary of the Treasury, Lyman J. Gage, worked closely with Hanna and his staff. Gage sponsored similar bills, and several bills along the same lines were introduced in the House in 1898 and 1899. Gage, a friend of several of the monetary commissioners, was one of the top leaders of the Rockefeller interests in the banking field. His appointment as Treasury Secretary had been gained for him by Ohio's Mark Hanna, political mastermind and financial backer of President McKinley, and old friend, high school classmate, and business associate of John D. Rockefeller Sr. Before his appointment to the cabinet, Gage was president of the powerful First National Bank of Chicago, one of the major commercial banks in the Rockefeller ambit. During his term in office, Gage tried to operate the Treasury as a central bank, pumping in money during recessions by purchasing government bonds on the open market and depositing large funds with pet commercial banks. In 1900, Gage called vainly for the establishment of regional central banks. Finally, in his last annual report as Secretary of the Treasury in 1901, Lyman Gage let the cat completely out of the bag calling outright for a government central bank. Without such a central bank, he declared in alarm, quote, individual banks stand isolated and apart, separated units with no tie of mutuality between them, end quote. Unless a central bank established such ties, Gage warned, the panic of 1893 would be repeated. When he left office early the next year, Lyman Gage took up his post as president of the Rockefeller-controlled U.S. Trust Company in New York City. The Gold Standard Act of 1900 and After Any reform legislation had to wait until after the elections of 1898, for the gold forces were not yet in control of Congress. In the autumn, the executive committee of the Indianapolis Monetary Convention mobilized its forces, calling on no less than 97,000 correspondents throughout the country through whom it had distributed the preliminary report. The executive committee urged its constituency to elect a gold standard Congress. When the gold forces routed the silver rights in November, the results of the election were hailed by Hannah as eminently satisfactory. The decks were now cleared for the McKinley administration to submit its bill, and the Congress that met in December 1899 quickly passed the measure. Congress then passed the conference report of the Gold Standard Act in March 1900. The currency reformers had gotten their way. It is well known that the Gold Standard Act provided for a single gold standard, 
with no retention of silver money except as tokens. Less well-known are the clauses that began the march toward a more, quotes, elastic currency. As Lyman Gage had suggested in 1897, national banks, previously confined to large cities, were now made possible with a small amount of capital in small towns and rural areas. And it was made far easier for national banks to issue notes. The object of these clauses, as one historian put it, was to satisfy a, quote, increased demand for money at crop-moving time, and to meet popular cries for more money by encouraging the organization of national banks in comparatively undeveloped regions, end quote. The reformers exalted over the passage of the Gold Standard Act, but took the line that this was only the first step on the much-needed path to fundamental banking reform. Thus, Professor Frank W. Tossig of Harvard praised the act and greeted the emergence of a new social and ideological alignment caused by, quote, strong pressure from the business community, end quote, through the Indianapolis Monetary Convention. He particularly welcomed the fact that the Gold Standard Act, quote, treats the national banks not as grasping and dangerous corporations, but as useful institutions deserving the fostering care of the legislature, end quote. But such tender legislative care was not enough. Fundamental banking reform was needed. For, Tossig declared, quote, The changes in banking legislation are not such as to make possible any considerable expansion of the national system or to enable it to render the community the full service of which it is capable. End quote. In short, the changes allowed for more and greater expansion of bank credits and the supply of money. Therefore, Tossig concluded, quote, It is well nigh certain that eventually Congress will have to consider once more the further remodeling of the national bank system. End quote. In fact, the Gold Standard Act of 1900 was only the opening gun of the banking reform movement. Three friends and financial journalists, two from Chicago, were to play a large role in the development of that movement. Massachusetts-born Charles A. Conant, 1861-1915, a leading historian of banking, wrote A History of Modern Banks of Issue in 1896, while still a Washington correspondent for the New York Journal of Commerce and an editor of Bankers Magazine. After his stint of public relations work and lobbying for the Indianapolis Convention, Conant moved to New York in 1902 to become treasurer of the Morgan-oriented Morton Trust Company. The two Chicagoans, both friends of Lyman Gage, were, along with Gage, in the Rockefeller ambit. Frank A. Vanderlip was picked by Gage as his assistant secretary of the treasury, and when Gage left office, Vanderlip came to New York as a top executive at the flagship commercial bank of the Rockefeller interests, the National City Bank of New York. Meanwhile, Vanderlip's close friend and mentor at the Chicago Tribune, Joseph French Johnson, had also moved east to become professor of finance at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. But no sooner had the Gold Standard Act been passed when Joseph Johnson sounded the trump by calling for more fundamental reform. 
Professor Johnson stated flatly that the existing banknote system was weak in not, quote, responding to the needs of the money market, end quote, that is, not supplying a sufficient amount of money. Since the national banking system was incapable of supplying those needs, Johnson opined, there was no reason to continue it. Johnson deplored the U.S. banking system as the worst in the world and pointed to the glorious central banking system as existed in Britain and France. But no centralized banking system yet existed in the United States. Quote, In the United States, however, there is no single business institution and no group of large institutions in which self-interest, responsibility, and power naturally unite and conspire for the protection of the monetary system against twists and strains. End quote. In short, there was far too much freedom and decentralization in the system. In consequence, our massive deposit credit system, quote, trembles whenever the foundations are disturbed, end quote. That is, whenever the chickens of inflationary credit expansion come home to roost in demands for cash or gold. The result of the inelasticity of money and of the impossibility of interbank cooperation, Johnson opined, was that we were in danger of losing gold abroad just at the time when gold was needed to sustain confidence in the nation's banking system. After 1900, the banking community was split on the question of reform the small and rural bankers preferring the status quo, but the large bankers, headed by A. Barton Hepburn of Morgan's Chase National Bank, drew up a bill as head of a commission of the American Bankers Association and presented it in late 1901 to Representative Charles N. Fowler of New Jersey, chairman of the House Banking and Currency Committee, who had introduced one of the bills that had led to the Gold Standard Act. The Hepburn proposal was reported out of committee in April 1902 as the Fowler Bill. The Fowler Bill contained three basic clauses. One allowed the further expansion of national banknotes based on broader assets than government bonds. The second, a favorite of the big banks, was to allow national banks to establish branches at home and abroad, a step illegal under the existing system due to fierce opposition by the small country bankers. While branch banking is consonant with a free market and provides a sound and efficient system for calling on other banks for redemption, the big banks had little interest in branch banking unless accompanied by centralization of the banking system. Thus, the Fowler Bill proposed to create a three-member board of control within the Treasury Department, to supervise the creation of the new bank notes and to establish clearinghouse associations under its aegis. This provision was designed to be the first step toward the establishment of a full-fledged central bank. Although they could not control the American Bankers Association, the multitude of country bankers, up in arms against the proposed competition of big banks in the form of branch banking, put fierce pressure upon Congress and managed to kill the Fowler Bill in the House during 1902, despite the agitation of the executive committee and staff of the Indianapolis Monetary Convention. With the defeat of the Fowler Bill, the big bankers decided to settle for more modest goals for the time being. Senator Nelson W. Aldrich of Rhode Island, perennial Republican leader of the U.S. Senate and Rockefeller's man in Congress, 
submitted the Aldrich Bill the following year, allowing the large national banks in New York to issue, quote, emergency currency based on municipal and railroad bonds. But even this bill was defeated. Meeting setbacks in Congress, the big bankers decided to regroup and turn temporarily to the executive branch. Foreshadowing a later, more elaborate collaboration, two powerful representatives, each from the Morgan and Rockefeller banking interests, met with the Comptroller of the Currency, William B. Ridgely, in January 1903, to try to persuade him, by administrative fiat, to restrict the volume of loans made by the country banks in the New York money market. The two Morgan men at the meeting were J.P. Morgan and George F. Baker, Morgan's closest friend and associate in the banking business. The two Rockefeller men were Frank Vanderlip and James Stillman, longtime chairman of the board of the National City Bank. The close Rockefeller-Stillman alliance was cemented by the marriage of the two daughters of Stillman to the two sons of William Rockefeller, brother of John D. Rockefeller Sr., and longtime board member of the National City Bank. The meeting with the Comptroller did not bear fruit, but the lead instead was taken by the Secretary of the Treasury himself, Leslie Shaw, formerly presiding officer at the Second Indianapolis Monetary Convention, whom President Roosevelt appointed to replace Lyman Gage. The unexpected and sudden shift from McKinley to Roosevelt in the presidency meant more than just a turnover of personnel. It meant a fundamental shift from a Rockefeller-dominated to a Morgan-dominated administration. In the same way, the shift from Gage to Shaw was one of the many Rockefeller to Morgan displacements. On monetary and banking matters, however, the Rockefeller and Morgan camps were as one. Secretary Shaw attempted to continue and expand Gage's experiments in trying to make the Treasury function like a central bank, particularly in making open market purchases in recessions and in using Treasury deposits to bolster the banks and expand the money supply. Shaw violated the statutory institution of the independent Treasury, which had tried to confine government revenues and expenditures to its own coffers. Instead, he expanded the practice of depositing Treasury funds in favored big national banks. Indeed, even banking reformers denounced the deposit of Treasury funds to pet banks as artificially lowering interest rates and leading to artificial expansion of credit. Furthermore, any government deficit would obviously throw a system dependent on a flow of new government revenues into chaos. All in all, the reformers agreed increasingly with the verdict of economist Alexander Porves that, quote, The uncertainty as to the Secretary's power to control the banks by arbitrary decisions and orders, and the fact that at some future time the country may be unfortunate in its chief treasury official, has led many to doubt the wisdom end quote, of using the Treasury as a form of central bank. In his last annual report of 1906, Secretary Shaw urged that he be given total power to regulate all the nation's banks. But the game was up, and by then it was clear to the reformers that Shaw's, as well as Gage's, proto-central bank manipulations had failed. It was time to undertake a struggle for a fundamental legislative overhaul of the American banking system to bring it under central banking control. Charles A. Conant, Surplus Capital, and Economic Imperialism 
The years shortly before and after 1900 proved to be the beginnings of the drive toward the establishment of a Federal Reserve System. It was also the origin of the Gold Exchange Standard, the fateful system imposed upon the world by the British in the 1920s and by the United States after World War II at Bretton Woods. Even more than the case of a gold standard with a central bank, the gold exchange standard establishes a system in the name of gold, which in reality manages to install coordinated international inflationary paper money. The idea was to replace a genuine gold standard in which each country, or domestically each bank, maintains its reserves in gold, by a pseudo-gold standard in which the central bank of the client country maintains its reserves in some key or base currency, say pounds or dollars. Thus, during the 1920s, most countries maintain their reserves in pounds, and only Britain purported to redeem pounds in gold. This meant that these other countries were really on a pound rather than a gold standard, although they were able, at least temporarily, to acquire the prestige of gold. It also meant that when Britain inflated pounds, there was no danger of losing gold to these other countries, who, quite the contrary, happily inflated their own currencies on top of their expanding balances in pound sterling. Thus, there was generated an unstable, inflationary system, all in the name of gold, in which client states pyramided their own inflation on top of Great Britain's. The system was eventually bound to collapse, as did the gold exchange standard in the Great Depression and Bretton Woods by the late 1960s. In addition, the close ties based on pounds and then dollars meant that the key or base currency was able to exert a form of economic imperialism joined by its common paper and pseudo-gold inflation upon the client states using the key money. By the late 1890s, groups of theoreticians in the United States were working on what would later be called the, quote, Leninist theory of capitalist imperialism. The theory was originated not by Lenin, but by advocates of imperialism, centering around such Morgan-oriented friends and brain-trusters of Theodore Roosevelt as Henry Adams, Brooks Adams, Admiral Alfred T. Mahan, and Massachusetts Senator Henry Cabot Lodge. The idea was that capitalism in the developed countries was, quote, overproducing, not simply in the sense that more purchasing power was needed in recessions, but more deeply in that the rate of profit was therefore inevitably falling. The ever lower rate of profit from the, quote, surplus capital was in danger of crippling capitalism, except that salvation loomed in the form of foreign markets and especially foreign investments. New and expanded foreign markets would increase profits, at least temporarily, while investments in undeveloped countries would be bound to bring a high rate of profit. Hence, to save advanced capitalism, it was necessary for Western governments to engage in outright imperialist or neo-imperialist ventures, which would force other countries to open their markets for American products and would force open investment opportunities abroad. Given this doctrine, based on the fallacious Ricardian view that the rate of profits is determined by the stock of capital investments, instead of by the time preferences of everyone in society, 
There was little for Lenin to change except to give an implicit moral condemnation instead of approval and to emphasize the necessarily temporary nature of the respite imperialism could furnish for capitalists. Charles Conant set forth the theory of surplus capital in his A History of Modern Banks of Issue and developed it in subsequent essays. The existence of fixed capital and modern technology, Conant claimed, invalidated Say's law and the concept of equilibrium and led to chronic, quote, over-savings, which he defined as savings in excess of profitable investment outlets in the developed Western capitalist world. Business cycles, opined Conant's, were inherent in the unregulated activity of modern industrial capitalism. Hence, the importance of government-encouraged monopolies and cartels to stabilize markets and the business cycle, and in particular the necessity of economic imperialism to force open profitable outlets abroad for American and other Western surplus capital. The United States' bold venture into an imperialist war against Spain in 1898 galvanized the energies of Conant and other theoreticians of imperialism. Conant responded with his call for imperialism in The Economic Basis of Imperialism in the September 1898 North American Review and in other essays collected in the United States in the Orient, The Nature of the Economic Problem, and published in 1900. S.J. Chapman, a distinguished British economist, accurately summarized Conant's argument as follows. One, quote, In all advanced countries, there has been such excessive saving that no profitable investment for capital remains. End quote. Two, since all countries do not practice a policy of commercial freedom, quote, America must be prepared to use force if necessary. End quote to open up profitable investment outlets abroad. And three, the United States possesses an advantage in the coming struggle since the organization of many of its industries, quote, in the form of trusts, will assist it greatly in the fight for commercial supremacy, end quote. The war successfully won. Conant was particularly enthusiastic about the United States keeping the Philippines, the gateway to the great potential Asian market. The United States, he opined, should not be held back by, quote, an abstract theory to adopt, quote, extreme conclusions on applying the doctrines of the Founding Fathers on the importance of the consent of the governed. The Founding Fathers, he declared, surely meant that self-government could only apply to those competent to exercise it, a requirement that clearly did not apply to the backward people of the Philippines. After all, Conant wrote, quote, Only by the firm hand of the responsible governing races can the assurance of uninterrupted progress be conveyed to the tropical and undeveloped countries. End quote. Conant also was bold enough to derive important domestic conclusions from his enthusiasm for imperialism. Domestic society, he claimed, would have to be transformed to make the nation as, quote, efficient as possible. Efficiency, in particular, meant centralized concentration of power. Quote, concentration of power, in order to permit prompt and efficient action, will be an almost essential factor in the struggle for world empire. End quote. 
In particular, it was important for the United States to learn from the magnificent centralization of power and purpose in Tsarist Russia. The government of the United States would require, quote, a degree of harmony and symmetry which will permit the direction of the whole power of the state toward definite and intelligent policies, end quote. The U.S. Constitution would have to be amended to permit a form of czarist absolutism, or at the very least, an enormously expanded executive power in foreign affairs. An interesting case study of business opinion energized and converted by the lure of imperialism was the Boston Weekly, The U.S. Investor. Before the outbreak of the war with Spain in 1898, the U.S. investor denounced the idea of war as a disaster to business. But after the United States launched its war and Commodore Dewey seized Manila Bay, the investor totally changed its tune. Now it hailed the war as excellent for business and as bringing about recovery from the previous recession. Soon, the investor was happily advocating a policy of, quote, imperialism, to make the U.S. prosperity permanent. Imperialism conveyed marvelous benefits to the country. At home, a big army and navy would be valuable in curbing the tendency of democracy to enjoy, quote, a too great freedom from restraint, both of action and of thought, end quote. The investor added that, quote, European experience demonstrates that the army and navy are admirably adopted to inculcate orderly habits of thought and action. End quote. But an even more important benefit from a policy of permanent imperialism is economic. To keep, quote, capital at work, stern necessity requires that, quote, an enlarged field for its product must be discovered. End quote. Specifically, quote, a new field had to be found for selling the growing flood of goods produced by the advanced nations and for investment of their savings at profitable rates. The investor exulted in the fact that this new, quote, field lies ready for occupancy. It is to be found among the semi-civilized and barbarian races, end quote, in particular, the beckoning country of China. Particularly interesting was the colloquy that ensued between the investor and the Springfield, Massachusetts, Republican, which still propounded the older theory of free trade and laissez-faire. The Republican asked why free trade with undeveloped countries was not sufficient without burdening U.S. taxpayers with administrative and military overhead. The Republican also attacked the new theory of surplus capital, pointing out that only two or three years earlier, Businessmen had been loudly calling for more European capital to be invested in American ventures. To the first charge, the investor fell back on, quote, the experience of the race for perhaps 90 centuries, which has been in the direction of foreign acquisitions as a means of national prosperity, end quote. But, more practically, the investor delighted over the goodies that imperialism would bring to American business in the way of government contracts and the government developments that would now be called the, quote, infrastructure of the colonies. Furthermore, as in Britain, a greatly expanded diplomatic service would provide, quote, a new calling for our young men of education and ability, end quote. To the Republican's second charge on surplus capital, the investor, like Conant, developed the idea of a new age that had just arrived in American affairs, 
an age of large scale and hence overproduction, an age of a low rate of profits and consequent formation of trusts in a quest for higher profits through suppression of competition. As the investor put it, quote, The excess of capital has resulted in an unprofitable competition. To employ Franklin's witticism, the owners of capital are of the opinion they must hang together or else they will all hang separately. End quote. But while trusts may solve the problem of specific industries, they did not solve the great problem of a general, quote, congestion of capital. Indeed, wrote the investor, quote, finding employment for capital is now the greatest of all economic problems that confront us, end quote. To the investor, the way out was clear, quote, the logical path to be pursued is that of the development of the natural riches of the tropical countries. These countries are now peopled by races incapable of their own initiative of extracting its full riches from their own soil. This will be attained in some cases by the mere stimulus of governments and direction by men of the temperate zones. But it will be attained also by the application of modern machinery and methods of culture to the agricultural and mineral resources of the undeveloped countries. End quote. By the spring of 1901, even the eminent economic theorist John Bates Clark of Columbia University was able to embrace the new creed. Reviewing the pro-imperialist works by Conant, Brooks Adams, and the Reverend Josiah Strong in a single celebratory review in March 1901 in the Political Science Quarterly, Clark emphasized the importance of opening foreign markets and particularly of investing American capital, quote, with an even larger and more permanent profit. J.B. Clark was not the only economist ready to join in apologia for the strong state. Throughout the land by the turn of the 20th century, a legion of economists and other social scientists had arisen, many of them trained in graduate schools in Germany to learn the virtues of the inductive method, the German historical school, and a collectivist, organicist state. Eager for positions and power commensurate with their graduate training, these new social scientists, in the name of professionalism and technical expertise, prepared to abandon the old laissez-faire creed and take their places as apologists and planners in a new, centrally planned state. Professor Edwin R. A. Seligman of Columbia University, of the prominent Wall Street investment banking family of J. and W. Seligman and Company, spoke for many of these social scientists when in a presidential address before the American Economic Association in 1903, he hailed the, quote, new industrial order. Seligman prophesied that in the new 20th century, the possession of economic knowledge would grant economists the power, quote, to control and mold, end quote, the material forces of progress. As the economist proved able to forecast more accurately, he would be installed as, quote, the real philosopher of social life, end quote, and the public would pay, quote, deference to his views. In his 1899 presidential address, Yale President Arthur Twining Hadley also saw economists developing as society's philosopher kings. The most important application of economic knowledge, declared Hadley, was leadership in public life, becoming advisors and leaders of national policy. Hadley opined, quote, I believe that there, economists, 
largest opportunity in the immediate future lies not in theories but in practice, not with students but with statesmen, not in the education of individual citizens, however widespread and salutary, but in the leadership of an organized body politic. End quote. Hadley perceptively saw the executive branch of the government as particularly amenable to access of position and influence to economic advisors and planners. Previously, executives were hampered in seeking such expert counsel by the importance of political parties, their ideological commitments, and their mass base in the voting population. But now, fortunately, the growing municipal reform soon to be called the progressive movement, was taking power away from political parties and putting it into the hands of administrators and experts. The, quote, increased centralization of administrative power was giving the expert a fair chance, end quote. And now, on the national scene, the new American leap into imperialism in the Spanish-American War was providing an opportunity for increased centralization, executive power, and therefore for administrative and expert planning. Even though Hadley declared himself personally opposed to imperialism, he urged economists to leap at this great opportunity for access to power. The organized economic profession was not slow to grasp this new opportunity. Quickly, the executive and nominating committees of the American Economic Association, or AEA, created a five-man special committee to organize and publish a volume on colonial finance. As Silva and Slaughter put it, this new, rapidly put-together volume permitted the AEA to show the power elite, quote, how the new social science could serve the interests of those who made imperialism a national policy by offering technical solutions to the immediate fiscal problems of colonies, as well as providing ideological justifications for acquiring them, end quote. Chairman of the special committee was Professor Jeremiah W. Jenks of Cornell, the major economic advisor to New York Governor Theodore Roosevelt. Another member was Professor E.R.A. Seligman, another key advisor to Roosevelt. A third colleague was Dr. Albert Shaw, influential editor of the Review of Reviews, progressive reformer and social scientist, and longtime crony of Roosevelt's. All three were longtime leaders of the American Economic Association. The other two non-AEA leaders on the committee were Edward R. Strobel, former Assistant Secretary of State and advisor to colonial governments, and Charles S. Hamlin, wealthy Boston lawyer and Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, who had long been in the Morgan ambit and whose wife was a member of the Pruin family, longtime investors in two Morgan-dominated concerns, the New York Central Railroad and the Mutual Life Insurance Company of New York. Essays in Colonial Finance, the volume quickly put together by these five leaders, tried to advise the United States how best to run its newly acquired empire. First, just as the British government insisted when the North American states were its colonies, the colonies should support their imperial government through taxation, whereas control should be tightly exercised by the United States' imperial center. Second, the imperial center should build and maintain the economic infrastructure of the colony, canals, railroads, communications. Third, where, as was clearly anticipated, 
Native labor is inefficient or incapable of management. The imperial government should import white labor from the imperial center. And finally, as Silva and Slaughter put it, quote, The committee's fiscal recommendations strongly intimated that trained economists were necessary for a successful empire. It was they who must make a thorough study of local conditions to determine the correct fiscal system, gather data, create the appropriate administrative design, and perhaps even implement it. In this way, the committee seconded Hadley's views in seen as an opportunity for economists by identifying a large number of professional positions best filled by themselves. End quote. With the volume written, the AEA cast about for financial support for its publication and distribution. The point was not simply to obtain the financing, but to do so in such a way as to gain the imprimatur of leading members of the power elite on this bold move for power to economists as technocratic expert advisors and administrators in the imperial nation-state. The American Economic Association found five wealthy businessmen to put up $125, two-fifths of the full cost of publishing essays in colonial finance. By compiling the volume and then accepting corporate sponsors, several of whom had an economic stake in the new American empire, the AEA was signaling that the nation's organized economists were, one, wholeheartedly in favor of the new American empire, and two, willing and eager to play a strong role in advising and administering the empire, a role which they promptly and happily filled, as we shall see in the following section. In view of the symbolic as well as practical role for the sponsors, a list of the five donors for the colonial finance volume is instructive. One was Isaac N. Seligman, head of the investment banking house of J&W Seligman & Company, a company with extensive overseas interests, especially in Latin America. Isaac's brother, E.R.A. Seligman, was a member of the Special Committee on Colonial Finance and an author of one of the essays in the volume. Another was William E. Dodge, a partner of the copper mining firm of Phelps, Dodge & Company, and member of a powerful mining family allied to the Morgans. A third donor was Theodore Marburg, an economist who was vice president of the AEA at the time, and also an ardent advocate of imperialism as well as heir to a substantial American tobacco company fortune. Fourth was Thomas Shearman, a single taxer and an attorney for powerful railroad magnate Jay Gould. And last but not least, Stuart Wood a manufacturer who had a Ph.D. in economics and had been a vice president of the AEA. Conant, Monetary Imperialism, and the Gold Exchange Standard The leap into political imperialism by the United States in the late 1890s was accompanied by economic imperialism, and one key to economic imperialism was monetary imperialism. In brief, the developed Western countries by this time were on the gold standard, while most of the third world nations were on the silver standard. For the past several decades, the value of silver in relation to gold had been steadily falling due to one, an increasing world supply of silver relative to gold, and two, the subsequent shift of many Western nations from silver or bimetallism to gold thereby lowering the world's demand for silver as a monetary metal. 
The fall of silver value meant monetary depreciation and inflation in the third world, and it would have been a reasonable policy to shift from a silver coin to a gold coin standard. But the new imperialists among U.S. bankers, economists, and politicians were far less interested in the welfare of third world countries than in foisting a monetary imperialism upon them. For not only would the economies of the imperial center and the client states then be tied together, but they would be tied in such a way that these economies could pyramid their own monetary and bank credit inflation on top of inflation in the United States. Hence, what the new imperialists set out to do was to pressure or coerce third world countries to adopt not a genuine gold coin standard, but a newly conceived, quote, gold exchange or dollar standard. Instead of silver currency fluctuating freely in terms of gold, the silver gold rate would then be fixed by arbitrary government price fixing. The silver countries would be silver in name only. A country's monetary reserve would be held, not in silver, but in dollars allegedly redeemable in gold, and these reserves would be held not in the country itself, but as dollars piled up in New York City. In that way, if U.S. banks inflated their credits, there would be no danger of losing gold abroad, as would happen under a genuine gold standard. For under a true gold standard, no one and no country would be interested in piling up claims to dollars overseas. Instead, they would demand payment of dollar claims in gold. So that, even though these American bankers and economists were all too aware, after many decades of experience, of the fallacies and evils of bimetallism, they were willing to impose a form of bimetallism upon client states in order to tie them into U.S. economic imperialism, and to pressure them into inflating their own money supplies on top of dollar reserves supposedly, but not de facto, redeemable in gold. The United States first confronted the problem of silver currencies in a third-world country when it seized control of Puerto Rico from Spain in 1898 and occupied it as a permanent colony. Fortunately for the imperialists, Puerto Rico was already ripe for currency manipulation. Only three years earlier, in 1895, Spain had destroyed the full-bodied Mexican silver currency that its colony had previously enjoyed, and replaced it with a heavily debased silver, quote, dollar, worth only 41 cents in U.S. currency. The Spanish government had pocketed the large seniorage profits from that debasement. The United States was therefore easily able to substitute its own debased silver dollar, worth only 45.6 cents in gold. Thus, the United States silver currency replaced an even more debased one, and also, the Puerto Ricans had no tradition of loyalty to a currency only recently imposed by the Spaniards. There was, therefore, little or no opposition in Puerto Rico to the U.S. monetary takeover. The major, controversial question was what exchange rate the American authorities would fix between the two debased coins, the old Puerto Rican silver peso and the U.S. silver dollar. This was the rate at which the U.S. authorities would compel the Puerto Ricans to exchange their existing coinage for the new American coins. The treasurer in charge of the currency reform for the U.S. government 
was the prominent Johns Hopkins economist, Jacob H. Hollander, who had been special commissioner to revise Puerto Rican tax laws and who was one of the new breed of academic economists repudiating laissez-faire for comprehensive statism. The heavy debtors in Puerto Rico, mainly the large sugar planters, naturally wanted to pay their peso obligations at as cheap a rate as possible. They lobbied for a peso worth 50 cents American. In contrast, the Puerto Rican banker creditors wanted the rate fixed at 75 cents. Since the exchange rate was arbitrary anyway, Hollander and the other American officials decided in the time-honored way of governments, more or less splitting the difference and fixing a peso equal to 60 cents. The Philippines, the other Spanish colony grabbed by the United States, posed a far more difficult problem. As in most of the Far East, the Philippines was happily using a perfectly sound silver currency, the Mexican silver dollar. But the United States was anxious for a rapid reform because its large, armed forces establishment suppressing Filipino nationalism required heavy expenses in U.S. dollars, which it, of course, declared to be legal tender for payments. Since the Mexican silver coin was also legal tender and was cheaper than the U.S. gold dollar, the U.S. military occupation found its revenues being paid in unwanted and cheaper Mexican coins. Delicacy was required, and in 1901, for the task of currency takeover, the Bureau of Insular Affairs, or BIA, of the War Department, the agency running the U.S. occupation of the Philippines, hired Charles A. Conant. Secretary of War Elihu Root was a redoubtable Wall Street lawyer in the Morgan ambit, who sometimes served as J.P. Morgan's personal attorney. Root took a personal hand in sending Conant to the Philippines. Conant, fresh from the Indianapolis Monetary Commission and before going to New York as a leading investment banker, was, as might be expected, an ardent gold exchange standard imperialist, as well as the leading theoretician of economic imperialism. Realizing that the Filipino people loved their silver coins, Conant devised a way to impose a gold U.S. dollar currency upon the country. Under his cunning plan, the Filipinos would continue to have a silver currency, but replacing the full-bodied Mexican silver coin would be an American silver coin, tied to gold at a debased value far less than the market exchange value of silver in terms of gold. In this imposed debased by metallism, since the silver coin was deliberately overvalued in relation to gold by the U.S. government, Gresham's law inexorably went into effect. The overvalued silver would keep circulating in the Philippines, and undervalued gold would be kept sharply out of circulation. The seniorage profit that the Treasury would reap from the debasements would be happily deposited at a New York bank, which would then function as a, quote, reserve, for the U.S. silver currency in the Philippines. Thus, the New York funds would be used for payment outside the Philippines instead of as coin or specie. Moreover, the U.S. government could issue paper dollars based on its new reserve fund. It should be noted that Conant originated the gold exchange scheme as a way of exploiting and controlling third-world economies based on silver. At the same time, Great Britain was introducing similar schemes in its colonial areas in Egypt, in Straits settlements in Asia, and particularly in India. 
Congress, however, pressured by the silver lobby, balked at the BIA's plan. And so the BIA again turned to the seasoned public relations and lobbying skills of Charles A. Conant. Conant swung into action. Meeting with editors of the top financial journals, he secured their promises to write editorials pushing for the Conant plan, many of which he obligingly wrote himself. He was already backed by the American banks of Manila. Recalcitrant U.S. bankers were warned by Conant that they could no longer expect large government deposits from the War Department if they continued to oppose the plan. Furthermore, Conant won the support of the major enemies of his plan, the American silver companies and pro-silver bankers, promising them that if the Philippine currency reform went through, the federal government would buy silver for the new U.S. coinage in the Philippines from these same companies. Finally, the tireless lobbying and the mixture of bribery and threats by Conant paid off. Congress passed the Philippine Currency Bill in March 1903. In the Philippines, however, the United States could not simply duplicate the Puerto Rican example and coerce the conversion of the old for the new silver coinage. The Mexican silver coin was a dominant coin not only in the Far East but throughout the world, and the coerced conversion would have been endless. The U.S. tried. It removed the legal tender privilege from the Mexican coins and decreed the new U.S. coins be used for taxes, government salaries, and other government payments. But this time the Filipinos happily used the old Mexican coins as money, while the U.S. silver coins disappeared from circulation into payment of taxes and transactions to the United States. The War Department was beside itself. How could it drive Mexican silver coinage out of the Philippines? In desperation, it turned to the indefatigable Conant, but Conant couldn't join the colonial government in the Philippines because he had just been appointed to a more far-flung presidential commission on international exchange for pressuring Mexico and China to go on a similar gold exchange standard. Hollander, fresh from his Puerto Rican triumph, was ill. Who else? Conant, Hollander, and several leading bankers told the War Department they could recommend no one for the job, so new was the profession of technical expertise in monetary imperialism. But there was one more hope. The other pro-cardalist and financial imperialist, Cornell's Jeremiah W. Jenks, a fellow member with Conant of President Roosevelt's new Commission on International Exchange, or CIE. Jenks had already paved the way for Conant by visiting English and Dutch colonies in the Far East in 1901 to gain information about running the Philippines. Jenks finally came up with a name, his former graduate student at Cornell, Edwin W. Kemmerer. Young Kemmerer went to the Philippines from 1903 to 1906 to implement the Conant plan. Based on the theories of Jenks and Conant, and on his own experience in the Philippines, Kemmerer went on to teach at Cornell and then at Princeton and gained fame throughout the 1920s as the, quote, money doctor, busily imposing the gold exchange standard on country after country abroad. Relying on Conant's behind-the-scenes advice, Kemmerer and his associates finally came out with a successful scheme to drive out the Mexican silver coins. It was a plan that relied heavily on government coercion. The United States imposed a legal prohibition on the importation of the Mexican coins, 
followed by severe taxes on any private Philippine transactions daring to use the Mexican currency. Luckily for the planners, their scheme was aided by a large-scale demand at the time for Mexican silver in northern China, which absorbed silver from the Philippines or that would have been smuggled into the islands. The U.S. success was aided by the fact that the new U.S. silver coins, perceptively called, quote, conants by the Filipinos, were made up to look very much like the cherished old Mexican coins. By 1905, force, luck, and trickery had prevailed, and the conants, worth 50 cents in U.S. money, were the dominant currency in the Philippines. Soon, the U.S. authorities were confident enough to add token copper coins and paper conants as well. By 1903, the currency reformers felt emboldened enough to move against the Mexican silver dollar throughout the world. In Mexico itself, U.S. industrialists who wanted to invest there pressured the Mexicans to shift from silver to gold, and they found an ally in Mexico's powerful finance minister, José Limontour. But tackling the Mexican silver peso at home would not be an easy task, for the coin was known and used throughout the world, particularly in China, where it formed the bulk of the circulating coinage. Finally, after three-way talks between United States, Mexican, and Chinese officials, the Mexicans and Chinese were induced to send identical notes to the U.S. Secretary of State urging the United States to appoint financial advisors to bring about currency reform and stabilized exchange rates with the gold countries. These requests gave President Roosevelt, upon securing congressional approval, the excuse to appoint, in March 1903, a three-man commission on international exchange to bring about currency reform in Mexico, China, and the rest of the silver-using world. The aim was, quote, to bring about a fixed relationship between the monies of the gold standard countries and the present silver-using countries, end quote, in order to foster, quote, export trade and investment opportunities, end quote, in the gold countries and economic development in the silver countries. The three members of the CIE were old friends and like-minded colleagues. Chairman was Hugh H. Hanna of the Indianapolis Monetary Commission. The others were his former chief aide at that commission, Charles A. Conants, and Professor Jeremiah W. Jenks. Conants, as usual, was the major theoretician and finagler. He realized that major opposition to Mexico's and China's going off silver would come from the important Mexican silver industry, and he devised the scheme to get European countries to purchase large amounts of Mexican silver to ease the pain of the shift. In a trip to European nations in the summer of 1903, however, Conant and the CIE found the Europeans less than enthusiastic about making Mexican silver purchases as well as subsidizing U.S. exports and investments in China, a land whose market they too were coveting. In the United States, on the other hand, major newspapers and financial periodicals, prodded by Conant's public relations work, warmly endorsed the new currency scheme. In the meanwhile, however, the United States faced similar currency problems in its two new Caribbean protectorates, Cuba and Panama. Panama was easy. The United States occupied the canal zone and would be importing vast amounts of equipment to build the canal, 
so it decided to impose the American gold dollar as the currency in the nominally independent Republic of Panama. While the gold dollar was the official currency of Panama, the United States imposed as the actual medium of exchange a new debased silver peso worth 50 cents. Fortunately, the new peso was almost the same in value as the old Colombian silver coin it forcibly displaced, and so, like Puerto Rico, the takeover could go without a hitch. Among the U.S. colonies or protectorates, Cuba proved the toughest nut to crack. Despite all of Conan's ministrations, Cuba's currency remained unreformed. Spanish gold and silver coins, French coins, and U.S. currency all circulated side by side, freely fluctuating in response to supply and demand. Furthermore, similar to the pre-reformed Philippines, a fixed bimetallic exchange rate between the cheaper U.S. and the more valuable Spanish and French coins led the Cubans to return cheaper U.S. coins to the U.S. customs authorities in fees and revenues. Why then did Conant fail in Cuba? In the first place, strong Cuban nationalism resented U.S. plans for seizing control of their currency. Conant's repeated request in 1903 for a Cuban invitation for the CIE to visit the island met stern rejections from the Cuban government. Moreover, the characteristic U.S. military commander in Cuba, Leonard Wood, wanted to avoid giving the Cubans the impression that plans were afoot to reduce Cuba to colonial status. The second objection was economic. The powerful sugar industry in Cuba depended on exports to the United States, and a shift from depreciated silver to higher-valued gold money would increase the cost of sugar exports by an amount Leonard Wood estimated to be about 20%. While the same problem had existed for the sugar planters in Puerto Rico, American economic interests in Puerto Rico and in other countries such as the Philippines favored forcing formerly silver countries onto a gold-based standard so as to stimulate U.S. exports into those countries. In Cuba, on the other hand, there was increasing U.S. investment capital pouring into the Cuban sugar plantations so that powerful and even dominant U.S. economic interests existed on the other side of the currency reform question. Indeed, by World War I, American investments in Cuban sugar reached the sum of $95 million. Thus, when Charles Conant resumed his pressure for a Cuban gold exchange standard in 1907, he was strongly opposed by the U.S. governor of Cuba, Charles Magoon, who raised the problem of a gold-based standard crippling the sugar planters. The CIE never managed to visit Cuba, and, ironically, Charles Conant died in Cuba in 1915, trying in vain to convince the Cubans of the virtues of the gold exchange standard. The Mexican shift, from silver to gold, was more gratifying to Conant. But here, the reform was affected by Foreign Minister Limontour and his indigenous technicians, with the CIE taking a back seat. However, the success of this shift in the Mexican Currency Reform Act of 1905 was assured by a world rise in the price of silver, starting the following year, which made gold coins cheaper than silver, with Gresham's Law bringing about a successful gold coin currency in Mexico.
But the U.S. silver coinage in the Philippines ran into trouble because of the rise in the world silver price. Here, the U.S. silver currency in the Philippines was bailed out by coordinated action by the Mexican government, which sold silver in the Philippines to lower the value of silver sufficiently so that the conants could be brought back into circulation. The big failure of Conant's CIE monetary imperialism was in China. In 1900, Britain, Japan, and the United States intervened in China to put down the Boxer Rebellion. The three countries thereupon forced defeated China to agree to pay them and all major European powers an indemnity of $333 million. The United States interpreted the treaty as an obligation to pay in gold, but China, on a depreciated silver standard, began to pay in silver in 1903, an action that enraged the three treaty powers. The U.S. minister to China reported that Britain might declare China's payment in silver a violation of the treaty, which would presage military intervention. Emboldened by United States success in the Philippines, Panama, and Mexico, Secretary of War Roots sent Jeremiah W. Jenks on a mission to China in early 1904 to try to transform China from a silver to a gold exchange standard. Jenks also wrote to President Roosevelt from China, urging that the Chinese indemnity to the United States from the Boxer Rebellion be used to fund exchange professorships for 30 years. Jenks's mission, however, was a total failure. The Chinese understood the CIE currency scheme all too well. They saw and denounced the seniorage of the gold exchange standard as an irresponsible and immoral debasement of Chinese currency, an act that would impoverish China while adding to the profits of U.S. banks where seniorage reserve funds would be deposited. Moreover, the Chinese officials saw that shifting the indemnity from silver to gold would enrich the European governments at the expense of the Chinese economy. They also noted that the CIE scheme would establish a foreign controller of the Chinese currency to impose banking regulations and economic reforms on the Chinese economy. We need not wonder at the Chinese outrage. China's reaction was its own nationalistic currency reform in 1905 to replace the Mexican silver coin with a new Chinese silver coin, the tail. Jenks's ignominious failure in China put an end to any formal role for the Commission on International Exchange. An immediately following fiasco blocked the U.S. government's use of economic and financial advisors to spread the gold exchange standard abroad. In 1905, the State Department hired Jacob Hollander to move another of its Latin American client states, the Dominican Republic, onto the gold exchange standard. When Hollander accomplished this task by the end of the year, the State Department asked the Dominican government to hire Hollander to work out a plan for financial reform, including a U.S. loan and a customs service run by the United States to collect taxes for repayments of the loan. Hollander, son-in-law of prominent Baltimore merchant Abraham Hutzler, used his connection with Kuhn Leb and Company to place Dominican bonds with that investment bank. Hollander also engaged happily in double-dipping for the same work, collecting fees for the same job from the State Department and from the Dominican government. When this picadillo was discovered in 1911, 
The scandal made it impossible for the U.S. government to use its own employees and its own funds to push for gold exchange experts abroad. From then on, there was more of a public-private partnership between the U.S. government and the investment bankers, with the bankers supplying their own funds and the State Department supplying goodwill and more concrete resources. Thus, in 1911 and 1912, the United States, over great opposition, imposed a gold exchange standard on Nicaragua. The State Department formally stepped aside but approved Charles Conant's hiring by the powerful investment banking firm of Brown Brothers to bring about a loan and the currency reform. The State Department lent not only its approval to the project, but also its official wires for Conant's and Brown Brothers to conduct the negotiations with the Nicaraguan government. By the time he died in Cuba in 1915, Charles Conant had made himself the chief theoretician and practitioner of the gold exchange and the economic imperialist movements. Aside from his successes in the Philippines, Panama, and Mexico, and his failures in Cuba and China, Conant led in pushing for gold exchange reform and gold dollar imperialism in Liberia, Bolivia, Guatemala, and Honduras. His magnum opus in favor of the gold exchange standard, the two-volume The Principles of Money and Banking in 1905, as well as his path-breaking success in the Philippines, was followed by a myriad of books, articles, pamphlets, and editorials, always backed up by his personal propaganda efforts. Particularly interesting were Conan's arguments in favor of a gold exchange standard, rather than a genuine gold coin standard. A straight gold coin standard, Conant believed, did not provide a sufficient amount of gold to provide for the world's monetary needs. Hence, by tying the existing silver standard in the undeveloped countries to gold, the, quote, shortage of gold could be overcome, and also the economies of the undeveloped countries could be integrated into those of the dominant imperial power. All this could only be done if the gold exchange standard were, quote, designed and implemented by careful government policy, end quote. But of course, Conan himself and his friends and disciples always stood ready to advise and provide such implementation. In addition, adopting a government-managed gold exchange standard was superior to either genuine gold or bimetallism because it left each state the flexibility of adapting its currency to local needs. As Conan asserted, Quote, it leaves each state free to choose the means of exchange which conform best to its local conditions. Rich nations are free to choose gold, nations less rich silver, and those whose financial methods are most advanced are free to choose paper. End quote. It is interesting that for Conant, paper was the most, quote, advanced form of money. It is clear that the devotion to the gold standard of Conant and his colleagues was only to a debased and inflationary standard, controlled and manipulated by the U.S. government, with gold really serving as a facade of allegedly hard money. And one of the critical forms of government manipulation and control in Conant's proposed system was the existence and active functioning of a central bank. As a founder of the, quote, science of financial advising to governments, Conant, followed by his colleagues and disciples, not only pushed a gold exchange standard wherever he could do so, 
but also advocated a central bank to manage and control that standard. As Emily Rosenberg points out, quote, Conant thus did not neglect one of the major revolutionary changes implicit in his system, a new, important role for a central bank as a currency stabilizer. Conant strongly supported the American banking reform that culminated in the Federal Reserve System, and American financial advisors who followed Conant would spread central banking systems, along with gold standard currency reforms, to the countries they advised. End quote. Along with a managed gold exchange standard would come, as replacement for the old free trade, non-managed gold coin standard, a world of imperial currency blocks, which, quote, would necessarily come into being as lesser countries deposited their gold stabilization funds in the banking systems of more advanced countries, end quote. New York and London banks in particular shaped up as the major reserve fund holders in the developing new world monetary order. It is no accident that the United States' major financial and imperial rival, Great Britain, which was pioneering in imposing gold exchange standards in its own colonial area at this time, built upon this experience to impose a gold exchange standard marked by all European currencies pyramiding on top of British inflation during the 1920s. That disastrous inflationary experiment led straight to the worldwide banking crash and the general shift to fiat paper monies in the early 1930s. After World War II, the United States took up the torch of a world gold exchange standard at Bretton Woods, with the dollar replacing the pound sterling in a worldwide inflationary system that lasted approximately 25 years. Nor should it be thought that Charles A. Conant was the purely disinterested scientist he claimed to be. His currency reforms directly benefited his investment banker employers. Thus, Conant was treasurer from 1902 to 1906 of the Morgan-run Morton Trust Company of New York, and it was surely no coincidence that Morton Trust was the bank that held the reserve funds for the governments of the Philippines, Panama, and the Dominican Republic after their respective currency reforms. In the Nicaragua negotiations, Conant was employed by the investment bank of Brown Brothers, and in pressuring other countries, he was working for Spire and Company and other investment bankers. After Conant died in 1915, there were few to pick up the mantle of foreign financial advising. Hollander was in disgrace after the Dominican debacle. Jenks was aging and lived in the shadow of his China failure but the State Department did appoint Jenks to serve as a director of the Nicaraguan National Bank in 1917, and also hired him to study the Nicaraguan financial picture in 1925. But the true successor of Conant's was Edwin W. Kemmerer, the, quote, money doctor. After his Philippine experience, Kemmerer joined his old professor Jenks at Cornell and then moved to Princeton in 1912, publishing his book, Modern Currency Reforms, in 1916. As the leading foreign financial advisor of the 1920s, Kammerer not only imposed central banks and a gold exchange standard on third-world countries, but he also got them to levy higher taxes. Kammerer, too, combined his public employment with service to leading international bankers. During the 1920s, 
Kemmerer worked as banking expert for the U.S. government's Dawes Commission, headed special financial advisory missions to more than a dozen countries, and was kept on a handsome retainer by the distinguished investment banking firm of Dillon Reed from 1922 to 1929. In that era, Kemmerer and his mentor Jenks were the only foreign currency reform experts available for advising. In the late 1920s, Kemmerer helped establish a chair of international economics at Princeton, which he occupied, and from which he could train students like Arthur N. Young and William W. Cumberland. In the mid-1920s, the Money Doctor served as president of the American Economic Association. Jacob Schiff Ignites the Drive for a Central Bank The defeat of the Fowler Bill for a broader asset currency and branch banking in 1902, coupled with the failure of Treasury Secretary Shaw's attempts of 1903 to 1905 to use the Treasury as a central bank, led the big bankers and their economist allies to adopt a new solution, the frank imposition of a central bank in the United States. The campaign for a central bank was kicked off by a fateful speech in January 1906 by the powerful Jacob H. Schiff, head of the Wall Street Investment Bank of Kuhn, Leb, and Company, before the New York Chamber of Commerce. Schiff complained that, in the autumn of 1905, when, quote, the country needed money, the Treasury, instead of working to expand the money supply, reduced government deposits in the national banks, thereby precipitating a financial crisis, a, quote, disgrace in which the New York clearinghouse banks had been forced to contract their loans drastically, sending interest rates sky high. A, quote, elastic currency for the nation was therefore imperative, and Schiff urged the New York Chamber's Committee on Finance to draw up a comprehensive plan for a modern banking system to provide for an elastic currency. A colleague who had already been agitating for a central bank behind the scenes was Schiff's partner, Paul Moritz Warburg, who had suggested the plan to Schiff as early as 1903. Warburg had emigrated from the German investment firm of M.M. Warburg & Company in 1897, and before long, his major function at Kuhn Leb was to agitate to bring the blessings of European central banking to the United States. It took less than a month for the Finance Committee of the New York Chamber to issue its report, but the bank reformers were furious, denouncing it as remarkably ignorant. When Frank A. Vanderlip of Rockefeller's flagship bank, the National City Bank of New York, reported on this development, his boss, James Stillman, suggested that a new five-man special commission be set up by the New York Chamber to come back with a plan for currency reform. In response, Vanderlip proposed that the five-man commission consist of himself, Schiff, J.P. Morgan, George Baker of the First National Bank of New York, Morgan's closest and longest associate, and former Secretary of the Treasury Lyman Gage, now president of the Rockefeller-controlled U.S. Trust Company. Thus, the commission would consist of two Rockefeller men, Vanderlip and Gage, two Morgan men, Morgan and Baker, and one representative from Kuhn Leb. Only Vanderlip was available to serve, however, so the commission had to be redrawn. In addition to Vanderlip, beginning in March 1906, there sat, instead of Schiff, his close friend Isidore Strauss, a director of R.H. Macy and Company. Instead of Morgan and Baker, there now served two Morgan men, Dumont Clark, president of the American Exchange National Bank, 
and a personal advisor to J.P. Morgan, and Charles A. Konitz, treasurer of Morton & Company. The fifth man was a veteran of the Indianapolis Monetary Convention, John Claflin of H.B. Claflin & Company, a large integrated wholesaling concern. Coming on board as secretary of the new currency committee was Vanderlip's old friend Joseph French Johnson, now of New York University, who had been calling for a central bank since 1900. The commission used the old Indianapolis questionnaire technique, acquiring legitimacy by sending out a detailed questionnaire on currency to a number of financial leaders. With Johnson in charge of mailing and collating the questionnaire replies, Conant spent his time visiting and interviewing the heads of the central banks in Europe. The Special Commission delivered its report to the New York Chamber of Commerce in October 1906. To eliminate instability and the danger of an inelastic currency, the Commission called for the creation of a, quote, central bank of issue under the control of the government, end quote. In keeping with other bank reformers, such as Professor Abram Piat Andrew of Harvard University, Thomas Nixon Carver of Harvard, and Albert Strauss, partner of J.P. Morgan & Company. The commission was scornful of Secretary Shaw's attempt to use the Treasury as central bank. Shaw was particularly obnoxious because he was still insisting, in his last annual report of 1906, that the Treasury, under his aegis, had constituted a, quote, great central bank. The commission, along with the other reformers, denounced the Treasury for overinflating by keeping interest rates excessively low. A central bank, in contrast, would have much larger capital and undisputed control over the money market, and thus would be able to manipulate the discount rate effectively to keep the economy under proper control. The important point, declared the committee, is that there be, quote, centralization of financial responsibility, end quote. In the meantime, short of establishing a central bank, the committee urged that, at the least, the national bank's powers to issue notes should be expanded to include being based on general assets as well as government bonds. After drafting and publishing this, quote, currency report, the reformers used the report as the lever for expanding the agitation for a central bank and broader note-issue powers to other corporate and financial institutions. The next step was the Powerful American Bankers Association, or ABA. In 1905, the Executive Council of the ABA had appointed a currency committee which, the following year, recommended an emergency assets currency that would be issued by a federal commission, resembling an embryonic central bank. In a tumultuous plenary session of the ABA convention in October 1906, the ABA rejected this plan, but agreed to appoint a 15-man currency commission that was instructed to meet with the New York Chamber's Currency Committee and attempt to agree on appropriate legislation. Particularly prominent on the ABA Currency Commission were Arthur Reynolds, president of the Des Moines National Bank, close to the Morgan-oriented Des Moines Regency, and brother of the prominent Chicago banker George M. Reynolds, formerly of Des Moines and then president of the Morgan-oriented Continental National Bank of Chicago and the powerful chairman of the Executive Council of the ABA. James B. Forgan, president of the Rockefeller-run First National Bank of Chicago, and close friend of Jacob Schiff of Kuhn-Leb, as well as of Vanderlip. Joseph T. Talbert, vice president of the Rockefeller-dominated Commercial National Bank of Chicago, and soon to become vice president of Rockefeller's flagship bank, the National City Bank of New York. Myron T. Herrick, 
one of the most prominent Rockefeller politicians and businessmen in the country. Eric was the head of the Cleveland Society of Savings and was part of the small team of close Rockefeller business allies who, along with Mark Hanna, bailed out Governor William McKinley from bankruptcy in 1893. Eric was a previous president of the ABA and just finished a two-year stint as governor of Ohio and was later to become ambassador to France under his old friend and political ally, William Howard Taft, as well as later under President Warren G. Harding and a recipient of Herrick's political support and financial largesse. And chairman of the ABA Commission, A. Barton Hepburn, president of one of the leading Morgan commercial banks, the Chase National Bank of New York, and author of the well-regarded History of Coinage and Currency in the United States. After meeting with Vanderlip and Conant as the representatives of the New York Chamber of Commerce Committee, the ABA Commission, along with Vanderlip and Conant, agreed on at least the transition demands of the reformers. The ABA Commission presented proposals to the public, the press, and the Congress in December 1906 for a broader asset currency, as well as provisions for emergency issue of banknotes by national banks. But just as sentiment for a broader asset currency became prominent, the bank reformers began to worry about an uncontrolled adoption of such a currency. For that would mean that national bank credit and notes would expand, and that, in the existing system, small state banks would be able to pyramid and inflate credit on top of the national credit, using the expanded national bank notes as their reserves. The reformers wanted a credit inflation controlled by and confined to the large national banks. They most emphatically did not want uncontrolled state bank inflation that would siphon resources to small entrepreneurs and, quote, speculative marginal producers. The problem was aggravated by the accelerated rate of increase in the number of small southern and western state banks after 1900. Another grave problem for the reformers was that commercial paper was a different system from that of Europe. In Europe, commercial paper, and hence bank assets, were two named notes endorsed by a small group of wealthy acceptance banks. In contrast to this acceptance paper system, Commercial paper in the United States was unendorsed single-name paper, with the bank taking a chance on the creditworthiness of the business borrower. Hence, a decentralized financial system in the United States was not subject to big banker control. Worries about the existing system, and hence about uncontrolled asset currency, were voiced by the top bank reformers. Thus, Vanderlip expressed concern that, quote, there are so many state banks that might count these national banknotes in their reserves, end quote. Schiff warned that, quote, it would prove unwise, if not dangerous, to clothe 6,000 banks or more with the privilege to issue independently a pure credit currency, end quote. And, from the Morgan side, a similar concern was voiced by Victor Morowitz, the powerful chairman of the board of the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad. Taking the lead in approaching this problem of small banks and decentralization was Paul Moritz Warburg of Kuhn Leb, fresh from his banking experience in Europe. In January 1907, Warburg began what would become years of tireless agitation for central banking with two articles, Defects and Needs of Our Banking System, and A Plan for a Modified Central Bank. Calling openly for a central bank, Warburg pointed out that one of the important functions of such a bank would be to restrict the eligibility of bank assets to be used for expansion of bank deposits. 
Presumably, too, the central bank could move to require banks to use acceptance paper or otherwise try to create an acceptance market in the United States. By the summer of 1907, Bankers Magazine was reporting a decline in influential banker support for broadening asset currency and a strong move toward the, quote, central bank project. Bankers Magazine noted as a crucial reason the fact that asset currency would be expanding bank services to, quote, small producers and dealers. The Panic of 1907 and Mobilization for a Central Bank a severe financial crisis, the Panic of 1907, struck in early October. Not only was there a general recession and contraction, but the major banks in New York and Chicago were, as in most other depressions in American history, allowed by the government to suspend specie payments, that is, to continue in operation while being relieved of their contractual obligation to redeem their notes and deposits in cash or in gold. While the Treasury had stimulated inflation during 1905 to 1907, there was nothing it could do to prevent suspensions of payments or to alleviate, quote, the competitive hoarding of currency, end quote, after the panic. That is, the attempt to demand cash in return for increasingly shaky banknotes and deposits. Very quickly after the panic, banker and business opinion consolidated on behalf of a central bank an institution that could regulate the economy and serve as a lender of last resort to bail banks out of trouble. The reformers now faced a twofold task, hammering out details of the new central bank, and more important, mobilizing public opinion on its behalf. The first step in such mobilization was to win the support of the nation's academics and experts. The task was made easier by the growing alliance and symbiosis between academia and the power elite. Two organizations that proved particularly useful for this mobilization were the American Academy of Political and Social Science, the AAPSS, of Philadelphia, and the Academy of Political Science, the APS, of Columbia University, both of which included in their ranks leading corporate liberal businessmen, financiers, attorneys, and academics. Nicholas Murray Butler, the highly influential president of Columbia University, explained that the Academy of Political Science, quote, is an intermediary between the scholars and the men of affairs, those who may perhaps be said to be amateurs in scholarship, end quote. Here, he pointed out, was where they, quote, come together. It is not surprising, then, that the American Academy of Political and Social Science, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and Columbia University held three symposia during the winter of 1907 to 1908, each calling for a central bank, and thereby disseminating the message of a central bank to a carefully selected elite public. Not surprising, too, was that E.R.A. Seligman was the organizer of the Columbia Conference, gratified that his university was providing a platform for leading bankers and financial journalists to advocate a central bank. Especially, he noted, because, quote, it is proverbially difficult in a democracy to secure a hearing for the conclusions of experts, end quote. Then, in 1908, Seligman collected the addresses into a volume, The Currency Problem. Professor Seligman set the tone for the Columbia gathering in his opening address. The panic of 1907, he alleged, was moderate because its effects had been tempered by the growth of industrial trusts, 
which provided a more controlled and, quote, more correct adjustment of present investment to future needs, end quote, than would a, quote, horde of small competitors, end quote. In that way, Seligman displayed no comprehension of how competitive markets facilitate adjustments. One big problem, however, still remained for Seligman. The horde of small competitors for whom Seligman had so much contempt still prevailed in the field of currency and banking. The problem was that the banking system was still decentralized. As Seligman declared, quote, Even more important than the inelasticity of our note issue is its decentralization. The struggle which has been victoriously fought out everywhere else in creating trusts must be undertaken here in earnest and with vigor. End quote. The next address was that of Frank Vanderlip. To Vanderlip, in contrast to Seligman, the Panic of 1907 was, quote, one of the great calamities of history, end quote, the result of a decentralized, competitive American banking system, with 15,000 banks all competing vigorously for control of cash reserves. The terrible thing is that, quote, each institution stands alone, concerned first with its own safety, and using every endeavor to pile up reserves without regard, end quote, to the effect of such actions on other banking institutions. This backward system had to be changed to follow the lead of other great nations where a central bank is able to mobilize and centralize reserves and create an elastic currency system. Putting the situation in virtually Marxian terms, Vanderlip declared that the alien external power of the free and competitive market must be replaced by central control following modern, allegedly scientific principles of banking. Thomas Wheelock, editor of the Wall Street Journal, then rung the changes on the common theme by applying it to the volatile call loan market in New York. The market is volatile, Wheelock claimed, because the small country banks are able to lend on that market, and their deposits in New York banks then rise and fall in uncontrolled fashion. Therefore, there must be central corporate control over country bank money in the call loan market. A. Barton Hepburn, head of Morgan's Chase National Bank, came next, and spoke of the great importance of having a central bank that would issue a monopoly of bank notes. It was particularly important that the central bank be able to discount the assets of national banks and thus supply an elastic currency. The last speaker was Paul Warburg, who lectured his audience on the superiority of European over American banking, particularly in one, having a central bank as against decentralized American banking, and two, his old hobby horse, enjoying, quote, modern acceptance paper instead of single-name promissory notes. Warburg emphasized that these two institutions must function together. In particular, tight government central bank control must replace competition and decentralization. Quote, small banks constitute a danger. End quote. The other two symposia were very similar. At the AAPSS Symposium in Philadelphia in December 1907, several leading investment bankers and comptroller of the currency, William B. Ridgely, came out in favor of a central bank. It was no accident that members of the AAPSS's Advisory Committee on Currency included A. Barton Hepburn, Morgan attorney and statesman Elihu Root, Morgan's longtime personal attorney, Francis Lyde Stetson, and J.P. Morgan himself. Meanwhile, 
the AAAS Symposium in January 1908, was organized by none other than Charles A. Conant, who happened to be chairman of the AAAS's social and economic section for the year. Speakers included Columbia economist J.B. Clark, Frank Vanderlip, Conant, and Vanderlip's friend George E. Roberts, head of the Rockefeller-oriented Commercial National Bank of Chicago, who would later wind up at the National City Bank. All in all, the task of the bank reformers was well summed up by J.R. Duffield, secretary of the Bankers Publishing Company, in January 1908. Quote, It is recognized generally that before legislation can be had, there must be an educational campaign carried on, first among the bankers, and later among commercial organizations, and finally among the public as a whole. End quote. That strategy was well underway. During the same month, the legislative lead in banking reform was taken by the formidable Senator Nelson W. Aldrich, Republican from Rhode Island, head of the Senate Finance Committee, and, as the father-in-law of John D. Rockefeller, Jr., Rockefeller's man in the U.S. Senate. He introduced the Aldrich Bill, which focused on a relatively minor interbank dispute about whether and on what basis the national banks could issue special emergency currency. A compromise was finally hammered out and passed as the Aldrich-Vreeland Act in 1908. But the important part of the Aldrich-Vreeland Act, which got very little public attention but was perceptively hailed by the bank reformers, was the establishment of a National Monetary Commission that would investigate the currency question and suggest proposals for comprehensive banking reform. Two enthusiastic comments on the Monetary Commission were particularly perceptive and prophetic. One was that of Sereno S. Pratt of the Wall Street Journal. Pratt virtually conceded that the purpose of the commission was to swamp the public with supposed expertise and thereby, quote, educate them into supporting banking reform. Quote, Reform can only be brought about by educating the people up to it and such education must necessarily take much time. In no other way can such education be affected more thoroughly and rapidly than by means of a commission that would make an international study of the subject and present an exhaustive report, which could be made the basis for an intelligent agitation. End quote. The results of the, quote, study were of course predetermined, as would be the membership of the allegedly impartial study commission. Another function of the commission, as stated by Festus J. Wade, St. Louis banker and member of the Currency Commission of the American Bankers Association, was to, quote, keep the financial issue out of politics, end quote, and put it squarely in the safe custody of carefully selected, quote, experts. Thus, the National Monetary Commission, or NMC, was the apotheosis of the clever commission concept launched in Indianapolis a decade earlier. Aldrich lost no time setting up the NMC, which was launched in June 1908. The official members were an equal number of senators and representatives, but these were mere window dressing. The real work would be done by the copious staff, appointed and directed by Aldrich, who told his counterpart in the House, Cleveland Republican Theodore Burton, quote, my idea is, of course, that everything shall be done in the most quiet manner possible and without any public announcement, end quote. From the beginning, Aldrich determined that the NMC would be run as an alliance of Rockefeller, Morgan, and Kuhn-Lebb people. 
The two top expert posts advising or joining the commission were both suggested by Morgan leaders. On the advice of J.P. Morgan, seconded by Jacob Schiff, Aldrich picked as his top advisor the formidable Henry P. Davison, Morgan partner, founder of Morgan's Bankers Trust Company, and vice president of George F. Baker's First National Bank of New York. It would be Davison who, on the outbreak of World War I, would rush to England to cement J.P. Morgan and Company's close ties with the Bank of England and to receive an appointment as monopoly underwriter for all British and French government bonds to be floated in the United States for the duration of the war. For technical economic expertise, Aldrich accepted the recommendation of President Roosevelt's close friend and fellow Morgan man, Charles Eliot, president of Harvard University, who urged the appointment of Harvard economist A. Piet Andrew. And an ex officio commission member chosen by Aldrich himself was George M. Reynolds, president of the Rockefeller-oriented Continental National Bank of Chicago. The NMC spent the fall touring Europe and conferring on information and strategy with heads of large European banks and central banks. As director of research, A. Piet Andrew began to organize American banking experts and to commission reports and studies. The National Citibank's Foreign Exchange Department was commissioned to write papers on bankers' acceptances and foreign debt, while Warburg and Bankers Trust official Fred Kent wrote on the European discount market. Having gathered information and advice in Europe in the fall of 1908, the NMC was ready to go into high gear by the end of the year. In December, the Commission hired the inevitable Charles A. Conant for research, public relations, and agitprop. Behind the facade of the congressmen and senators on the commission, Senator Aldrich began to form and expand his inner circle, which soon included Warburg and Vanderlip. Warburg formed around him a sub-circle of friends and acquaintances from the Currency Committee of the New York Merchants Association, headed by Irving T. Bush, and from the top ranks of the American Economic Association, to whom he had delivered an address advocating central banking in December 1908. Warburg met and corresponded frequently with leading academic economists advocating banking reform, including E.R.A. Seligman, Thomas Nixon Carver of Harvard, Henry R. Seeger of Columbia, Davis R. Dewey, historian of banking at MIT, longtime secretary-treasurer of the AEA, and brother of the progressive philosopher John Dewey. Oliver M. W. Sprague, professor of banking at Harvard, of the Morgan-connected Sprague family. Frank W. Tossig of Harvard, and Irving Fisher of Yale. During 1909, however, the reformers faced an important problem. They had to bring such leading bankers as James B. Forgan, head of the Rockefeller-oriented First National Bank of Chicago, solidly into line in support of a central bank. It was not that Forgan objected to centralized reserves or a lender of last resort. Quite the contrary. It was rather that Forgan recognized that, under the national banking system, large banks such as his own were already performing quasi-central banking functions with their own country bank depositors, and he didn't want his bank deprived of such functions by a new central bank. The bank reformers, therefore, went out of their way to bring such men as Forgan into enthusiastic support for the new scheme. In his presidential address to the powerful American Bankers Association in mid-September 1909, George M. Reynolds not only came out flatly in favor of a central bank in America to be modeled after the German Reichsbank, 
He also assured Forgan and others that such a central bank would act as depository of reserves only for the large national banks in the central reserve cities, while the national banks would continue to hold deposits for the country banks. Mollified, Forgan held a private conference with Aldrich's inner circle and came fully on board for the central bank. As an outgrowth of Forgan's concerns, the reformers decided to cloak their new central bank in a spurious veil of, quote, regionalism and, quote, decentralism through establishing regional reserve centers that would provide the appearance of virtually independent regional central banks to cover the reality of an orthodox European central bank monolith. As a result, noted railroad attorney Victor Morowitz made his famous speech in November 1909 calling for regional banking districts under the ultimate direction of one central control board. Thus, reserves and note issue would be supposedly decentralized in the hands of the regional reserve banks, while they would really be centralized and coordinated by the central control board. This, of course, was the scheme eventually adopted in the Federal Reserve System. On September 14th, at the same time as Reynolds' address to the nation's bankers, Another significant address took place. President William Howard Taft, speaking in Boston, suggested that the country seriously consider establishing a central bank. Taft had been close to the reformers, especially his Rockefeller-oriented friends Aldrich and Burton, since 1900. But the business press understood the great significance of this public address, that it was, as the Wall Street Journal put it, a crucial step, quote, toward removing the subject from the realm of theory to that of practical politics, end quote. One week later, a fateful event in American history occurred. The banking reformers moved to escalate their agitation by creating a virtual government bank press complex to drive through a central bank. On September 22, 1909, the Wall Street Journal took the lead in this development by beginning a notable front-page 14-part series on, quote, a central bank of issue, end quote. These were unsigned editorials by the journal, but they were actually written by the ubiquitous Charles A. Conant, from his vantage point as salaried chief propagandist of the U.S. government's National Monetary Commission. The series was a summary of the reformer's position, also going out of the way to assure the forgans of this world that the new central bank, quote, would probably deal directly only with the larger national banks, leaving it for the latter to rediscount for their more remote correspondence, end quote. To the standard arguments for a central bank, quote, elasticity of the money supply, protecting bank reserves by manipulating the discount rate and the international flow of gold, and combating crisis by bailing out individual banks, Conan added a Conan twist. The importance of regulating interest rates and the flow of capital in a world marked by surplus capital. Government debt would, for Conant, provide the important function of sopping up surplus capital, that is, providing profitable outlets for savings by financing government expenditures. The Wall Street Journal series inaugurated a shrewd and successful campaign by Conant to manipulate the nation's press and get it behind the idea of a central bank. Building on his experience in 1898, Conant, along with Aldrich's secretary, Arthur B. Shelton, prepared abstracts of commission materials for the newspapers during February and March of 1910. Soon Shelton recruited J.P. Gavitt, head of the Washington Bureau of the Associated Press, 
The scan commission abstracts, articles, and forthcoming books for, quote, newsy paragraphs to catch the eye of newspaper editors. The academic organizations prove particularly helpful to the NMC, lending their cloak of disinterested expertise to the endeavor. In February, Robert E. Eli, secretary of the APS, proposed to Aldrich that a special volume of its proceedings be devoted to banking and currency reform, to be published in cooperation with the NMC, in order to, quote, popularize in the best sense some of the valuable work of the commission, end quote. And yet, Eli had the gall to add that, even though the APS would advertise the NMC's arguments and conclusions, it would retain its, quote, objectivity by avoiding its own specific policy recommendations. As Eli put it, quote, We shall not advocate a central bank, but we shall only give the best results of your work in condensed form and untechnical language, end quote. The AAPSS, too, weighed in with its own special volume, Banking Problems, in 1910, featuring an introduction by A. Piet Andrew of Harvard and the NMC, and articles by veteran bank reformers such as Joseph French Johnson, Horace White, and Morgan Bankers Trust official Fred I. Kent. But most of the articles were from leaders of Rockefeller's National City Bank of New York, including George E. Roberts, a former Chicago banker and U.S. Mint official about to join National City. Meanwhile, Paul M. Warburg capped his lengthy campaign for a central bank in a famous speech to the New York YMCA on March 23rd on, quote, a United Reserve Bank for the United States. Warburg basically outlined the structure of his beloved German Reichsbank, but he was careful to begin his talk by noting a recent poll in the Banking Law Journal that 60% of the nation's bankers favored a central bank, provided it was, quote, not controlled by Wall Street or any monopolistic interest, end quote. To calm this fear, Warburg insisted that, semantically, the new reserve bank not be called a central bank, and that the reserve bank's governing board be chosen by government officials, merchants, and bankers, with bankers, of course, dominating the choices. He also provided a distinctive Warburg twist by insisting that the Reserve Bank replace the hated single-name paper system of commercial credit dominant in the United States by the European system, whereby a Reserve Bank provided a guaranteed and subsidized market for two named commercial paper endorsed by acceptance banks. In this way, the United Reserve Bank would correct the, quote, complete lack of modern bills of exchange, end quote, that is, acceptances, in the United States. Warburg added that the entire idea of a free and self-regulating market was obsolete, particularly in the money market. Instead, the action of the market must be replaced by, quote, the best judgment of the best experts, end quote. And guess who was slated to be one of the best of those best experts? The greatest cheerleader for the Warburg plan and the man who introduced the APS's Reform of the Currency in 1911, the volume on banking reform featuring Warburg's speech, was Warburg's kinsman and member of the Seligman investment banking family, Columbia economist E.R.A. Seligman. So delighted was the Merchants Association of New York with Warburg's speech that it distributed 30,000 copies during the spring of 1910. 
Warburg had paved the way for this support by regularly meeting with the Currency Committee of the Merchants Association since October 1908, and his efforts were aided by the fact that the resident expert for that committee was none other than Joseph French Johnson. At the same time, in the spring of 1910, the numerous research volumes published by the NMC poured onto the market. The object was to swamp public opinion with a parade of impressive, analytic, and historical scholarship, all allegedly, quote, scientific and, quote, value-free, but all designed to aid in furthering the common agenda of a central bank. Typical was E.W. Kemmerer's mammoth statistical study of seasonal variations in the demand for money. Stress was laid on the problem of the, quote, inelasticity of the supply of cash. In particular, the difficulty of expanding that supply when needed. While Kemmerer felt precluded from spelling out the policy implications, establishing a central bank, in the book, his acknowledgments in the preface to Fred Kent and the inevitable Charles Conant were a tip-off to the cognoscenti, and Kemmerer himself disclosed them in his address to the Academy of Political Science the following November. Now that the theoretical and scholarly groundwork had been laid, by the latter half of 1910, it was time to formulate a concrete, practical plan and put on a mighty putsch on its behalf. In Reform of the Currency, published by the APS, Warburg made the point with crystal clarity, quote, Advance is possible only by outlining a tangible plan, end quote, that would set the terms of the debate from then on. The tangible plan phase of the central bank movement was launched by the ever-pliant APS, which held a monetary conference in November 1910, in conjunction with the New York Chamber of Commerce and the Merchants Association of New York. The members of the NMC were the guests of honor at this conclave, and delegates were chosen by governors of 22 states, as well as presidents of 24 chambers of commerce. Also attending were a large number of economists, monetary analysts, and representatives of most of the top banks in the country. Attendance at the conference included Frank Vanderlip, Elihu Root, Thomas W. Lamont of the Morgans, Jacob Schiff, and J.P. Morgan. The formal sessions of the conference were organized around papers by Kemmerer, Laughlin, Johnson, Bush, Warburg, and Conant and the general atmosphere was that bankers and businessmen were to take their general guidance from the attendant scholars. As James B. Forgan, Chicago banker who was now solidly in the central banking camp, put it, quote, Let the theorists, those who can study from past history and from present conditions the effect of what we are doing, lay down principles for us and let us help them with the details. End quote. C. Stuart Patterson pointed to the great lessons of the Indianapolis Monetary Commission and the way in which its proposals triumphed in action because, quote, we went home and organized an aggressive and active movement, end quote. Patterson then laid down the marching orders of what this would mean concretely for the assembled troops. Quote, that is just what you must do in this case. You must uphold the hands of Senator Aldrich, you have got to see that the bill which he formulates obtains the support of every part of the country. End quote. With the New York Monetary Conference over, it was now time for Aldrich, surrounded by a few of the topmost leaders of the financial elite, to go off in seclusion and hammer out a detailed plan around which all parts of the central bank movement could rally. 
Someone in the Aldrich inner circle, probably Morgan partner Henry Pete Davison, got the idea of convening a small group of top leaders in a super-secret conclave to draft the central bank bill. On November 22, 1910, Senator Aldrich, with a handful of companions, set forth in a privately chartered railroad car from Hoboken, New Jersey, to the coast of Georgia, where they sailed to an exclusive retreat, the Jekyll Island Club on Jekyll Island, Georgia. Facilities for their meeting were arranged by club member and co-owner J.P. Morgan. The cover story released to the press was that this was a simple duck hunting expedition, and the conferees took elaborate precautions on the trips there and back to preserve their secrecy. Thus, the attendees addressed each other only by first name, and the railroad car was kept dark and closed off from reporters or other travelers on the train. One reporter apparently caught on to the purpose of the meeting, but was in some way persuaded by Henry P. Davison to maintain silence. The conferees worked for a solid week at Jekyll Island to hammer out the draft of the Federal Reserve Bill. In addition to Aldrich, the conferees included Henry P. Davison, Morgan Partner, Paul Warburg, whose address in the spring had greatly impressed Aldrich, Frank A. Vanderlip, Vice President of the National City Bank of New York, and finally, A. Piet Andrew, head of the NMC staff, who had recently been made Assistant Secretary of the Treasury by President Taft. After a week of meetings, the six men had forged a plan for a central bank, which eventually became the Aldrich Bill. Vanderlip acted as secretary of the meeting and contributed the final writing. The only substantial disagreement was tactical, with Aldrich attempting to hold out for a straightforward central bank on the European model, while Warburg and the other bankers insisted that the reality of central control be cloaked in the politically palatable camouflage of, quote, decentralization. It is amusing that the bankers were the more politically astute, while the politician Aldrich wanted to waive political considerations. Warburg and the bankers won out, and the final draft was basically the Warburg plan with a decentralized patina taken from Marowitz. The financial power elite now had a bill. The significance of the composition of the small meeting must be stressed. Two Rockefeller men, Aldrich and Vanderlip, two Morgans, Davison and Norton, one Kuhn-led person, Warburg, and one economist friendly to both camps, Andrew. After working on some revisions of the Jekyll Island draft with Forgan and George Reynolds, Aldrich presented the Jekyll Island draft as the Aldrich plan to the full NMC in January 1911. But here, an unusual event occurred. Instead of quickly presenting this Aldrich bill to the Congress, its drafters waited for a full year, until January 1912. Why the unprecedented year's delay? The problem was that the Democrats swept the congressional elections in 1910, and Aldrich, disheartened, decided not to run for re-election to the Senate the following year. The Democratic triumph meant that the reformers had to devote a year of intensive agitation to convert the Democrats and to intensify propaganda to the rest of banking, business, and the public. In short, the reformers needed to regroup and accelerate their agitation.